our Oath of the Gatewatch and 2015 review on episode 50 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 50 of So Many Insane Plays, our Oath of the Gatewatch and 2015 review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. This is our 50th episode of So Many Insane Plays, and we haven't podcasted for a while, since October, so we have a lot of ground to cover. So dig in, listeners, uh, because this is going to be a long episode. That's right. For those of you who like the long shows, this one's for you. We start where we usually start, with announcements. Steve, you're right in the middle of VSL Season 4. Will you tell everyone how that's going? Well, it could be going better, <laughs> but uh, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of fun. I think the one thing that I've learned so far is that I need to be more aggressive in my mulliganing decisions. But I've been happy with, with my deck choices and my in-game play. Um, I think uh, the, the VSL is highlighting some of the really important trends in the format right now, which I think we'll get to in some of our year in review. But you know, since we haven't podcasted in five, four or five months, I just wanted to remind everyone that the VSL is underway and we're as we speak right now, we're just finished week four between weeks four and five, so we're almost at the midpoint. And it's it's really fun. There have been some great matches. So if you haven't seen it, uh, be sure to tune in. And if you missed episodes, you can go onto YouTube and catch all the great VSL action. That's right. VSL continues to be good stuff. Steve, you have some article updates, I think, going in, yes? Well, one of the big updates is at the beginning of the year, I published a, a vintage checklist. One of the things that I used to do with all of my set reviews was to generate an updated, complete, the ultimate vintage checklist, <laughs> which is a a checklist of all the vintage playables and then with quantities and ratios included so that people could use the checklist to update their collection. And I would also include, you know, the, the findings from the previous sets. But since I have not published a written or published set review since Dragon's Maze, in no small part because set reviews are now with you, um, I decided it would be a good idea to publish to publish a checklist as a separate a separate item. And in fact, it wasn't my idea. It was a local in one of the tournaments said that, you know, you really were looking for something like that. And since a lot of a lot of people are playing vintage on Magic Online, I thought it'd be a really useful product. I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback on it. Um, I set up basically a, a multi-tab Excel spreadsheet where you can just with the ratios that the ratios of the cards that you need already input. So all you have to do is is input, you know, what you own and it'll tell you what you're missing. Um, way cool. Yeah, and uh, you know, Ethan Fleischer, who listens to the show, works for Watsi, said that he used those checklists. He used them to help him evaluate what to include in um, in uh, Vintage Masters, and a number of other people have said they, they found it really valuable. So we'll provide a link. And my plan for those is, rather than update it with each set as I used to do, I'll just probably do it once a year. And so, you know, at the beginning of the year, you can kind of refresh or update your collection, um, both online and paper. So this is the 2016 Vintage Checklist. And if that's something that you feel like you need to do, be sure to check it out. And in between updates to that checklist, you can listen to this show, not only for our set reviews, but also for our report cards after the fact, yeah. which when you, need to dis when you need to know what's really seeing play, 
are probably slightly more valuable than our preview of the yeah. cards. <laughs> uh, from year to year, last year especially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then just, just because I get a lot of inquiries about it. The Gush book, I made a lot of progress. It is entirely in Jason Jaco's hands, the editor and uh, one of the site managers and owners of Eternal Central. So if you want to know where that is, pester him, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. And, and then uh, he's actually, in the meantime, I've been working on uh, the 2004 year Vintage in Review as part of my history of vintage. So uh, that's that's well underway. And for folks who, who want to catch the, the first 11 years, you can do that on Eternal Central as well. All right. We have several tournament announcements for you, but the biggest and most important is the announcement of the NYSE Open number four. This is, outside of Eternal Weekend, one of the largest vintage events in the U.S. every year. This is the fourth annual. It's run by excellent TO, Nick Detweiler. It's typically out in New York. This year is no exception. On Saturday, June 4, it's going to be at Brothers Grimm Games and Collectibles in Selden, New York, which is on Long Island. Awesome. Now, this is a... This is a, this is huge. Yeah. yeah, the NYSC is one of my favorite events of the year. It's also great because it's an excuse to plan a trip to New York. <laughs> so this is June fourth. Mark your calendars. It sounds like it's on. You said it's on Long Island. It's on so, Long Island. So it's. I think it's a perfect time to like. If you know, if you're not in the New York area, maybe fly in Thursday or Friday, catch a show, do some things in the city. You know, I actually one of the fun things that I like to do at the NYSC is spend Sunday going to see something in the city. Last year, I went to the um, the New World Trade Center Museum, which was unbelievable. And the year before that, I got to go to the Met. Uh, so this is this is super exciting. Um, June 4th. And it, it's also nice because it's kind of in the middle of the summer, beginning of the summer. So the weather's nice. It's not like you have to battle the snow or sleet or whatever. So this will be super exciting. Are you going to go, Kevin? I, I'm not certain yet. I really want to because I went to the last one, number three, for the first time for me. And it was a great time. It was awesome. This is a really well-run event. You're going to be surrounded by a hundred or more of uh, of the most passionate vintage players in the world. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the NYSE Open, this is a 15 proxy event. So even if you're not a... Oh, I thought you were going to say, most importantly, is the prizes are insane. <laughs> well, yeah. I was getting to that. So it's a proxy event. This is not a sanctioned event. <clears throat> and the prizes are insane. It has a really test cards, Kevin. Play test. Hey, don't jump the gun on that one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna have a hundred plus person play test session in New York. <clears throat> but the prizes are insane. Now the the entry fee is higher than a usual tournament. I think it's a hundred dollars this year, uh, which is not new. That's that's the way Nick has been running it in a t- in order to to draw a large player base with his incredible prize prize support. So the prizes are first through eight will draft a power nine set. Less time center. So Lotus Ancestral Time Walk and five mocks, and the top eight will draft those. Nine through 12, now keep on mind, this is if you miss top eight. Nine through 12, Mishra's Workshop. 13 through 16, English Legends Mana Drain. So those are incredible prizes all the way down to 16th place. So that makes this event uh, a little more competitive than the average one, right? Where maybe someone gets two losses and they say, throw up their hands, okay, fine, let's go home. This one, not so much. This one is is people are in it till the end and the prizes are worth it and that it's it's awesome that nick has been able to preserve this prize pool yeah last year i think the bottom half of the top 16 got bizarres but mana drain is great and you know to be honest 
Um, it's just the competition. It's such a fun event. Um, last year, we got 150 people, so I wouldn't be surprised if we match that again. Yeah, and there's other ancillary things that go on. There are some. Uh, there's a team event, meaning you partner with two other players, and your average or total, I'm sorry, records of those three of you paired against other teams. There's a, a, a team prize. And there's other things going on. You know, Friday Night Magic will happen the night before. There'll be other smaller events, things like that in the area. So it's not just one event either. It's kind of a weekend celebration. Anyway, check out the details on themanadrain.com because it's, a, it's one of the best events you can possibly go to in the U.S. Anything else on that? Um, other local events? Steve, you and I have a few. Yeah, Eudaimonia in Berkeley. We've got a vintage event scheduled for Sunday, 20, January 24th. So if you're in the Bay Area... Be sure to show up to that. It should be a great great time. We get a pretty good turnout every couple months when we hold these. Mm-hmm. And on February 28th, we're having an old school event. So that'll be really cool. Um, we, I think we've made a little bit of changes to the ban and restricted list. So if you like old school, even if you don't like vintage, come check it out. <laughs> And in the uh, Great Lakes area here, we have a Team Sirius Open coming up in Columbus. Now, this one's a, a somewhat unique one because it's a legacy vintage splint tournament. Part of part of the tournament is legacy, part is vintage. They do this every once in a while down in Columbus, and people like it. That is on Saturday, January 30th at Comingtown in Columbus. And there's another TSO coming up in February also on February 20th in Sandusky, Ohio. All these announcements are on the manager and we'll have links in the show notes. Cool. Come support Vintage. Mm -hmm. Now, by way of news, we need to talk about this whole proxy tournament hubbub that came up just just this week and was really finally addressed by Wizards of the Coast just a day or so ago. And we might have had a longer show segment on this, but it was quote-unquote resolved or addressed by Wizards so relatively quickly and so well that we don't really need to debate the issue very much. But for any of you who are have been living under a rock or just don't use Reddit or Twitter or whatever, uh, the, the breaks down like this. A particular shop somewhere in the United States was questioned by Wizards of the Coast Organized Play regarding a particular tournament event, which involved some communication with Wizards and the shop owner. And it included so, something of a statement of policy by the Wizards representative. I'm not going to go into all the details, but there were some details posted on Facebook by this shop owner. And it amounted to, according to Wizards Play Network policy, which is the network that stores participate in in order to get product directly from Wizards, no proxies are allowed at WPN-sanctioned venues, regardless of whether or not the event is sanctioned or not. Now, that was that was how the shop owner understood and conveyed the, the, uh, the statement by Wizards on Facebook. A couple of other shop owners received similar messages, uh, but only a few, as far as we could tell, in different parts of the country. Now, that statement was latched onto by social media because of the implications about non-sanctioned events and using proxies, specifically mostly for eternal players, but also some some modern players as well. It seemed to suggest that a store owner could have their WPN status revoked if Wizards found out they were running even unsanctioned events that allowed proxies, which put the fear into a lot of people. We went for about 48 hours with some lack of information and then another post by trick jared on reddit which tried to help the inform the help tried to help the issue but ended up putting more fuel on the fire because trick tried to clarify that proxy cards are inexorably grouped with counterfeits in their eyes and so using a proxy was tantamount to using a counterfeit magic card which they are very powerfully against and trying to fight especially the wave of chinese counterfeits that have come over for the last year or so 
Right. Trick tried to explain how they have to come down hard on proxies for that reason. But the conflation of proxy with counterfeit made people even more uh, afraid and, and angry, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so there was a huge backlash to his comments about that. Well, I don't. Yeah, I, I think and there's a there's an, a third layer of issue. So which is it's not just the it's not just the counterfeit issue. It's the use of it's the use of of, of threatening revocation of player network access to enforce a policy um, that was also what I think was also a cause of alarm. So yeah. you know, Matt Sperling, I think, coined the term proxy gate around this this <laughs> debate. Um, so you know, in my opinion, a proxy is clearly not a counterfeit because there's no intent to deceive. There's no fraud. Yeah. Fraud yeah. requires intent. And um, wizards in the initial sort of announcement appeared to be redefining counterfeit to encompass proxy. And then that would be one thing. But then the enforcement mechanism, which is threatening and sanctioning or denying UPN, uh, WPN access, means that they can basically, in theory, enact any policy they want and then enforce regardless of whether the justification or whether the definition by law or custom makes sense and then and then enforce it that way so the question that I had before this matter was resolved, I think quite satisfactorily, with an announcement that clarified that proxies in unsanctioned events are not falling within this policy. Um, the question I had was, can't wizards basically announce any policy preference and then enforce it using UPN, WPN access denial? Mm-hmm. So couldn't they, for, could they, for example, say that any store that hosts a competitor TCG, you know, is, is at risk of using, any, you see my point, yeah. that it's a slippery slope question. So it's not just the fact that they were redefining proxy as counterfeit, it's that they were then using an enforcement mechanism that I think was perceived by many as overreach. Yeah. So I don't, I don't really want to spend more time on this because it's been resolved, I think, satisfactorily. Well, let me, but it does raise concerns. I agree. Let's just wrap up by specifying exactly how it was resolved. So it was about 48 hours. Hours, I think after Trick posted on Reddit that Elaine Chase posted an article on the mothership. And I'm going to read the three bolded statements in her article, which I think properly summarizes it. First is, our stated policy specifically applies to DCI-sanctioned events. Cards used yeah. in DCI-sanctioned events must be authentic magic cards. Okay, so that's very clear. Sanctioned events is what their policy applies to. Then, second one, our stance on counterfeit is also clear. Wizards remains committed to vigorously protecting the magic community from counterfeiters. Also, not news. But the third one is the one that really cinches it for us proxy event players, which is Wizards of the Coast has no desire to police playtest cards made for personal, non-commercial use, even if that usage takes place in a store. Yeah. And that's after her, she had a paragraph which talked about a playtest card is most commonly a basic land with the name of a different card written on it with a marker. You know, she's clarifying they don't consider those to be counterfeit magic cards. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's I think it's, it's a generous clarification. Yeah. I think it, it's 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 there is a tension between what was initially said yeah. and what has been. I think there's been some backtracking, but I don't want to come down too hard on wizards here because it, it's all come it came out well in the end and i also think that um i think that actually it was a moment of kind of introspection for the vintage community in a sense <laughs> you know there were some serious questions about you know, to what extent do we rely on proxies what does this mean mm-hmm. should we look at ce or ie cards um you know what number of players can actually compete without proxies and i think it was a useful exercise even though it was you know alarming mm-hmm. people near heart attacks um so the thing, I agree with you, the thing it traded in me personally, and I shared this on Twitter with a few folks, is the realization that while Vintage is currently a heavily community-driven format, and the community comes yeah. together to really run the format, 
yes. we would not be successful without local games shops. I, and, I completely agree. Yeah. I think I think you know the alarm. The reason for folks who aren't sort of with enmeshed in local vintage tournaments. Maybe you play Magic online. Maybe you just you know you're just a casual listener. In it's not hyperbole to say that the this issue presented an existential threat to paper vintage. Yeah. Uh, because even though it may it certainly would not have impacted Eternal Weekend, it would not have impacted Magic Vintage on Magic Online. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that the capacity to organize to, to build interest at the local level is dependent on the use of proxies. And so it you know even if proxies were banned tomorrow, you would still have you would still have local shops in some places with the capacity to run vintage events, but the capacity to bring in new players, the you know stores would be dissuaded from from trying, and then larger regional events would suffer because they're they're channeled by local mm-hmm. stores. So you know, last year we covered last year we interviewed Ray Robillard, who was the organizer of the Waterbury tournaments, which are also known as the Manadrain Opens, and they were one of the first truly community-led big vintage tournaments that started in 2002 and really exploded in 2003, four, and five. And what what he did was he drew on all the local events to build big regional events, and that's what the Star City Game Power Nine tournaments did, and that's how that's how the Vintage Championship had has grown over time, especially Eternal Weekend. Mm-hmm. So if you if you shut down those local events, it harms the bigger ones. There's a a dynamic feedback loop um, there. There's kind of a hydraulic action, maybe a better metaphor. <laughs> and so, so you know, it really, in a real meaningful sense, was an existential threat to paper vintage. Mm-hmm. I am satisfied that the issue has been resolved in this final communication, and uh, I'm just glad for it. I mean, Elaine Chase and, and the rest of the folks at Wizards really did a fantastic job responding quickly to this issue because it was kind of a wildfire of speculation and, and misunderstanding. One other announcement, Kevin. Our, since our last podcast was so long ago, I believe in the last podcast, in our announcement section, I announced that Rich Shea and I had written a letter to Wizards of the Coast on how to improve Magic Online. And while they didn't take us up on all of our recommendations, one of the spe- the top-line requests was that they reintroduce a monthly premiere event, which they've in fact done, with the monthly Power 9 challenge. And it has been a huge success, and it's really changed the dynamic on Magic Online. So, um, you know, if you didn't know about it, the last Saturday of every month is now a Power 9 challenge in which the top eight is given pieces of power. I believe the top nine is given pieces of power. And then um, the top 32 gets uh, either play points or tickets or some other set of prizes. But um, if you were on the fence on Magic Online, the Power 9 Challenge, it's about 100 players a month. It's hugely popular and it's hugely fun. Uh, so it's it's really that cool. That was a big win. It's really brought a sense of occasion to online vintage that was lacking. Hugely, yeah. yep. Well, let's move on. It wouldn't be a set review without our report card. This time our report card is on Battle for Zendikar. For our Battle for Zendikar report card, we won't take much time here because honestly there's not too much to say. For the likes of Titan's Presence, Void Winnower, Painful Truths, Vampiric Rites, Smothering Abomination, Molten Nursery, Bring to Light, Star of Stagnation, Blighted Cataract, and Blighted Fen, we predicted zero and there were zero. But of those, Painful Truths was the card that was... Closest. That, that w- wasn't that the card that got the most attention, I think? We talked uh, quite a bit on Painful Truth, that's true. Okay. 
But as for the four remaining cards that we did predict some non-zero amount of play for, let's cover those. Kiora, Master of Depths. Master of the Depths, excuse me. Steve, you predicted three. I predicted two. The actual was sadly zero. And I can point to one particular thing why the, this happened, and that's because shortly after our set review, Thirst for Knowledge was unrestricted. <laughs> yeah. And Thirst for Knowledge has some powerful overlap with how excited we were about Kiora in terms of graveyard shenanigans and engine possibilities. And the format kind of got upheaved a little bit, not just because of Thirst. Thirst overlaps with Kiora specifically, but the whole dig through time chalice thing threw the whole format for a, a loop. But I was, I think, a little too optimistic about Kiora, and then Thirst came back, and no one wanted to play with this card, I don't think. I really don't expect that to ever change, honestly. What do you think? <laughs> Jeez, long no? pessimist on Kiora. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> anyway, next up, the card we had the most excitement for numerically, Radiant Flames. Steve, you predicted four. I predicted three. The actual was zero. You have to remind me what that card even does. <laughs> That's the converge uh, X damage to each creature, where X is the colors of mana you pay. We were talking about it as a way to fight Mentor Mirrors and for Mentor, but maybe Jeskai Mentor to fight other creature decks. But it turned out no one was interested in Radiant Flames. Also, again, the format got a little bit upheaved shortly after our set review. I am moderately surprised this didn't come about, but I think the interaction of Gush aggro control decks sort of went by the wayside as a narrative for a little while when we all were collectively responding to the banner restricted updates. I also think it's possible that, uh, I think it's possible that the, um, what am I trying to say? I, I think that there may be su- such a surplus of this kind of effect right now that it's easy for it to fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it would be one thing if there wasn't Sulfur Elemental, Sudden Surge, uh, you know, Volcanic Fallout, all those kinds of cards. But yeah. with all of them, it's probably hard for this to, this to find a niche. That's true. People do have a lot of options. Slice and dice. I mean, I see all these things, you know, anyway. So. Unlike Kiora, though, I do believe that the format could evolve such that Radiant Flames becomes an important card again. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a good example of a card that I think is vintage playable, Mm -hmm. air quotes, but just didn't see vintage play. Doesn't mean it won't. It's a card you should probably have in the complete list. I tend to agree. Next up, Green Warden of Marasa. Not much to say here. You and I both predicted one. The actual was zero. Our one was thing does. Our, our one was in the guise of a possible oath sideboard card because the green warden gives you value when it comes into play and when it dies in terms of regrowing cards from your graveyard. So we thought as a possible alternative to something like a runescarred demon. Yeah, I think this card probably suffers from the fact that oath just had a down period since yeah. winning the vintage championship. It's just been down. yeah, oath oath really took really took a dip in popularity. And last but not least, Aligned Hedron Network. Steve, you thought that this card would have a place in some workshop mirror technology, perhaps. You predicted two. I predicted none. The the actual was none. Uh, what this is, the is I, again, remind me. I don't. <laughs> well, um, I feel the way about this as I do about Radiant Flames. I do think there's a chance that the format could evolve, such that this card is good at some future point. But this is the four man artifact. When it comes into play, exile all creatures of power five or greater until it oh, yeah. leaves play. Yeah. yeah. I do believe that there could be a place for this yeah, in I the think, future. I think it's clear that that um, the rise of the Ravager slash um, Hangerback decks kind of make this a lot weaker. Yes, I agree completely. Um, the workshop decks in general have gone away from the bigger creatures that they had been for a while. Yeah, and it's not like this thing like wipes out Mentor. So. Yeah. yeah. Yep, the format's just not quite right for it right now. 
At any rate, for those of you who are following along at home, that's zero cards from Battle for Zendikar that showed up in top eights. Out of out of that dozen cards we reviewed, which might be the first, might be a first in quite a while for our set reviews. Quite a while. I I'm having trouble thinking of a set where none of the cards we reviewed saw any play. Yeah, I mean it's been a while, probably going back to like the Dragon's Maze period. But um, I, I just I'd have to go back and study the matter. Yeah, but that's unfortunate so, for Battle for Zendikar. No, it's I mean it's so this set is certainly not going to be given a Moxie Award, which is our <laughs> our uh you know annual award for best set but if, if folks are trying to figure out what's probably the best car from the set at this point we don't know but it my guess is probably radiant flames <laughs> that, i would agree with you there's also a chance that painful truths is the right card that's in some future deck but it's i'd have to give it to radiant flames as well well i'm, I'm really so, glad that i don't have to update my uh vintage <laughs> checklist with this set <laughs> hey it just gives us more time to talk about oath of the Gatewatch. For Oath of the Gatewatch, we normally begin our set reviews talking about the key mechanics of a set. And you can't talk about Oath of the Gatewatch, and also, of course, Battle for Zendikar a little bit, but you can't talk about Oath of the Gatewatch without talking about colorless mana. This is the set that introduces the new colorless mana symbol, and for the first time ever, makes colorless mana a requirement for casting spells and or activating abilities. So they've got the new colorless mana symbol, which is showing up in the mana costs of spells and abilities. Just so folks know, they show up in a lot of cards. I don't have the exact count, but there are colorless cards that have colorless mana requirements. There are colored cards that have uh, colorless requirements, I believe. Abilities. 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 And then there are cards that appear to be colored, but are devoid, meaning they're colorless, that Mm -hmm. have color... Uh, colorless requirements so colorless mana sources like soul ring and wasteland and so on are a far more valuable and important thing in the context of this set than they've ever been before um so kevin what do you make of the colorless thing do you think that, that this requirement changes deck construction and vintage short answer no but let me qualify that because you might think vintage has the largest card pool in magic it has access to every form of mana that's basically ever been created. You probably could make colorless mana requirements work. And to that, I would say, sure, you could design a deck that played one or more of these cards that require colorless mana and yeah. probably make it work. Well, you have everything at your disposal. But I would also say that those of you who are looking at cards and saying, this is colorless, this goes great in any deck, I yeah. would caution you very powerfully about thinking that way. <laughs> because... Some decks in Vintage have a number of colorless mana sources. Workshop decks have a number. Most decks in Vintage have very little colorless mana. Right. In the sense and, that they that what we have called, or what is conventionally perceived to be colorless, is usually like an off-color mox. But it's yeah. not technically colorless. It's not the, the, what was it, the five-color mox crystal. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I agree with you completely. We have used the term, and this not just you and I, the magic community as a whole, have used the term colorless mana in, inappropriately for only about 20 years now. Because most of the time, I would argue that 70-80% of the time when people in the past have said colorless mana when referring to a spell, what they meant was generic mana. And that's one of the yes. things that makes this colorless yes. symbol and matter. colorless, it's generic, yeah. Right, so when you're casting Factor Fiction, yeah. you don't need a blue and three colorless. You need a blue and three generic, generic mana. It's just we never use that term because colorless so historically meant any color to right. us, which is obviously 
completely backwards, <laughs> right? Well, it's conceptually it's it's 180 degrees, but it didn't matter. Well, when you think about it, you know, think about the the you know cards since the beginning of the the game. You know, a Sarah Angel cost to cast three mana of any color, three generic mm-hmm. mana, yep, and two white. But we've called that we refer to that as colorless. three colorless and two white. Yep. But really, what you mean is generic. And it's yep. interesting that the original Magic playtest card may have better distinguished that, Kevin, because mm-hmm. they the way that the play, Alpha playtest cards mana cost were costed was they had a total mana amount. So Sarah Angel a number number right. So they would yep. say five white white, which meant it costs five total mana two of which needed to be white Mm -hmm. and three of which conveys the whole generic concept a little better yes that conveys it but the simplification you understand why the templating was simplified Mm -hmm. because there was no need to refer to something as generic until 20 some years later right (laughs) (laughs) right right so anyway, to, to illustrate your point further, we frequently evaluate cards by saying uh, in vintage, in a vintage concept, like a two mana spell in vintage is frequently a a turn one play because you'll play an underground sea and you'll play a mox emerald and you'll cast time walk, right? Yeah. The fact that that mox emerald tapped for green was irrelevant to the time walk. And we get stuck as a, I think as a group, as a whole, we get stuck in the notion of that was colorless mana. Yeah. Well, if you try to apply that to a spell that costs, say, one C, or C is the colorless mana symbol, yes. uh, your island in Mox Emerald cannot cast that spell. Right. Even though on the surface it looks like it's very easy to cast, it's quite the opposite. You have to, you really have to consider how many truly colorless sources you have in your deck. It, it all, you know, our friend Doug Lynn, some years for me, some years ago, built an, uh, an abacus for me. You may recall <laughs> that when I was playing combo decks a lot in the Star City Games Open. There was no, there was no uh, piece there. I, well, there was a piece, I think, for I want to. There was a piece for Storm and a thing for I think there was a piece for Colorless. But typically, when jet, when playing Storm decks, like white is just conflated with Colorless. And mm-hmm. Now we just have to be more careful about that kind of thing. In fact, that could be a, a misrepresentation of mana floating. If you're, yeah, if you're, it, te- it technically is, yeah, yeah. And in this day and age, it matters even more. So you can't just say all this, all these colors I'm not playing. We'll just call that Colorless. You can't do that anymore. <clears throat> but to bring the issue to a specific direction, I want to talk about the workshop archetype. So people might be very comfortable with the notion that their blue-based combo control, combo or aggro combo deck, um, those decks, they might say, oh yeah, you're right. I, the only colorless mana in there is a soul ring and a strip mine or something. That I, I get it. But what about workshops, right? They're, all their lands are colorless. Not yeah, exactly. Workshop generates colorless mana. But because of the restriction that it can only be used to play artifacts, it technically cannot be used to pay any colorless cost. Yeah. So if you look at a typical workshop mana base starting at about 26 mana, between 26 and 28 with, yeah. with some room to wiggle, if you have a typical workshop mana base, four Mishra's workshops, a couple, four ancient tombs, four Mishra's factories, four wastelands, a strip mine, a, a, strip mine, a Talarian academy, then if you move to the artifacts, a lotus, five moxen, soul ring, and mana crypt. That's a typical starting point. Plus or minus, you know, some other utility lands like uh, Mutavault, to Port, Cavern of Souls, that kind of thing. But from that 26 mana producing card base, only 58% of those actually produce colorless mana. Just a little over 58%. half of those could be used. Yeah, could be used to cast, say, Warping are you Whale. Can't, are you can't counting mana crypt? Yes. Okay. Yes. Black Lotus cannot be used to generate colorless. It has to be right. one of colors. It's not one of those 58%, yeah. yeah. And none, and neither can the five moxen. Also, to make matters a little bit worse, some of Mish, uh, Mishra's workshop decks 
lands function as spells, namely wasteland and strip mine. So if you've got you you could have a great opener. Like look at this look at this opener. Mishra's workshop, you always want that. Uh an off-color mox. They're all off-color. Mox Emerald. And a wasteland. That is a fast mana with a disruptive element draw. You throw a warping whale into that hand, which costs one C, and all of a sudden on turn two, well or turn one if you want to, but you're probably gonna go workshop mox something big on turn one, let's say. On turn two, you play that Wasteland. Now you have a choice to make between casting Warping Whale and using your Wasteland to disrupt your opponent. And that is not the kind of choice for the purpose of spell casting that Mishra's Workshop decks want to be having to make. Well, just so folks know, because you referred to this card Warping Whale, Warping Whale is a card that we're going to review today. But suffice Mm -hmm. to say, it's a card that costs one generic and one colorless. Exactly. So just don't worry about what it does yet. We'll get to that. (laughs) Right. Ignoring what it does. The point is, is that... Okay, so 58% of your mana sources produce colorless, but it's that's deceptively high because so many of your colorless producing cards have spell-like effects that you don't want to be tapping them for mana necessarily. Right. You want to be sacrificing a wasteland. You want to be attacking with a mistress factory. Those cards are in there because of their versatility, granted, but the point is is that the mana is for a colorless deck on the whole, the mana is far less forgiving in terms of casting colorless, I'm sorry. Yeah, spells that require colorless mana. Yeah. So So to bring that around, I I would simply posit that all these colorless spells are playable in Vintage, but they are not obviously easy to cast in any given deck. They don't go in any deck. Workshops would be the most natural starting point. Other decks would have to be powerfully adapted mana-wise in order to rely on them. I I think that's a very important point. I mean, in any given non-workshop deck, the number of truly colorless sources, not generic, is very, very limited. I mean, you're talking about soul rings, mana crypts, probably a strip mine, and and really, truly little else. The the non-workshop deck that has the most is going to be Landstill. I would think because Landstill is a blue-based deck that also has wastes and factories. Yeah, I, I, was, I thought even that deck. Dredge because Dredge often runs for petrified fields. <laughs> uh, well, numerically speaking, Landstill comes out in That's front true. of Dredge, yep. but Dredge is a good example. Let's talk about Landstill briefly because that deck still only has probably four wastes and a strip, and then. Th- three or four factories. The total of Wasteland, Strip Mine, and, and Factory in Landstill has recently come out to about eight lands. Sometimes there's only three Wastes, four factories, sometimes four Wastes, three factories, something like that, usually eight. But that deck usually doesn't play Mana Crypt or Soul Ring. So you're talking about only eight out of 20-something mana sources. That's still a pretty low percentage. Well, it's more like I mean, it, Patrick it's... Chapin ran in his original grow, Vintage Grow deck, but not here <laughs> with Land you're, you're not wrong. Uh, to, to use your Dredge example, though, okay, so frequently they're running for Petrified Fields now. It would be a relatively simple matter for Dredge to add some more colorless yes. lands. I, but I the, yeah, but it is a cost. I think the take. It's a cost. Yeah. Well, it is worth noting. Serum powder can tap for colorless or does. That's a good point. Hard <laughs> to get into play in most lists. So hard so. To, I think the, I think the point is that the really what you're pointing to is with the exception of Landstill and workshops, there probably is not a strategy in vintage that can reliably <laughs> cast these colorless spells or make colorless activations. I think that's your point. I think that's a very well taken point, and it's one that we'll have to just bear in mind as we review these cards. Mm-hmm, exactly. We don't typically talk about flavor issues much, but I have to ask you, what the heck is Oath of Gatewatch? <laughs> well, the, it's my understanding, and I have not read a lot about this, but the Oath of the Gatewatch refers to 
um, an agreement among the planeswalkers that helped Zendikar and the peoples of Zendikar to guard against the release of the Eldrazi again. Wouldn't and that, I don't, I don't actually be, know if it's... Wouldn't that be like an agreement or a conspiracy, not an oath? Like an oath to me is something that like an individual does to a thing or a group, but not a thing that people do mutually, collectively. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I, 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 there's probably some Vorthos folks listening right now who say, this is, you got it all wrong, you're oversimplifying or just you're just wrong. Okay. Sorry about that. No, but the simple was... truth is, is <laughs> I, I do agree with you in that oath as it pertains to this uh, this coming together of peoples to fight a, a great enemy seems like a strange choice of words, but it could be that there is a specific oath behind the scenes that I'm just not f- familiar with. Fair enough. <laughs> well, oath obviously has is a uh, you know we're kind of in this cycle where there are a lot of sets that are named after old cards and oath of druids, oath of rules, all that stuff. You know, this is an interesting an interesting title for a set, and I'm just wondering where it came from. I, I agree with you. The word oath has a very powerful connotation for me and for many vintage players, I think. <laughs> and it, I find it almost distracting to use that yes, word in any it, other context. It is. It's going to be <laughs> context. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get what, to what it. What about the mechanics, though? So I would like to know some of the mechanics that are being introduced here. And I noticed there are some evergreen mechanics that are unusual that I haven't seen. I had to look up, like Menace, because I don't play... I don't play, you know, formats where menace comes up. But um, but there is something else that <laughs> should tag to the to the colorless conversation, which is that to support colorless, they introduced a new basic land called wastes. So, oh, yes. speaking of confusing, <laughs> when we say wastes, <laughs> we're not talking about wasteland. We're talking about this new basic card type that generates mm-hmm. only colorless. Um, and, you know, in terms of, we don't have it on our set review to discuss, but I think we should mention, uh, I think we need to touch on it, that, um, you know, whether we think it's vintage playable. I mean, the question for me is whether, so so certainly Wastes has the advantage of being non-Wastelandable, mm-hmm. uh, and it can be fetched with a Ghost Quarter, which I actually think is a, a pretty meritorious reason to have one. <laughs> in, like, a workshop mirror, it might be better than, like, a singleton buried ruins or some random non very heavily used um for that reason alone but but um especially if you're running call you know cards like warping wheel but there is such a huge number of colorless mana sources in vintage like oh we completely forgot to mention library of alexandria in your analysis (laughs) i mean because landstow always runs library that's right um you know there's such a huge number of those that we will need you know to evaluate whether this card would ever be used over those. Um, it's true. You want to weigh in on that? Whether wastes is a you know vintage playable or should be included? I I don't believe that it is. There is a, there's a use case for it. You just mentioned with the ghost quarter. If people adopt some spells that require colorless mana in workshops, then I think you've made a decent case for one. Right. Because ghost quarter is not a given but a popular card right. in workshops. Um, in that sense, I would agree with you. You can make a case for one, but the opportunity cost of that one is really high. Yeah. You're giving up on so many great cards. Yeah, and it's Mutavolt, not like... Mutavolt, Import, your own Ghost Quarters. And it's not like that, you know, it's not as if the Ghost Quarter is going to help you out much. So you get Ghost Quartered. It only generates one mana. It's not, you know, almost all your mana sources, aside from Wasteland and Factories, generate more. I mean, Workshop decks used to, Mud decks used to consistently run... City of Traders, which yeah. is no longer in there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we are doing a set review, um, so we do need to, you know, include, technically include wastes in our assessment. Um, <laughs> I'm going to 
predicted it's probably going to see play just because just because of the ghost quarter rationale, but not not many. Interesting. Well, to con- to to play off of what you said about ghost quarter, though, you and I have both seen workshop decks that had basic lands in their sideboards. Um, frequently, it was an island because of Phyrexian Metamorph. Yep. And for the reason you mentioned about Ghost Quarter, is when Ghost Quarter is super popular and workshop decks want to have a leg up in the mirror, they might bring in a single island just to add more mana because having more mana is good, but also to do what you just said and kind of nullify that first Ghost Quarter activation. I think that there's a... So the playability of Wastes as it pertains to getting Ghost Quartered in a workshop deck is also directly related to whether or not you're playing colorless cards in your deck, Yeah. right? So there's this daisy chain of causality that gets you to the point of playing a, a waste. And I believe that your conclusion is is sound. I just don't believe all the intervening links are going to come to be, basically. Yeah, so you, yeah, basically you have to not only be running, you know, you basically, the only reason to rerun this is both you're concerned about Ghost Quarter and you probably are including, uh, you're including some of these cards from this set, right? Exactly. Because if you don't have any colorless requirements, then an island is a better card. It it casts any of your spells better than a waste does, and it casts a couple of them much better yeah, than a waste if, does. If you're a vintage player, I think it's safe to say pick one of these up. You know, just pick up <laughs> one, right? I mean, just to be that's fair. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. You're future proofing yourself a little bit. The odds of there being a deck that has four to ten wastes in it or something is almost yeah, ludicrous i think, I think you need so to, yeah i mean this could be a dollar card at some point i guess and then far future yeah it will be pick up one now <laughs> yeah well it's- okay well steve you also mentioned some mechanical conversation sure. that we normally have and i i want to draw back to that and talk about surge because we are going to talk about a few cards with surge surge is a new keyword in oath of the Gatewatch that refers to an alternate cost on a spell and it says you may cast this spell for its mana it's sorry its surge cost if you or a teammate has cast another spell this turn is this the first time we've seen the word teammate used on a card before no it isn't but it's very it's been very isolated because um the original example was imperial mask which is from future site which was the ivory mask uh, update that said when Imperial Mask comes into play, if it's not a token, each of your teammates puts a token that's a copy of Imperial Mask onto the battlefield. That was that was actually the first card and the only one since until now to have to refer to a teammate. Fascinating. Yeah. Future Sight in the gap between Future Sight and this. That's like a seven year gap. <laughs> well, you're you're totally right. Fascinating. But that's that's what Future Sight hey, was like, right? You, know, <laughs> I, you haven't really fully described this the surge mechanic, but I have to say that since we're on the subject of the word yeah. of the nomenclature of teammate, I thought it was really kind of cool. As I was reading through the set, it felt cool that magic is you know even in duels and stuff that we play you know we don't i don't play two-headed giant or whatever it's not going to mm-hmm. come up but it, it felt nice that, that that magic is encompassing enough broad enough and flexible enough that it can you know adopt and adapt itself to such a variety of play so mm. I, I really like that i didn't it didn't feel intrusive at all that's an interesting way to look at it i agree that's cool going back specifically to surge though we're going to talk about it in relation to some specific cards of course but i would simply Simply state that one of the reasons why the colorless mana requirements uh, might seem uh, reasonable in vintage or perhaps inherent in vintage because of the off-color moxin concept 
that doesn't up, that doesn't actually work for colorless mana. I think there's a similar sensation as it pertains to Surge in the notion that because Vintage has the Moxon and other mana accelerants and so many cheap spells, that achieving Surge would be somewhat trivial. I think I think there's some people who might feel that way, just that it's so easy to chain together spells in Vintage. I would caution everyone from feeling that it's that much of a given. <laughs> I guess is what I would say. Yes, it is not difficult to achieve, but I can imagine, and we're going to talk about it with, in some specifics, I can imagine scenarios whereby you get into the mid-game and there just is no good way to achieve Surge, and, you, and you're punished for playing a card that's otherwise uncastable without it. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'll just leave that at that. Surge is, I think, friendly to Vintage, but not a given, similar to colorless mana requirements. Anything else mechanical you wanted to cover, Steve? Is, are those the, is that the only new mechanic, keyword mechanic? Okay. No, there are two other keywords. There's support and cohort. Cohort is an activated ability on allies whereby you tap other allies on your team and get some ability. I don't believe that card applies in Vintage in any way. That's a limited-based ability. The other one, support, is just a modification of the bolster keyword whereby uh, support has a number, put a plus one, plus one counter on each of up to X other target creatures where X is the support number. That, I believe, also need not apply in Vintage. Uh, We're not going to review any cards that have Cohort or Support on them, and I would be surprised if any of those two from this set ever saw play in Vintage. But that's okay. Yes, the Colorless Mana and Surge will be quite enough for us to discuss. Okay, (laughs) very well. So we already have one prediction down. I think we both are going to expect Waste to see play. Uh, Actually, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to put Waste at the end until after we've talked about all these cards and get back to you on that one. Because I'm I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence on a non-zero number. Okay, so let's talk about some specific Oath cards here. Now we're coming out of the gate fast with Kozilek, the Great Distortion. Okay, this is going to be an exercise in reading a mana cost. 8cc, Legendary Creature Eldrazi. When you cast Kozilek, the Great Distortion, if you have fewer than 7 cards in hand, draw cards equal to the difference. He has Menace. So watch out, Steve. And, and <laughs> look that one up. <laughs> yeah, and this activated ability: discard a card with converted mana cost X: colon counter target spell with converted mana cost X. Period. Twelve, twelve. Causalect the Great Distortion is possibly the most broken Eldrazi if you can manage to get him on the stack. <laughs> yeah. Never mind in play, which we'll talk oh. about. But drawing until you have seven, that's insane. Well, I, That's insanely good. I don't necessarily agree with you. I, I, Well, first of all, I'm actually surprised this was suggested because I would not have even put this up for discussion. I don't feel it's that playable at all. Fair um, enough. But I, I feel like that other Eldrazi, the most famous one, Emrakul, Emrakul where yeah. you get Time Walk and then has Annihilator is actually better because then the then drawing up to seven because so first of all this even if you get him on the stack he's not going to be drawing seven cards 100 percent of the time he's going to be drawing on on average less than seven <laughs> so <laughs> you know but i feel like the annihilator mechanic and the time walk in the automatic 15 damage is just better than drawing up to seven here um yeah that's fair yep that's my opinion on that and um but he also doesn't have the built-in protection that that Emrakul has. Emrakul is larger, and Emrakul 
I believe, has like protection from colored spells, right? Yes. So what is the actual form of protection it has? Is it called protection from color? It, it is exactly as you said, protection from colored spells. Colored spells. Yeah. So this can be plowed. This can be, you know, whatever. Sure, you can discard a card. And it, it's nice that the refill will help you do that. Um, to counter spells, um, but yeah, I, uh, I I don't see this as being very useful in any possible regard. So go ahead. Why was it included? Well, what what was the impetus for including? Well, was this a Twitter recommendation or is this one of your selections? It is both. Okay. Now I think you're underselling the protection that Kozilek provides. For one, right? You you said this guy can be plowed. Kozilek can be plowed. I guess you could discard a card to counter that. <laughs> well, you just filled your hand well, up to seven cards. Plowed. It doesn't mean he will be, I, but he can be. I know. I'm mocking. You just dis, you just drew up to seven cards, and you're playing a vintage deck. And the notion that you that your opponent is going to be able to deal with your Kozilek, I think, is not in their favor by a long shot. Let's just put it that way. Because if you didn't draw a simple one mana spell that counters that plow, then maybe you drew Black Lotus and Time Walk, you know? Maybe you drew Force of Will or two. Maybe you drew Ancestral Recall that you'd rather just cast than than all these things. My point is simply that the combination of the two abilities on Kozilek, I think, is actually more powerful than a time walk plus an attack step that you get from Emrakul. Well, that, of course, is doubles as removal for six permanents. Well, let's put that aside then for a second. Or splitting hairs, though, no, really. They're let's, both let's say, Yeah, let's say it's comparable. I think It's that, comparable. Let's yes. say it's comparable. I think that Emrakul still has the edge by being a flyer. This 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 um, form of evasion is not as powerful. Well... I, I mean, that, for example, I have that's... actually seen Emrakul in Legacy years ago now fly mm-hmm. over a moat. And okay. this cannot. This does not. And Moat actually sees play. Um, <laughs> it, how often does Moat see play in Vintage? Well, it, not it, much. A lot more than it used to in the past, which was almost zero. You know, uh, and it is still almost zero. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to let our audience think that they need to be playing around Moat in Vintage right no, now because but, you don't. But you can Jace you this thing. You can't Jace whatever. So yes, you can. You can Jace Emrakul the Aeon's Torn, but it's difficult because you were attacked for fifteen and sacked six permanents before you got the chance to. But let's talk about how mu- how Emrakul is played, okay, sure. and how much so, Emrakul oh, is played, oh, yeah. which are two related questions. Yeah. How is Emrakul played? Well, he's played in an Oath deck almost exclusively, almost exclusively, and usually he's not cast. And with Shell and Tau. He's ca- he, when he's played, he's played. Which is the same deck. Yeah. Yeah. So Emrakul's not going on the stack today in Vintage. I mean, no. it's just that just doesn't happen. No. The way that it could maybe happen is with an enormous mana drain <laughs> or, or with Channel. Channel does not play in anybody's deck. Channel was used in that deck yeah. at one point. So. Channel is about as common as Moat is, maybe a little less. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible, but it's not. these cards are not going to make Channel it's suddenly play. It's interesting that, that to know that Channel generates cast colorless, colorless mana. Yeah. Yes, we should talk about that, but... What I'm getting at is more along the lines of Kozilek is comparable to Emrakul in terms of his power, right? I'm not putting one over the other. Let's just end it at comparable. His power and toughness is comparable, 12 versus 15. Okay, you're still killing in two hits. His defensive ability is comparable in that very hard to remove, is he? Okay. Okay, with a spell. Yeah. Well, hard to remove with a spell. There's a lot of comparables here that are accumulating. What? Look, I'm, we're, we're, it's, we're talking qualitative things here, right? We're never going to come out to equalities. Okay, sorry. But there's a... There's, there's a big difference. Yeah. There's two big differences. The One is that um, the, the evasion is comparable too. Oh, I don't agree with that. Menace lying. in vintage. 
Menace and Flying are very comparable. What flyers are blocking Emrakul and Vintage? Tokens are ubiquitous at this point. Wait, what what kind of tokens? Tokens are ubiquitous in the format. And so the capacity to have two blockers, which is what I understand Menace to do, is not even close to as good as flying. Menace, okay. Yeah. I think, okay. I think, ev- I think, I think it's not comparable. I think that the, it's, there's a chasm between flying and menace. All right. That's, that's fine. I'll grant you that. Flying is considerably better than menace, but menace is still a form of evasion. Sure. So there's that. But I, I just want to go back to drawing several cards, drawing three to four cards, maybe five, you know, that's super powerful in vintage. Time walk is also super powerful, but you get one for a far lower cost than the other. Kozilek costs fully five yeah. mana less than Emrakul does. Yeah. That's, he costs 66% yeah. as much as <laughs> Emrakul. Yep. And if we're talking about casting the spell, yeah. Kozilek wins hands down. Just, well, it's, it's not even, well, hold on, hold on. It's, you it need is, an engine to cast Emrakul. You just need a good setup to no, cast Kozilek. We did not mention this in our discussion of colorless, but you should have pointed right. this out that mana okay. drain generates colorless, not generic. That is Landstill. Not only not only does Landstill typically run ten colorless land library, four strip, four, one waste, one library, um, yep. and four factory, but it also often runs multiple mana drains, if not the full yep. four. So yep. Landstill can. But I do think that although this costs five mana less than uh, Emrakul, the colorless is not trivial here. No, but I was going to say based, uh, something you said just now, I was going to say something very similar, which is how would you facilitate getting to 10 mana in Vintage, right? Mana and drain. the answer the answer very powerfully hinges on mana drain, right? So I, be- I firmly believe, oh, okay, also, how would you facilitate getting to 10 mana? If you're playing a big blue deck, it would be a combination of mana drain and artifact mana, right? So we're invariably talking about Sol Ring, Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, those three, maybe some Grim Monolith, perhaps, all of which will facilitate the colorless requirement of Kozilek. Mana Drain will as well. And if you're trying to go crazy, it might be also um, do-do-do-do channel. Also, again, trying to go crazy, it might be Omniscience. And, oh, I yeah, mentioned Om- and I mentioned Omniscience yeah. specifically because, in my opinion, this goes back to why I think this oh, card is more powerful. I would much rather cast a Kozilek oh. with an Omniscience oh, than yeah. I would an Emerald. You, you have yeah. stumbled onto a particular and it actually had not occurred. That's, sorry, and, and I took, I'm sorry it took me so long to get here, but yeah, this is what I wanted to talk about. about. I think getting to this point. point geez. Yeah. Well, I, no, you I, kept challenging me on so much stuff. <laughs> well, it's because I think that all the points that you made up until now were wrong, but no. No, I, I mean, I, I think that overall, I mean, let me just let me just tally. You know, I don't okay. think that I, I think that flying is far superior to menace. I think that okay. a combination of time walk and annihilator just crushes the the drawing up to seven. Not crushes, but I think it's strongly. It's I think it's just superior to. But and I can, think can that, we? I think can you? Do you really feel that way if you have omniscience in play? No, no, no that's why I'm. I'm, I'm going to get to that. So okay. And I, okay, okay. And I also think that the protection from colored spells is better than you know whatever the the ability this has in terms of protecting itself. Although it clearly can use that for other purposes. But but 
if you're talking about abusing omniscience, drawing seven new cards with this card, this card not only is a threat with omniscience, but it allows you to continue to combo out with omniscience in ways that Mm -hmm. no other Eldrazi I've even heard of could possibly do. So I Mm -hmm. think that um, I think you've stumbled onto a really fascinating and important interaction here that leads me to if you're going to build a deck with omniscience, I would definitely 100% play this card um, over Emrakul. Isn't to say I wouldn't run Emrakul, but this card's just better. Okay. I think that this deck that we're theorizing about, which we do all the time in our set reviews, this deck is fraught with pitfalls, (laughs) right? There's a reason why Show and Tell and OmniScience are not very popular in vintage today it's well, because I they're easy like, to disrupt i feel like i've seen recent omniscience decks in vintage yeah there have been a few there have been a few it's non-zero and and so such a deck could also still be an oath deck for example you could still be oathing up Kozilek if you wanted to i believe oathing it into play is still a very powerful control mechanism yeah but if you're not drawing the cards it's weaker than emrakul I'll, I'll grant you that if you're not casting it i'd rather have emrakul in play i think um because harder to remove as you said and also the attack is so much more devastating from Emrakul. But, you know, this hybrid deck, which we've seen in a couple times in different uh, derivations before, the hybrid of Oath, Show and Tell, Omniscience, Eldrazi has been done in a few different ways. If you're banking a little bit more on casting this, the Eldrazi, then I think that deck actually gets a little bit better of a plan B by way of Mana Drain into the Eldrazi. I, I think that's a little bit better than some things we've seen in the past. Mana Drain and Show and Tell have not overlapped very much, no. oddly. No, no, you, you, that's a pretty, that's a pipe dream. <laughs> <laughs> but if your Show and Tell target is happens to be castable, you know, in in corner cases, not reliably, but in corner cases, then you're better off that way. There have been some very interesting decks on the Mana Drain, for example, uh, that were humorously titled Sphinx Tribal that would have Consecrated Sphinx and Sphinx of the Steel Wind and your and, and your show and telling them into play. At the time, the deck was designed to abuse the fact that Consecrated Sphinx was just way powerful and hard to deal with for most vintage decks. Yeah. Um, but So that notion of show and tell being used for some alternate means is, is not foreign to the format. <clears throat> I don't think this deck is going to blaze any trails. I don't think this is a new dominant deck in the format. Yeah. But I do think, as much as we've seen Emrakul in Vintage, I think there's a chance that you'll see Kozilek, this Kozilek in a similar amount. And I think the card draw is really the thing that does it. Because as you know, there's been other Eldrazi between Kozilek, Ulamog, and Emrakul. Well, only one Emrakul so far. But the other three, uh, two Ulamogs and a Kozilek before this, uh, were not enticing enough. They just were not exciting enough to mana drain into or show until into play. This one is a different story. Fair enough. Also, you could... Go ahead. ahead. No, finish your thought. Um... It, I'm just thinking about the mana base, you know, so we're talking about potentially a big blue deck that has all the artifact accelerants. Such a deck would almost certainly have access to Tinker and or Tezzeret and Key Vault, because Tezzeret is another way that you could power out this Kozilek. Imagine, for, if you will, if you play a, if you play Tezzeret and you have, say, a Mana Vault and maybe one other Mox, then Tezzeret basically taps for four mana. So it's not it's not out of the question for you to have Mana Vault, Mox, and two lands. Blue, blue, four, plus another four, 
uh, six of that being colorless from Mana Vault, there's your Kozilek. I mean, that's that's a, actually a pretty aggressive play. That's in theory, that's a... not can't really do it on turn two because you'd have to have tapped your Mana Vault to play Tezzeret first. But that's like a turn three or four-ish kind of play Aaron. in theory. Yeah. But that play also assumes you had Tezzeret in play. <laughs> and so the notion that you had Tezzeret... Anyway, I, I'm going too far down the rabbit hole. The point is Tezzeret also facilitates extra mana in a pinch. Uh, maybe your Time Vault's already been removed, but Tezzeret's still there. Maybe that. Yeah, so... Th- to bring it home, I think the, the, the home for this would be a show-and-tell deck with Omniscient. The mm-hmm. question is, how much better would this make the, this card make that deck? And what is the viability of that strategy right now? I don't know the answers to either one of those questions. Although I feel more confident about the first one. I think it probably makes it marginally better, but not significantly. Yeah, and it like, as I said... Not hugely, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to put it. Yep. So let's get to predictions then. I think we've talked enough about this card. Would you like to go first? Well, do we have any numbers on show-and-tell decks appearing in vintage top eights? That would be my baseline. Yes, according to TC decks, which is our recently adopted source for top eight appearances, looks like show-and-tell in vintage put up three top eights in December. Before that, three in November, four in October. So it's an occasional an occasional appearer. And in every every one of those cases, it was an Oath deck. So we're talking about, no, no surprise, we're talking about putting in Gristlebrand. But a few of those lists have Emrakul in them. Some of those show-and-tell lists have multiple Emrakuls in them. In fact, some of them are more like a Golden Gun style that has a Dragon Breath or, or two in there. Uh-huh. Maybe some Light Steel Colossus. So the use case is out there. Um, but as I've put forth this notion of a deck that's going to possibly cast uh, this Kozilek, most of those decks, in fact, not, I've looked up several of them, and none of them have any mana drains. So none of them are going the Omniscience show-and-tell route. These are just Oath decks that are trying to cheat in a Gristlebrand or an Emrakul. Okay. If you look at appearances of Omniscience in Vintage, the scene is a lot less rosy the last one was in september before that there were a couple in july i mean it is a an unusual strategy there was a bit of a flurry of it in oath decks in the summer in june and july but it's been has fallen out of favor okay so what's your conclusion then in terms of comment my conclusion is that this card might revitalize appearances of omniscience and it might turn some would-be oath players in the direction of mana drain, maybe, maybe a little, t- maybe a little bit of Tezzeret action. That sounds pretty speculative. Making them a little bit more controlling, but yeah, whether or not it's well positioned, I don't think that strategy is well positioned because at the moment the format has gotten quite fast with Dark Petition Storm and facing off against workshops. That you know that dichotomy is defining the metagame at the moment. Uh, oath has traditionally been good against workshops, but you have to really modify and tweak Oath for it to be able to fight Dark Petition Storm powerfully. And this Kozilek business does not help you fight on that axis at all. Now, Omniscience is pretty good to have in play against a combo deck, don't get me wrong, but Omniscience making you cast your spells doesn't mean your deck is already equipped to fight the powerful onslaught that is Thoughtseize into Probe into kill you. <laughs> okay, so what's your prediction? My prediction is... I'm just going to go with one. I think someone will try it. I'm on the same boat. I think someone will try it and have a little bit of success. It's not going to take over the metagame. Let's talk about another colorless spell. This one, Spatial Contortion. For 1C, instant, target creature gets plus 3, minus 3 until end of turn. The obvious comparison for this spell is Dismember. And the reason I think a lot of people on Twitter asked us for us to talk about it is because it could be, it could be, the Dismember that workshops get to play without paying a whole bunch of life, right? 
Yeah, I think I think um, that we should also review Warping Whale with this card. Um, That's fair. You know, it's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, but this card obviously brings. I think is probably the question more into focus. Workshops. So I I don't know exactly what the size of the vintage card pool is right now. It's probably like over three thousand, less than fourteen thousand cards. <laughs> and out of all of those cards, the number of cards that are considerations for workshop play are not that great. I mean, you're talking about like 150 cards at most, around 150 cards, including you know artifacts and colorless spells. And I think that what's significant is that these cards automatically go to that list. So, you know, you mentioned Dismember, but think about what is the complete range of removal spells in colorless. You know, historically, you've had cards like Serrated Arrows, which <laughs> appear every once in a while. You've got Duplicant. And then the most popular of late is, of course, been Dismember, but not the only one. This card is another option. It may mm-hmm. not be great. We don't know. We haven't evaluated it. But it is another option. So it's significant for that reason, if nothing else. So if you're a workshop player and you have the, your, your, I don't know, binder of complete playables, and you're always trying to tune for the metagame, this is a card I would add to the list. Yeah. Well, I agree with you there. Comparing it specifically to Dismember, though, I would say the opportunity cost of not paying the four life, which is usually four life, occasionally two if you find your Jet or Lotus, as compared to adding a mana to the spell. Yep. Uh, how many times have you seen a workshop player that had access to black mana still only pay one for their for their Dismember because it was necessary or the right thing to do? I believe the difference in mana cost eclipses very powerfully the notion of saving some life. And if you factor in the, the additional two toughness of, of removal, which is occasionally relevant, I think you still land on Dismember is going to make the cut over Spatial Contortion every time. Well, I think that you're framing the issue as one of between Dismember and Spatial Contortion. I don't think that's necessarily fair. First of all, you can run both. Secondly, true. Secondly, this member is strictly a removal spell, whereas this actually can enhance creatures that you have in play and make so it's a little bit more versatile as well. Mm, true. You can finish a race faster with this. Yeah. Um. So you can finish what? A race. A race. Said, yes. Yeah. You can finish a race faster. So I think I don't think that it's I don't think it can be framed in either simplistic way. I think. Um. Look. I don't know how many dismembers workshop players run, but I think it's probably three or four in many cases. You could it imagine is. running three or four, four dismembers in one of these. I think that's entirely, entirely reasonable. Or three dismembers in two of these, you know, because of the versatility question. So, you know, um, anyway, you know. Well, uh, like, for example, let me just ask this question because it has not occurred to me until this point. But if you were to play this on your own 4-4 trike, um, would you be able to attack with the, what would it be then? It would be the 7-3 trike and then remove all four counters? Or would it you die as a state-based effect? You could put all the removals on the stack simultaneously, right? I'm I'm not following your scenario again. Try Try again. Attacking with Trike. It's a 4-4. Four, four. Yeah, you pump it with this. Okay, it becomes 7-1. Yeah, you deal all the damage. You, as soon as you remove the first counter, it becomes a 6-0 and dies as a state-based effect, yes. Okay, so you wouldn't be able to remove the remaining counters. Yeah. Anyway, right. um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm saying, you know, the point is, the point is that, um, what I'm getting at, though, is that I think I think this is serious consideration. It's not as easily easy to play as Dismember, but it strikes me as really powerful. I mean, first of all, it takes out opposing Lodestone Golems. It can't obviously will likely take out almost always take out a uh, Pyromancer, and it can often destroy 
monastery mentor. Mm -hmm. It also can deal with menacing things like, for example, it can kill a um, a kataki, which, by the way, warping whale can also destroy. Yeah, it can kill death red shamans. I mean, there are a lot. It's, it's. I think it's pretty dang good. So. I mean, you're not going to get any uh, disagreement from me on the fact that there are relevant targets for this. But how often are you going to be unable to cast this because you don't have colorless mana and or you can't pay the two mana because you've got a sphere in play or a lodestone? Well, you already said that um, 58% of the mana in workshops can play this. So that concerns Grant. me less than, you know, whatever. Um, and right, but okay, hold on, though. You you drew that that workshop emerald wasteland draw that i mentioned before but you played lodestone on turn one now you need to draw a third land in order to be able to cast this whereas you can cast dismember that's what i'm talking about you have the colorless mana but this thing costs three under a lodestone yeah there's no doubt that this is more difficult to cast but it's also true that there are limits to to casting dismember i mean life is one of them so that's that's well that's the first thing i started out with i believe that the mana cost greatly overshadows the life cost yeah um well that's fair now I, let's yeah i mean i think that this, i i suspect that this can be fairly consistently cast i mean two mana is not i mean it, first of all in the workshop mirror you often sideboard out your you often sideboard out your spheres so granted granted but we're in the mirror yeah in the mirror this card is probably a little easier to cast for the reasons we just mentioned because all the as many spheres as possible come out but let me put another comparison to you. A quick analysis of TC decks, TC decks top eights looking for dismember appearances that were in workshop decks shows that dismember only made top eight appearances in workshop decks very little at the end of last year. Twice in December, twice in October. Of those four lists, only one of them had more than one dismember. Really? It was Mickey Mars' list, but he was in 11th place, so that's not even a top eight list. Sorry, there were only three in the fourth quarter of last year dismembers in workshop decks and only let me see yeah two of those had one in the sideboard and one of those was a was a dark depths workshop deck which is unusual in many ways so almost doesn't bear analysis for this purpose so dismember in workshops is both not very common right now and played in low numbers in q4 of 2015 well, I'm surprised it's, to hear you say that. Honestly, I'm really. Surprised. Uh, well, it's because it's because Forge Master disappeared. Workshops were required to play Dismember when Forge Master was the thing, and since that stopped being the case, they've just eschewed Dismembers in great numbers. Yeah, back in back in June, July, August, it was very common for there to be four Dismembers in your sideboard because of the Forge Master, but not anymore. Any more, Dismember is showing up far more in fish decks and a little bit of Grixis. And as we said in the beginning part of the show, in order for you to cast a card like Warping Whale or Spatial Distortion, excuse me, Contortion, in a deck that's base blue, you're going to have to dramatically you know, change your mana base if you want I, to. I really don't agree with that. I mean, first of all, <clears throat> we, we, I think we're, we neglected to discuss Merfolk. In our okay. discussion, but Merfolk okay. often runs four Cavern of Souls. Yep, can, nine nine lands. It also often runs four Wastelands and a Strip Mine, and it often runs Mutavolt. Not more than nine of those in total. Well, if they run Mutavolt, they're not running Cavern. Mutavolt is better than Factory because it's. With, I understand. Yeah, I and mean, because it is of Merfolk. But you're still talking about a little less than fifty percent of your mana base. So, and as I said about workshops, um. 
so many of those lands, about half of those, are you're using for their spell-like abilities. So you don't want to keep a wasteland in play casting spells. You want to sacrifice it. Um, yeah, I, I think Merfolk is a strategy that could use could play this card fairly reliably. Yeah. Um, and because it's mono-blue, there isn't a lot of other removal besides Dismember. Does Merfolk use Dismember? Yes. Merfolk is the most popular Dismember archetype in in Q4 of 2015. It probably would not replace Dismember for this, but it could supplement Dismember. With- well, okay, that's true. Most of those fish decks are not playing four Dismembers, though. You just can't make that much room, really. But it, you, it doesn't have to be four, so your point is well made. I just can't get past the notion of mana cost being so critical. One of the reasons why Merfolk plays Dismember is because of Lodestone Golem. And I am, you just, I just can't bring myself to add a, uh, a mana to my anti-Lodestone technology just to save some life. <laughs> Four life is no slouch, don't get me wrong, but it's going to be the difference between winning and losing a game in the wrong direction if you just let that Lodestone hit sit out there for one more turn. Is there any instance in which the being colorless matters with respect to this over dismember well protection sure yeah um can you think of a protection from black creature that sees play in vintage right now i don't think there is one sphinx has protection from green and red um there was one other example i think we came up with when we started talking about devoid but i'm blanking on it right now so the short answer is no i mean none of none of workshops creatures oh it was the sword in workshop sort of fire and ice so protection from red or blue um so the short answer is very very little if any you're still going to be able to kill lodestone young pyromancer mentor uh most of hangerback walker and ravagers out there triskelion yeah fair enough Three toughness has, is pretty good in terms of being able to eliminate creatures and vintage these days, but the current crop of workshop decks can can stymie you with Ravager and Trike is a four four inherently as we described earlier. So there are a few things that Dismember will more reliably kill in the workshop archetype. Also, you mentioned you bring up Merfolk. Merfolk's creatures can get huge and out of hand <laughs> relatively quickly. Dismember is a far more reliable removal against them as well. In that context of there being two or three lords in play, I just I think we've elucidated the issues well enough. You are correct in that this spell is playable. It has plenty of targets, and if your deck is constructed with it in mind, you can get it onto the stack reliably. Yep. I just think it's a little less reliable than you would like, meaning you'll have hands in these wasteland decks that can cast Spatial Contortion, but they're giving up a turn of tempo to do so because of the reliance on wasteland for mana. Uh, And I think that's a game-losing proposition in a lot of cases because, you know, these these tempo decks are on a razor's edge in terms of keeping your opponent off mana. So I don't think it's ever going to happen. I really don't. I think everyone's going to try it and land on Dismember in the end. Yeah, Dismember is such a powerful card, but, you know... um... I'm trying to imagine reasons to run. You know, one reason would be Chalice on two, but Chalice is now restricted. Remember, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, before concluding our discussion of this card, I think we should just touch on Warping Whale. Warping Whale. Yeah. So the, the the one toughness creatures that, that it hits, we've already mentioned a lot oh, of them. Hold on, we haven't actually read the text of Warping oh, Whale. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's 1C instant. Choose one. Exile target creature with power or toughness, one or less counter target sorcery spell or put a 1-1 colorless Eldrazi Scion into play that sacks for a mana. Three modes. Exile a creature with power or toughness of one. 
counter a sorcery or make an Eldrazi Scion. Right. For the same mana cost as Spatial Contortion, which is 1C. So the cards that it hits, um, we've named a lot of them. It can hit mm-hmm. a Pyromancer. It can destroy an unflipped Delver of Secrets. Mm-hmm. It, it, sorry, it doesn't destroy. It doesn't hit. It exiles. <laughs> it exiles, which is even better. Even better. A Katak, <laughs> if you're a workshop player. Um, I'm trying to imagine what other relevant... Deathrite Shaman, which is rare lately. No, no, Deathrite Shaman's at 1-2. Yeah, it's power or toughness of Oh, one. my God. Goodness, sorry, I misread. You're right. That, this is, this is the, so dark it, it's Metalworker. Yeah, Metalworker. It's a 1-1 one, one Hanger really, Back or Ravager. Wow, really Although good. Ravager is never going to Even happen, better than but. I thought. <laughs> um, so. mm. It hits Phyrexian Revoker. Yeah, that, I, that was definitely one of my cards. I um, what I was what I was going to say is the advantage of this particular card over Dismember against Delver decks. If you're a fish deck, is that you don't have to sacrifice a bunch of life to cast it. If you're in uh-huh. a foot, if you're in a foot race, yep. so and and also the other also, card, the other card in Merfolk, I think is a similar issue. Like if you have multiple lords in play, this it can make your lords five one. Oh no, it can never make something five one, can it? Because it would have to be a three three. So it can makes it can make a four four creature. 6-1. You're talking about Spatial Contortion? Yeah, sorry, I'm flipping back. Oh. It would make a 4-4 four, four creature 7-1. Seven, 7-1, one. Seven, one, sorry. Yep. Yeah, that's the that's a Triskelion example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but going back, you said Warping Whale versus Delver, which I think is possibly its most powerful matchup, really, because yeah. it can kill every creature in that deck, <laughs> unless that deck's paying Mentor. Yeah. And it counters certain key sorceries, you know, Time Walk and, and uh, yeah, Treasure Yeah, you even Cruise. kill Snapcaster, Mage, and Mendelian click. <laughs> yeah. It kills basically every creature that deck plays, as long as that deck's not also playing Mentor. It's also, Warping Whale's also highly relevant in its workshops, yep. especially current workshops, as it pertains to Metalworker, Revoker, Hangerback, and Ravager, but Ravager with a, with an asterisk. Yeah. Now it won't have it won't be able to hit any sorceries against workshops, of course. Um, and also this mode of putting a one one Eldrazi Scion into play, like there there've got to be some really corner cases where that would be the right thing to do. If your opponent's attacking with um, Lodestone Golem and you just need to save the life, you could put the chump block in. So a chumper is pretty decent uh, in that narrow context but it's not great you wouldn't want it for that yeah yeah i wouldn't want this the thing is i wouldn't want this card against workshops right you're only really using one of the modes and in that case a card like spatial contortion is just way better yeah so yeah even though this card has three modes it's terrible against shops yeah but if you're merfolk at least this can counter sorceries too so that means it can stop tinker yogwill can't stop dark petition dark petition yeah and it gets workshops also a way to counter sorcery this is which is very unusual not that workshops (laughs) really need to stop sorceries a lot of times most of the spells that would want to stop are Hercules recall ancient grudge nature's claim things like that yeah kataki it does get rid of kataki though which is huge a little bit of variety yeah kataki is a big big one also in the mirror in the mirror you could make a case that getting rid of revokers and getting rid of one one hanger backs which are unfortunately not very common in the mirror uh, now that I say it, it's not that great. You'd probably just rather have spatial contortion in the workshops. For two mana, workshops' method of countering sorceries is usually just play another sphere. You don't really want to be holding back in shops, especially since Mishra's workshop, the card, can't cast this. And so you're better off spending three mana to play a second thorn or sphere than you are holding up two mana to counter a spell. 
Yeah, I think both of these cards are vintage playable, and they're quite fascinating. Uh, <laughs> they I, really are. I think we've canvassed sort of the range of options here. I don't think I think you know Landstill will continue to want to play engineer explosives and lightning bolts over these, but mer- for merfolk and workshops, these are viable options. By the way, I just think these cards make Cavern of Souls even more attractive and more informative. Uh, that's a fair point. Cavern of Souls becomes a little bit better in almost every way because of these colorless requirements. Like if I wanted to play this spell in Merfolk, of course, but say in Mentor, I've been known to play Cavern of Souls in Mentor. My cavern now taps for more of my spells yeah. than it did before, it should which have, is neat. It should also be mentioned the exiling interferes with Dell and recursion, so that's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you can exile a monk that has maybe a prowess trigger on the stack. Yeah. And Notion Thief. <laughs> Notion Thief is true. Yeah, that's another. Yeah. One way to consider Warping Whale, Steve, I was thinking about, in as it pertains to land still, a, a deck that would really value the versatility of this spell. It might want it because it can do a, a useful thing in multiple matchups. One way to, I think, evaluate a modal spell like this is to consider all the cards it's competing with, that is, in each mode, and then look for decks that do or might play some or all of those cards. The first mode, we've talked about a lot. Exile target creature, right? Toughness to power, one and one So it's competing with the likes of other removal spells, like Plow, Lightning Bolt. It's competing with other two-mana removal spells that we discussed, like Spatial Contortion. It's competing with Dismember. Okay, that's fine. That's, that's a good groundwork for what it's competing with there. Counter-target sorcery spell. Okay, it's competing with most of the cheap counters in the format. Your Fluster Storms, your Mana Drains, your, your Red Elemental Blast. And then putting the 1-1 Chumper into play, it conceptually isn't really competing with anything, but yeah. you see my point. So if you look at those two categories, though, removal and counters. One way to evaluate a modal spell's utility in the format is to look at decks that play all those cards currently. And as it pertains to removal plus counters, well, you're, you're looking at either control or aggro control decks, mostly. You're looking at your Delver or Mentor decks, but you're also looking at control decks like Landstill, a little bit of Grixis. My question then becomes, what kind of deck really wants the versatility as opposed to the pure, the raw power of the cards it's competing with? Delver wants the power, or the tempo, I should say. Delver wants your one mana spells, right? It wants Flusterstorm, it wants Lightning Boulder Plow. It doesn't want to pay two mana for this effect. It can't afford to most of the time. Mentor is in a similar boat. A little bit more expensive in Mentor, but you still want your one mana spells. Landstill, on the other hand is the sort of deck that's looking to soak up a little bit of damage and then buy back tempo in bigger chunks later on with some haymakers in the removal sense. And Landstill might be the sort of deck that would eschew a negate or something like that for a warping whale just just for that effect of being able to have your negate also kill a young pyromancer when when you need to. We've talked a lot about Landstill with this set. I don't know what it is. It's just a combination of all the colorless mana sources plus versatility. Seems like we talk about Landstill a lot when we look for versatile cards in general, but Landstill is just way outside the metagame at the moment. I don't, I don't know if that's convincing to you or anything, but I do feel like that's a, a methodological way to evaluate where you might want this card as it pertains to current deck design. I don't believe this card fits well in Delver, primarily for the mana cost reasons, also for the colorless requirements. Um, it's kind of right out as it pertains to Delver. You're not even playing all the off-color Moxon and Delver already. Rarely are you playing Wastelands. Well, I really like the versatility of this card. There's no doubt about that. And the other card, I mean, Spatial Contortion is also versatile in ways that are more subtle in that mm-hmm. it can be used as removal or offense, mm-hmm. but a little offensive boost. Kind of like a little bloodlust there. Um, <laughs> but 
So I think your point that decks that value or prize that kind of versatility seem like more suitable or natural homes for this. I would be inclined to agree. I think that it's actually this card. The more and more I look at, it, the more I feel like it's still how I felt about Deathrite Shaman. It's incredibly versatile. Nice. As, you know, so I mean, I glossed over the fact that it removes the creature with power or toughness of either one, which gives yeah. it so much more versatility and scope. But the other part that we glossed over is that you can sacrifice the token to generate another colorless. So mm-hmm. you could use this card to ramp up, like on your opponent's end step, to get to ramp up to play a bigger spell. From two to four. Yeah, yeah. two to four. Uh, which is... I, which is interesting. That is a very relevant ramping window as it pertains to Landstill because exactly. of Jace the Mind Sculptor. I, you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, interesting. And the token can also protect the Jace later on. Or you yeah. can put a token into play and then cast Landstill. Wow, simple but relevant. Yeah. I mean, that's a slow clock, but I mean, Landstill decks are capitalized Who on cares? slow clocks for years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still, it, it gives you inevitability, yeah. Well, it's it's not that slow because ostensibly you're going to draw Factory too, right? Yeah. It's not a 20-turn clock. It's be much shorter it okay by by way of comparison because i thought of negate as a comparable to the countering a sorcery part of this i looked up negate on tc decks and in q4 that is october through december of 2015 negate put up one two three four five six seven eight nine ten top eight appearances ten top three appearances for negate and you want to know the archetype that it most popularly appeared in was tesserator Interestingly enough, Tesserator, which is another blue-based, big mana, blue combo control deck that could, maybe doesn't currently, but could have a higher number of colorless mana sources by using things like Mana Vault, which most blue-based control decks do not. And you could tweak, you could clearly tweak the mana base of a Tesserator deck to have more colorless sources in it. If you wanted to, it would take quite a bit. But anyway, yeah. so maybe there's a home in Tesserator that we hadn't considered until just now. Interesting. So you can get rid of you can get rid of Phyrexian Revokers yeah. on your Time Vault or your Tesseret. You can get rid of young Pyromancers or Delvers that are threatening your Planeswalker or just a, a, an early clock. And you've got something that's not totally dead against TPS, so you can counter some some Storm Sorceries. I don't know. It's, it has a place, I think. There's there's one other really minor, potentially huge. Really, <laughs> well, let me rephrase. There's one really small, potentially really significant aspect of this card. Yeah. We should just point out. So, Kevin, you know, you're playing Landstore or whatever, and you have up, like, let's say, a wasteland and a factory. You would never anticipate getting your sorcery countered by this card. Like that's a that's an interesting point. Or just a mana crypt. Yeah, or a mana. Crypt. Your opponent your opponent plays preordain mana crypt go, <laughs> and you're like landmarks time walk, and they tap that mana crypt and counter your sorcery. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is you're right. Counter that's your very, tutor. Counter your. That's very hilarious and satisfying. I love it. That's something people are going to have to get used to. On a similar note, this card plays a little bit of judo against some of the popular counters in the format, namely Mental Misstep and Pyroblast. It sidesteps both of those counter spells, thereby reducing the number of ways your typical, say, Delver or Mentor opponent can interact with this to very few. It, it whittles it down to usually Force of Will and Flusterstorm, with some exceptions like Misdirection or Mindbreak Trap. Right. But yeah, you're cutting off half of your opponent's counter spells frequently because this costs two mana and isn't blue. That's interesting too. Yeah, I mean, if you have one card in your hand, it's this. You would mm-hmm. think that whatever sorcery you're going to play is completely safe. Yeah, I agree. 
Well, this is interesting. I think I think we've I feel like we've hit this one enough. Now, you brought up warping whale before giving me your thoughts on numerical thoughts on spatial contortion. So, are you ready to go for both now? You know, I'm feeling some resistance to being compelled to make predictions here because I feel in both cases both cards are both cards are are uh, playable. playable, but I just it's hard to determine. You know what's funny? I'm feeling reminded of treasure cruise and dig through time right now because i think if warping whale didn't exist i'd be inclined to give spatial contortion a higher number but i can't imagine someone i guess the only deck i can think of would be workshops workshops would probably want spatial contortion over warping whale but most of the blue decks if they're evaluating these two cards are almost certainly going to go with warping whale yeah i agree with I, you but but you know i just don't it's hard for me to understand or conceptualize how much value countering a, a, a sorcery is in workshop decks i mean because most i think it's very low very low uh, what sorcery yeah. removal spells are there i mean is, is pulverize a sorcery yes pulverize balance um yeah i'm kind of because in got sure is not uh, yeah. supreme verdict is technically a sorcery but uncounterable the short answer is very few i mean pulverize yeah, yeah you can counter a pulverize Boy, if only this thing countered instant instead i think it would be <laughs> huge it would work dramatically different conversation yeah. yeah um what's the number of dismembers that have seen play in the last quarter i pulled i was discussing the numbers uh, irrespective of archetype a minute ago but if you're talking about across all archetypes, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 appearances, uh, scratch that, one of those was in January. So technically 10 appearances of Dismember in top 8 in Q4. All right, well, I'll go, I'm going to take, you take this, you're taking the zero on spatial distortion, I'll take the over for sure. It, it's spatial contortion. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> I know, I've made that mistake already. You're going with greater than zero? Okay, that's fine. Absolutely. Warp, warping whale, uh, we've been burned so many times. I know. People, well, I mean, I'm, th- I'm thinking back to Rakdos Charm and yeah. Kolagon's Command. Those, I mean, Those have complex mana requirements. Isn't to say that Colorless... <laughs> so does this. Yeah, it's not to say that Colorless isn't, but it is simpler. And, and... Simpler, yeah. Closer to, yeah. I don't I don't think mana was the reason that we were burned on those, though, really. Yes, they would have been more played if they had blue in their mana costs, but that's not a real reason. I'm always willing to give a boost to cards that are really flexible, like, though. So. Yeah, and that's I think true. This, oh, and, Warping Whale kills uh, Jace Vryn's Prodigy. Sure does. Wow. All right, I'm going one. <laughs> I'm going to take the over on this one as well. <laughs> going two? Yep. <laughs> All right, that's funny. I, you know... Like with Radiant Flames and many cards in the past, I'm not going to be surprised if I'm wrong on this one. I just don't feel like this is a an obvious choice. I don't think this is a breakthrough card. Judging by how many people requested we talk about Warping Whale on Twitter, though, I'm certain that people are excited about it, trying it. <laughs> Hopefully we'll, we won't disappoint. Yeah. But we, we, you know, so I think the takeaway, you know, the reason we discuss the predictions is to really determine whether a card is actually vintage playable or not and will likely see play. But if you're a deck designer or you're a competitor, I think the point, the takeaway you should take away is mm-hmm. these are the places that we think it might see play. We discuss Merfolk Landstill and workshops. So Yeah, I agree completely. And we started to discuss that more often in past report cards is that our job here of predicting what people will play is a lot harder than determining if a card is playable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The whims of the format are, are fickle. Let's talk about our first surge card. This is Crush of Tentacles. 4UU. Sorcery. Surge. 3UU. Return all non-land permanents to their owner's hands. If Crush of Tentacles' surge cost was paid, put an 8-8 blue octopus creature token onto the battlefield. 
Here's our first opportunity to talk about how easy it is to achieve surge and vintage. But I think we should first talk about the simple utility of return all non-land permanents to their owner's hands. It is quite useful against workshops. Now, this card's difficult to cast against workshops, don't get me wrong, but it's, that's a quite useful effect. We already somewhat have that effect in Hercules Recall and Rebuild, of course, but Return All Permanents, or All Non-Land Permanents to their owner's hand also happens to be reasonably good against, say, Tezzeret, Monastery Mentor, Oath of Druids. This is a this is a generally useful effect in Vintage. Could you clarify the surge thing in this question? In this case, does this does it do you count as a teammate? Well, yes and no. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to answer that. No, you're not your own teammate. Okay. But the, the 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 ability says if you or a teammate has cast another spell this turn. Okay. So, so you're not your own teammate, but you still mox. satisfy surge. Yeah, yeah. So if you go to Taxian Probe or a Mox, you can. Mm-hmm. So I'm of the opinion that this effect is worth considering in Vintage. It's kind of a catch-all, board control effect. It gets rid of everything from Delver of Secrets to Lodestone Golem to Crystal Brand to Jace the Mind Sculptor. I mean, there's a lot. Vintage is heavily permanent-based in terms of utility and win conditions. It's not going to be very good against Storm. I'll give you that. I'm not going to want to use in after sideboard against Dark Petition Storm. And the bouncing permanence is already a very common tactic in Vintage. I already mentioned Hercules Recall. Rebuild sees a, little, a lot less played than Hercules, but it's still played. Then there's uh, Chain of Vapor, which is quite common in certain uh, decks like Storm and Dredge. And then there's a couple of corner cases of, boy, it's been a while, but um, oh, there was another blue instant. I'm, bl- I'm just blanked on the name of it that bounced a permanent. Anyway, Jace the Mind Sculptor also famously bouncing permanents. So returning stuff to people's hands, relatively common. No one, though, is paying this much mana for it. That's not no true. one's paying five or six mana yeah. to bounce permanence. I mean, five or six mana is what you pay when you're casting Hercules Recall and your opponent has Lodestone and two spheres in play. Yeah. <laughs> you know. uh, so a spell that costs this much mana for this purpose is almost entirely unheard of in Vintage. Five mana and six mana are not unheard of in Vintage. You know, Tezzeret at this mana cost for Surge. At six mana, there's far fewer, but you've got Consecrated Sphinx, Yawgmoth's Bargain, a few things. I believe, though, that Surge has some implications in terms of mana costs that we've already hinted at already. It, you already listed some of the, the two top, I think, cases, and I think far away Surge would be facilitated by these two car- uh, cards, and those are Gataxian Probe and Moxen. So that, I, I think that goes without saying in Vintage. If you're trying to facilitate Surge, you're going to be doing that. I think probably a distant third place would be Gush, and then in 4th through 10th place, there's a logjam of things you could be playing. You could be dressing your opponent, you could be playing uh, Mana Vault, you could be playing Sol Ring, you could be playing Deathrite Shaman, any number of 1-mana spells. But a 1-mana spell does not facilitate the Surge on this card very much at all, Mana Vault notwithstanding, because you're basically paying the 6-mana of its mana cost. <laughs> but you're still getting the 8-8 Octopus, though, so sometimes it'll just be the right thing to do. Playing Deathrite Shaman and then casting this is not a sin, it's not a combo, but it's kind of like turning Deathrite Shaman into one Golgari mana for an 8-8 octopus, which when you put it in those terms is a good value. <laughs> can you can you clarify something though? Because um, you, your your articulation of the the mana cost, mm-hmm. you are trying to say that the mana cost is way above what's normal for vintage or with, in in line. No, I'm trying to say the mana cost is way above what we're currently paying specifically for bouncing permanence. Yeah. No one pays some, this much mana to bounce things in Vintage. But but simply put, no one plays anything that bounces more than one thing that isn't 
Herkel's recall, basically, in these days. So bouncing non-artifacts, aside from Jace the Mind Sculptor, is, is limited to just spot removal. It's mostly just Chain of Vapor right now. So the notion that you would pay five or six mana to bounce all the permanents is it's anathema to what people are doing with bounce in Vintage right now. Well, Kevin, the card that jumps into my mind when I think of this kind of effect is, dev- it, is Devastation Tide. The Miracle, I thought it would. Yeah. Which didn't see any play, basically. Yeah. Almost none. Because the Miracle, I mean, there are more ways in Vintage in the last couple of years than there have been a long time with Chase Burns Prodigy, mm-hmm. Top, uh, Preordain, Gush. To Miracle, yeah. Yeah, what was the one you said? The, the Miracle. I yeah. just said Two yeah. Miracle. Yeah, two, There's more ways to Two Miracle. And two mana. Um, yeah. and, you, and importantly, the Miracle can be done at instant speed. Sure, if you have that drawing ability, yeah, which you do. <laughs> right, which is, I think, really big deal. So... Um, but you know, Fair eight point. eight and eight eight, to- an eight token is not a is no small thing either. I I would posit not that this is to contradict what you've just said, but this card, Crush of Tentacles, can be used far more proactively than any other bounce can really, because if you just you just accelerate your hand out and do this on turn one, then you're doing it more for the eight eight and minor disruptive abilities to your opponent if they went first, uh, than than the defensive part. So. That's part of this card also. Because any deck that's used to being able to cast Tezzeret, for example, Tezzerator, it's a common deck in the format these days, and has been for years. Um, any deck that can do that can, with just a, a really slight tweak in either build and or play, can facilitate a five mana surge. It's not it's not a given. I mean, Tezzeret has to deploy its mana just like any other deck. But there are plenty of scenarios where you buy your Tezzerator deck could just go, yeah. you know, turn two or three, play a Mox, surge this card. Well, Workshops does, I mean, TP, sorry, Combo does it all the time. Gitaxi, oh, sure. Dark Petition. Yep, they're doing it to, to facilitate Spell Mastery, of course, with Dark Petition, but it's, it's mechanically almost identical, yeah. So Dark Ritual and this card are good friends, right? You're turning Blue Blue, or uh, B-U-U, into Return All Permanence 8-8 Octopus. That's pretty cool. Same goes for Black Lotus, of course. Yeah, what's interesting is against Workshops, because Workshop decks are just work, artifacts and lands. You know, Hercules Recall is functionally the same thing. I think that was the point you were getting at earlier. Yeah, yeah this card is not at its best against Workshops, because it's going to cost three or four more mana than the Hercules, of course. Hercules is not uh, as popular right now or for the last year as it had been in past years for some yeah. reason. I mean, I've always been on the Hercules train, but it's it's down in terms of sideboard appearances. And I would posit that any deck that would play this Crush of Tentacles would probably still have access to some Hercules. This is not a four of in yeah. Vintage, I don't think. So This is a corner case you know, role player in terms of disrupting certain permanent base strategies and having a win condition in theory. So the question is, if you crush, I mean, obviously returning land, all permanence has limited value in vintage. But if you, so first of all, you need to make sure it's asymmetrical as possible. You don't want to be returning like five lands and your opponent returning two. No, no, it's not lands. It's non-land. Oh, sorry, non-land permanence. So it's not upheaval, right? You don't want to be returning a whole bunch of other permanents. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, you're not talking about a heavy permanent based deck. Right. And then the other other flip side of it is what's the value of an 8 token i don't know <laughs> i don't know i mean it sounds like it could be really good. i think an 8 token is quite valuable these days yeah. very difficult for a workshop deck to deal with if you have just returned all their permanents to their hands you know yeah they're gonna have to commit two to three cards to deal with an 8-8 uh, uh equipment notwithstanding you know sort of fire and ice does just fine against an 8-8 blue octopus but if you if you can cast this spell against workshops 
<laughs> my opinion is that you're way ahead. Um, that may be an oversimplification, but I would gladly be able to cast this spell against workshops all the time. I don't even need the 8-8. I just want to be able to do this. I'm probably okay. <laughs> right. But I'm, I'm being glib. This is not a good anti-workshop card. If you got to this point, count yourself lucky, but it's probably because you drew all your other sideboard cards <laughs> that you were able to do this. <laughs> I do think even resolving this card is not going to be simple. Five mana is a huge investment. It's not going to be yeah. easy to protect. No, but that's, that's, that is to say vintage decks these days currently rely on certain key five mana spells, like Dark Petition, like Tezzeret. I mean... You don't want this in a Dark Petition deck necessarily. That's not. I'm not saying it doesn't overlap with that deck's goals very well. But the point is, is that five mana at sorcery speed is not uncommon right now. So where would this be played? Like a new blue deck, a Tesserator, I think, Tesserator, I think, <laughs> Well, I think you preemptively answered that question when you said you don't want to be returning a whole lot of your own stuff to your hand. So this is reused easily, like with a with a Mox Opal. Well, or any Mox, right? Yeah. So if you're facilitating surge with mana-producing artifacts, then those artifacts are going back to your hand to be redeployed. So there's that. If you go Mox Crush, you're picking that Mox up. You're going to play it again. So any zero mana thing you did to facilitate the surge, it's kind of like it just untaps when you cast this, right? So there's that. There's that element. So you could be playing a deck that just had lots of easy to deploy things like Accelerance and uh, Sensei's Divining Top and that kind of stuff. You're right about the creatures, though. Any deck that played this is almost certainly going to be very light on creatures. So you're probably talking about more of a combo control kind of deck. Yeah, like Tesserator. Like Tesserator. Uh, now, this is not good synergy with Tezzeret himself, unfortunately, but but yeah. there is a corner case, though, because Tezzeret can facilitate getting to the five on the surge uh, by untapping artifacts. Now, you might say, well, you've got Tezzeret in play. Of course you've got five. Yeah, well, not necessarily. You might have done it with Mana Vault. You might have done it with Black Lotus. You uh, Also, Tezzeret in this, again, assuming your Tezzeret combo has been disrupted anyway, uh, Tezzeret in this could be a backup plan, in theory. I don't think this goes well in anything like Delver or Mentor. No. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at combo control probably. It doesn't. I don't think it goes well in Landstill either because Landstill doesn't accelerate very well, and also Landstill tends to rely on certain key permanents to survive. One thing, like Jace. One thing that concerns me in playing this like in a Tesserator deck mm-hmm. is Mentor is that if you bounce Mentor and tokens and return all the permanents to the opponent's hand, they're mm-hmm. going to get to generate so many Mentor tokens. It's going to be crazy. I think that's a good risk, yeah. Yeah. If you bounce two Moxen and a mentor, you're you're just they're just gonna replace those monks. <laughs> it might so, be more monks than before. Yeah, that's true. So where would you want this effect outside of against workshops? It's it's a tempo play against work against mentor, right? Yeah. You play this, they redeploy their mentor and get two or three monks. You're yeah, swinging with an eight eight Delver deck. Into... Those aren't very popular right now. It buys you a turn against Oath, but but just yeah. one turn, you're not going to win fast enough. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you're right. It, buy, it basically buys you one turn. It's one case where the the octopus is a liability against Oath. Assuming they have Oath in play, you can put it back for one turn, but you're giving yourself a huge creature to allow them to Oath off of. So it's only going to be effective if the eight damage you got once with the octopus was highly disruptive to them. I I don't know. I feel like. <laughs> It's it's like a cop out to say, but if this effect were much cheaper, it could it could fill a role in uh, in more corner cases, I think. But because you have to invest so much, and uh, ironically, because it competes at mana cost with Tezzeret so much, which is just better at ending games. I don't I don't know. If, if there was still a Burning Wish based control deck, <laughs> this might be a thing. Yeah. Right. 
but I don't know. I, I could see it as a one of in some creative sideboards or a one of in some creative main decks. You, it's it's ironic. An eight eight blue octopus may not be a good enough creature in vintage right now either. Yep. To sink five or six mana into. Yeah. Because young pyromancer and mentor trumpet so nicely. Yep. I agree. Yeah. It's a fun it's a fun exercise, but I'm gonna go with zero. I'm gonna I'm gonna go zero as well. Unfortunately, this is a sorcery and not a creature itself, so you can't yeah. reanimate it or or uh, oath it or um. Try to return it. But you can Snapcaster Mage it. You can Snapcaster <laughs> it, which you will have Surge. <laughs> yeah, that's a reason to do it, too. You want to re Guaranteed Surge for seven mana. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or if you could sneak the Snapcaster in for zero mana, like with Aethervile. There you go. Vile in a Snapcaster. <laughs> surge your Crush of Tentacles in your discard pile. Return your Snapcaster and your Vile to your hand. Yep. Replay the mocks you already had in play. Cast your vial again. Look at the value. Yeah, you have to <laughs> reuse your Snapcaster mage too. <laughs> that's that's hilarious synergy for the low low price of seven mana. You can bounce your own Snapcaster. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I, it's close. I really think it's close. There could be some future point or some future deck that really wants one of these. And maybe bouncing permanents will become a much more valuable thing in the future of vintage. Who knows? But anyone who's looking at this, I think take Steve's advice from earlier in this analysis and take a closer look at Devastation Tide while you're at it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> all the stuff you're doing is probably going to thank you more for paying two mana than five. Are you going with zero, Steve? Yep. You know, it's funny you should mention Snapcaster Mage, because we need to talk about Goblin Dark Dwellers. For 3RR, Creature Goblin, there's Menace again. Look out. Yeah. When Goblin Dark Dwellers enters the battlefield, you may cast Target Instant or Sorcery card with converted mana cost 3 or less from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. If that card would be put into the graveyard this turn, exile it instead. 4-4. So we got ourselves a 5-mana red Snapcaster Mage, but it pays for the spell itself, and the spell can only cost 3 or less. Now, the three or less bit is, in Vintage, I would say, not much of a hindrance, right? Currently, you're Snapcastering almost entirely things that cost three or less. Rarely would you cast Snapcaster something that costs four or more in Vintage. You know, your, your Mental Misstep, your Ancestor Recall, your Time Walk, you're almost always snapping back something that costs three or less. Tinker, occasionally, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not, so that li- yeah, it's not like you're snapping back Gush very often. <laughs> that is rare. Snapback, uh, dig through time might be the biggest exception to that sure. concept, but I'm I'm willing to live without that if the spell is free. So the mana you're dig through you're, time does not cost eight mana. To be clear. No, it does not. <laughs> but you can't goblin dark dwellers a dig through time. So the effect is pretty useful in vintage. Let's just agree on that. This mana cost though, uh, three RR. I'm 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 reaching for a three RR in vintage. Is there anything? I. I feel like I'm missing something. Look at my. Chest. I feel like I'm missing something obvious, but I I, gen, I just generally don't think there is. Oh, ingot chewer is close, right? You know, yeah. you, you you pay full price for an ingot chewer every once in a while. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's not much. I mean, empty the warrens costs four, and that sees play. Yeah. So even though we could find a couple of examples, this mana cost is rough in vintage, right? It's not out of the question. It's uh, it's sort of the same as Tezzeret, but you're gonna have to work harder to get your red. Uh, but it's not game ending like Tezzeret is. We look for our five and six mana spells in vintage to be game ending, and this is just value. It's just value. Yeah, it's a lot of value. I mean, it could be a thirst for knowledge. It could mm-hmm. be. It, the thing is, the other thing is, I think a lot of the value from Snapcaster Mage comes from it be having flash, oh, sure. and being able to counter spells. Whereas this. Unless you have Veldok and Ori in play. Right? <laughs> Leyline of Anticipation. 
Yeah. yeah. So it's a lot narrower in that sense. Let's, for the sake of thoroughness, let's talk about decks that cheat things into play. Those are Oath and Dredge, basically. If you Oath this up, it's kind of like the Green Warden of Marasa that we discussed, getting value out of your graveyard. But in this case, yeah, time walk. narrower, yeah. but also free. So you're going to get your Demonic Tutor, Vamp Tutor, Time Walk, Ancestral. Oh, that's interesting. This is another Oath creature that you can play without having Oath. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's one yep. cheaper than the Green Warden in total, although Red Red's... It's like a little bit less the Sun Titan. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> kind of makes kind of begs the question: Has anyone ever built an Oath deck just with Snapcasters? <laughs> just, I mean, have maximal castability of your Oath creatures. Well, remember, uh, Aaron Forsyth built one with Eternal Witness. Yeah. Right. It's been a long time since that. Well, I, I don't. Given all those options we just mentioned, Snapcaster, Eternal Witness, Green Warden, I don't think this is going to revolutionize Oath in any way. I don't think it's playable when none of those other options have been played. Also, it's red and it screws up your mana base even more than those blue and green creatures do. So let's talk about Dredge. Does Dredge want to Dread return this into play and get a free rebuy on something? It's not good to rebuy Cobble Therapy this way. No, Sun Titan allows you to. I mean, those cards. Uh, what's the unearth creature? It allows you to get a bizarre into play. You reuse a bizarre, and then Sun Titan allows you. Yeah, to get Fate, you're talking bizarre. about Fate Stitcher. Yeah. 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 Dredge would pr- almost certainly more l- want to get a permanent, as you just said, via Sun Titan than a spell. They don't even have a spell really that's game breaking. It's what they want their permanents back. So I don't feel like anybody's gonna be cheating in a Goblin Dark Dwellers. And as a creatures yeah, go, I- yes, it's twice as big as a Snapcaster, but you're paying two and a half times as much. And Menace, <laughs> we've already we've already clobbered Menace tonight. But the point is, it, <laughs> it, I think it's better on a Kozilek than it is here. But it's not very impressive on a four-four in Vintage, right? This this yeah. creature still takes several turns to end the game in a vacuum. Decent against workshops, but super hard to cast. So I don't know. Against workshops, this is there's an interesting case to be made for this if you're using spot removal like Nature's Claim or Disenchants against workshops, because this is a creature that effectively multiplies your sideboard cards in that sense. But it's five mana. Even if you resolve the Nature's Claim against them, it's still super hard to pay three RR against shops. I mean, Ingotsure is cast, but rarely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't think this is anywhere in vintage. Shall we move on? Yep. Here's another card that's had a number of people quite excited. Natural State. Green. Instant. Destroy target artifact or enchantment with converted mana cost three or less. That's a pretty straightforward magic card, don't you think? It's the love <laughs> child of Abrupt Decay and Nature's Claim. It's Seems... the great grand. It's the uh, it's the great grandchild of Disenchant. <laughs> you know, uh, when Disenchant, when when Naturalize was printed, I'm old enough to you are to remember when Naturalize was printed. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit of a shock. Yeah. Because to take that effect away from white was pretty frustrating. Um, <laughs> <Not> religious. <laughs> yes, it really was. And you know, because and and it was preceded by Oxidize. Yeah. Which is, I think, from Iridan. Yep. And yep. in Oxidize, of course, was was the descendant of crumble yep um this is just another you know and that nature's claim is just like mind-blowing mind shattering in some ways because it how efficient it is yeah it was better than disenchant not just the analog to disenchant um you know obviously this is just the next step in that like okay we'll take off the life gain but but there's a a narrower scope Mm -hmm. of application um I think that we have to, I mean, obviously Nature's Claim is incredibly important in Vintage, mm-hmm. I, and I think it's even 
better now that Chalice is restricted. So there are really two basic questions. One is, is this going to see any play over Nature's Claim? And if not, then will this see any play in addition to Nature's yeah. Claim? Um, the second question is probably less important. Um, the first question, I, my initial reaction is that Nature's Claim is just still much better. Uh, first and foremost, because... So just what are the main targets in Vintage right now? Let's just say all the sphere effects... Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the workshop cards to begin with. Yeah, all the workshop cards to begin yeah. with, leading with Lodestone Golem, Trinisphere, Sphere Resistance, Thorn of Amethyst, Tanglewire, Smokestack. Yeah. Um, all the know, creatures. Cold Death of yeah. yeah. Um, outside of shops, both the Druids is in Time Vault are probably next. Don't forget Leyline of the Void. Leyline of the Void in, in uh, Dredge. Yeah. On um, and Graftiger's Cage. Yeah, so I think I think that in fact, Graftiger's Cage is probably just, the card that is Nature's claimed the most in Vintage. It's probably the number one target numerically. Think about it. I mean, the decks that run Nature's Claim in the greatest number are going to be Dredge and Oath, and they're both bringing it in to kill Nature or to kill Graftiger's Cage. So it's probably <laughs> the card that is the number one target for Nature's Claim. Now, in terms of importance, you and I think about bigger issues, of course, but numerically, that's got to be it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, if that's the case, then um, I think we just look at those scopes of application and see what, what this can't hit. Yeah. I think it becomes quickly clear what the problem with this yeah. card is. If you're Dredge, Dredge is the deck that plays the most Nature's Claims, but it doesn't. It, these days it doesn't default to four. I did some research in advance of this discussion, and Dredge is commonly playing three or four, but it's a little more. It leans a little more toward three. If you look in the top eights from TCD decks from TC decks for the last quarter, so then the question of does this replace a Nature's Claim? I think you have to precede that answer, answering that question by looking at how often four is the number of Nature's Claims, and that answer is not not the default. That answer is not the majority. It's in the minority for Nature's Claims. Then the next question is, of those decks, what are they really bringing in Nature's Claim for? And as I just said, between Oath and Dredge, Crafter's Cage is high on the list. But as it pertains to Dredge, uh, nat- uh, sorry, Nature's Claim is used on Leyland of the Void also very popularly. Yeah, right, right. And in case of both decks, they, they want to kill Lodestone Golem when they need to. It's not a case of of a situation where, you know, it's okay if a card doesn't hit certain cards. It's like, no, it, it is, it's like, for example, let me let me make this numerical. Like, suppose you have two cards, like card A hits 100% of the cards, and card B hits 98% of the cards. Yeah. Like, that 2% may actually be the difference between winning a tournament and losing a tournament. Yeah. Or like, you know, so that actually is a huge deal. So although it's a, it may not be, like, the most percentage of cases, it's huge significant yeah and you're right you're talking about hugely impactful cards um if you use leyline of the void for example which is probably an example of the most impactful you know the point the well, point of if you don't remove it you dredge. lose <laughs> right that was something dredge is the extreme case of that leyline of the void is just ubiquitous in the format in december alone it put up about a dozen top eights in the sideboards and then there's another half dozen main deck ley lines of the void because of dredge in other dredge decks right so you're talking about 15 appearances just in a in december so pro- probably almost 50 appearances in a quarter ley line of the void is i mean that's not as ubiquitous as, as cage but the point is it's everywhere if you're playing dredge and you want to win a tournament you're going to have to go through two to four opponents that have ley lines in their sideboards and will be bringing them in and they will be putting them into play and if you don't remove it you lose <laughs> right so that yep. percentage, even though it's not 98 to 100, as you described, uh, you weren't talking about Leyland, of course, but to use your example, the percentage of targets 
is misleading because if you don't hit that small percentage at the end, you're not, you know, you're going to lose three more rounds in that event. That, that was my yeah. point. That was my. I think that the, the, the fact that they can't kill Lodestone Golem is its biggest deficit. Yeah. So. so I think you properly contextualized why you would play Nature's Claim, or sorry, Natural State as opposed to Nature's Claim. Numerically speaking, very few decks, if any, are looking for a fifth copy of this effect. Dredge and Oath are the ones that would, but those decks tend not to play for Nature's Claims already. Yeah. Um, and, and then the, go ahead. Uh, and then the other the other question is, um, would you want this instead? And I think. No self-respecting vintage deck would replace a nature's claim with one of these entirely because of lodestone golem, right? <laughs> you can't yeah. afford to, yeah. to wait other, to wait on killing a lodestone golem. Yeah. The other thing is supposing supposing that you have four nature's claims already and you're looking for a fifth kind of effect like yes. this, I might even be more inclined to go to naturalize over this. Um, I have, I have similar opinions as I espoused on Twitter a little bit as the this card was spoiled, and that is more broadly speaking, if you're looking for a fifth or fifth through eighth nature's claim, almost every deck I believe and deck designer would be want something more versatile and or more powerful than this card, which is narrower. Yeah. Like oxidize, claim. oxidize or naturalize would probably be played over this. Yeah. Yeah. Or just another tertiary way to address what you're worried about. You know, the Hercules, the Hercules recalls or the engineered explosives of the world. Something either more powerful right. or more versatile than this narrower card. I, I th- All right, well, I'm going on the record. I'm going to say zero. And if someone actually does play it, then shame on them. <laughs> I would say th- we wouldn't even be having a discussion about this if Chalice was still unrestricted also. Because you definitely don't want to be doubling down on one mana versus in a four Chalice environment. The fact that Chalice is unrestricted means there's a little bit more wiggle room for that. But it's still just another reason why I don't think anyone should choose this card. Right. It's sort of like if you want to go X and 3 in a big event, then this card is going to get the job done 7 out of 10 times. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's going to get the job done against Oath and, and against Time Vault, right? And against a number of other things. In fact, it's going to get the job done against most workshop cards now. But you're just going to lose that one game out of, out of X against Lodestone Golem. Or if you're playing Dredge, you're going to lose that three games out of X against Leyline. Anyway, I think we're good. Totally agree. Let's talk about Seagate Wreckage. This is a land. Tap, add colorless to your mana pool. Two generic colorless. Tap, draw a card. Activate this ability only if you have no cards in hand. This really highlights how amazing and broken Library of Alexandria is. <laughs> well, in a sense, yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's the opposite of Library. Right. Library activates when you have a full hand. Right. And this card activates only when you have an empty hand. <laughs> so how would you like to evaluate this one, Steve? I can think of at least two ways. One is the ease of achieving the draw card condition, and two is the marginal utility of including this land in a given deck yeah and then we i think we have to discuss applications as well yeah so let's let's just start at the it's sort of the top level lands that generate colorless are playable and vintage in fact there are plenty of them and we just named one (laughs) yep Um, there are many lands that generate colorless and draw cards are also playable and in fact there are at least two that i'm aware of Mikakoru sometimes sees vintage play mm-hmm. in in a very specific context, which I'm forgetting right now. Oh well, we most recently saw it in uh, Bobby Green's second place Notion. deck from Champs. Yeah, with Notion theme, yep. which makes sense. Yep. 
Um, also, probably in a distant fourth place is probably Cephalid Coliseum, but it taps for mana of, of a color. Well, yeah, there there are lands that don't tap for colorless that nonetheless draw cards like Bazaar Baghdad. Yep. yep. Um, the big thing, of course, the big difference is that this has a three mana activation cost, whereas Mikakoros is what? Two. It's two mana. Two. And obviously, Bizarre, neither Bazaar nor Library have an activation cost, although Cephalid Coliseum does require a blue. Mm-hmm. Um, so this isn't terribly far off of Mikakoro, and the fact that it's asymmetrical means that I think it's plausibly playable. I would say it's plausibly playable, <laughs> <laughs> just from the sort of baseline comparisons. But it is it is a novel card. We haven't seen a card precisely like this, so you really can't say pure. Yeah, I would agree. I would say that the it's interesting. This effect is not uh, entirely novel because there's an artifact from Tempest called Fool's Tome, which has this ability almost to a T. It's too generic in tap. Draw a card, use this ability only if you have no cards in your hand. So What's the mana cost of that card? Four. So that card's well, not I've playable. Well, I've heard of that card for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, so the effect of this is not unique. This whole drawing cards when your hand is empty has been around, and there's a few other implementations of it, of course. But to your point about activations, three mana activations on permanence of any kind is actually higher than anything that sees play in Vintage. The two mana on Miko Koro is actually the highest thing I can think of. In terms of activated abilities that cost mana, they're very few and far between, actually. Hangerback Walker at one, uh, Rishidan Ports, Mishra's Factory at one. It's actually pretty rare to have mana on activated abilities in Vintage. I think you're right. I think it's interesting that there are so few activations in Vintage. Vintage is the format where you kind of you get what you pay for at the outset. Mm-hmm. Because tempo is so important. <laughs> Not a lot of like hidden or secondary costs. You know, like oh gee, I bought this car and I have to spend twenty thousand dollars on you know <laughs> redoing the engine. In, in vintage, you kind of you, you the casting cost is kind of what you get for cards that come to my mind with activation costs are Death Ride Shaman, which of course has a manaless cost among them. Yep. Um, card that really doesn't see very much play anymore, but used to Kasali Pride Mage. Um, Pernicious Deeds sometimes sees play, and that can sometimes cost only a one-time activation. Yep. Um, Oriok Salvagers obviously has a, a mana cost, but Salvagers most often generates mana in the process. <laughs> sure. Or very often. <clears throat> sure, sure. But um, the value activation of a Oriok Salvagers to retrieve an explosives or a top or some such is possibly the closest analog to this. Yeah, I think that's probably probably right. Probably the most mana intensive activation card in the entire game in, in vintage is probably Sensei's Divining Top, just because of the mm. repetition there. Um Fair. and you know, people do do that top key thing every once in a while. Um Engineered Explosives also has an activation of two. Definitely. So it's interesting though. So we've okay, we've come up with several examples, but none of them were higher than two. This is three. It's also worth noting. Spellskite is also one of them, but that's, I think, within the range that you just mentioned as well. Sure. And, the, of course, Karn has the, the Gorilla Shaman ability, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, back to where, where we were. You know, um, I just thought of one. Batter Skull. Batter Skull has a three-mana activation. That's true. Which is not the sort that you pl- want to play every turn, of course, but it is the sort that is occasionally used in Vintage. 
Ah, uh, there is a an analog land, Thespian Stage, with Dark Depths that cost two. Mm-hmm. But you'll often Dark Depths itself, you know, sometimes you plow a little bit of, of into that over time. True. You know, Buried Ruin also has an activation, I believe, that is two, right? That's right. So it seems like the permanents in the format that have the most activation costs actually land. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And, but several of them and several of the other cards that have an activation cost greater than one are the sort that you're not using every turn. Engineer sure. Explosives, uh, Karn, uh, Top, well, Top is probably deed. the exception. Deed. Yeah, Deed. A lot of them sacrifice themselves so they're one-shot use. At any rate, so this not out of the, it's not out of the realm of, of possibility. I would add that all of the land examples of these where you have to tap the land and pay the mana, there's a virtual one added to the cost because you're using one of your lands in a non-mana way. So, for example, to activate Seagate Wreckage, you're tapping a land and three other mana-producing, or at least three other mana worth of mana-producing things. Right, so you have to you have to sort of tap four permanents, likely, or, you know... Yeah, like or a, a Soul Ring and a Mox and this. Yeah. yeah. So it's not out of the realm um, of possibility. Not at all, not at all. And, and frankly, I think we can all admit that drawing cards is probably the most powerful thing you can do <laughs> in, in Magic. Yeah. <laughs> I think you you make a good point that this is probably more expensive than any of the existing activations. Fairy Conclave is too, uh, you know, putting aside Dark Depths, which will very rarely be activated for its full amount. Buried Ruin right. is two. Um, Homeward Path Caracas have no activation. Mikakoro is two. Mistress Factory one, etc. Um, I think I think though that given the fact that this draws a card and it's not symmetrical like Mikakoro and Mikakoro has seen play, I think there's a good case to be made that this is plausibly viable. You know, it's within, theoretically, without having any discussion of application, but just looking at baseline mm-hmm. value propositions in the format for cards that empirically do see play, I think it's plausible to say this card is playable. Yeah. Um, but I think if we begin thinking more in terms of application, I think that case becomes more stronger rather than less plausible. So unless you have anything to add, let's let's turn to that. Yeah. Okay. So so it's interesting to think about something like Very Ruin. Very Ruin sometimes appears in, in workshop decks as like a singleton, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think this probably has a similar application in that this is the kind of card that a workshop deck put into it. Workshop decks are all permanent, but has the natural advantage of not having a card in hand that it can't play ever, rarely, right? I mean, ultimately, long term. So this is a kind of card that I could easily see being put into a workshop deck. Um, the workshop decks deploy all their permanents, at least in theory, mm-hmm. right? Oftentimes, workshop decks will have, like, the Sundering Titan they can't cast, or they played so many spears that they can't actually cast the spell in their hand. But at least in theory, they're capable of, de- of deploying everything. Whereas a blue deck, there may be situations where you have a mental misstep in play that you can never cast because your opponent doesn't play a one-of, mm-hmm. or you don't draw a one-of to, to use it. So it's I think Workshops is a good example of a deck where as a singleton in a workshop deck, it makes a lot of sense. You can, you know, especially in those workshop decks that run like Expedition Map to get a singleton or whatever. Right. Or in the workshop decks that run Bizarre Baghdad, you know, to empty hands. Um, I think in a workshop deck, you have colorless, you have generic, you have uh, all the, you have, you know, no cost, opportunity cost besides, if you have no opportunity cost from not running a colored mana source in most cases in that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no real concern around that either and um the, the only opportunity cost there is like not running like a city of, uh, of traders or some other specialized land like a ghost quarter or a homeward path or whatever mm-hmm. so um i think this is an obvious application for workshop decks um especially in workshop decks that like run a singleton bazaar and probably have crucible of world mm-hmm. um 
And it's also notable that workshop decks with Uba masks also don't have hands and emptied their hands. They don't refill their hands. Sure. So it, it could be really good application there. But just circumscribing our discussion to workshop decks for the moment, I see this as an A, an automatic inclusion into the workshop sort of uh, binder of, of playables, if you will. Right. <laughs> Or, or portfolio of considera- considerations, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think it has I think it has uh, applications and vintage beyond that, which I'll mention in a little bit. But what's your assessment? I'm trying to think of any exception to that which you just described. Most of the blue decks in vintage of all sorts, the gush decks, the control decks, the combo decks, all of them have counter spells. Most of them play force of will and mental misstep. Or they're the sort of deck that if it has no cards in hand, then it's just dead in the water. <laughs> like Dark Petition yeah. Storm. If there's no cards in hand, yeah. good, you know, you're out, you're out of luck. So I would say blue decks need not apply for this card, at least not as they're structured in Vintage today. Agreed. So we're looking at Workshop decks, as you said. This effect would go great in Dredge, of course, but Dredge is never yep. going to have the requisite mana. Yeah. Right. Yep. So then the only other place I can think of would be some really fringe decks like... Yep. Other dark depths decks, like the mono black kind of decks, shop depths, but that just overlaps with what you're saying. Right. And I don't think yeah, I mean, Liliana doesn't that say like both players discard a card, so yeah. you might get you might get a value in in like a, a dark times type deck yeah. with this one. But those decks where are the, yeah, where the opportunity cost isn't super high, even though you do run a lot of colorless mana sources. Yeah. But I think it's probably worth considering as kind of like a one of it, something like that. But you know, outside of the established archetypes, I, getting into the range of fringe decks, there's a um, there's an enchantment based strategy that I've seen every once in a while where both players draw cards from the opposing deck, and I can't remember what the name of that card is. Shared Fate. Shared Fate. Yeah. But that deck usually sets up such that your hand is kind of empty pretty quickly, or once your hand is emptied, mm-hmm. then you no longer draw cards. Right. And so that would be another way to generate card advantage in that strategy. I would say any deck that's currently running Ensnaring Bridge, obviously, like the workshop deck that you're describing, Ubo Stacks, that kind of deck, or any deck that's currently running Chains of Mephistopheles, which is quite rare these days, yeah, but is always yeah. somewhat on the periphery of, of being a sideboard or a rogue strategy. And also any deck that's currently, and this might sound like anathema, but any deck that's currently running Skull Clamp, <laughs> those tiny robots kind of aggro decks, not that they're designed to have empty hands, but they really lend themselves to having empty hands. And those kind of decks have, I think, have some wiggle room in terms of the marginal utility of their lands. So it wouldn't be a game breaker in those kind of decks, but every little bit counts when you've emptied your hand and you're trying to kill people with Mem Knights. So I think, yeah. I think we've isolated all the places. I agree with you. This is certainly playable. And I think Buried Ruin is probably the, the best analog in terms of what people are playing for this kind of effect. Even though Barry yeah. has tons of synergy in that it's a quasi-tutor and Crucible of Worlds and everything else. So there's reasons to play it over this, but still. So let's just take that a little bit, one step further, Kevin. Um, in a workshop deck, let's say you ran the one like Hiromichi Itao ran last year, one Buried Ruin. Mm-hmm. Would you rather have this in place of Buried Ruin? In that particular list? No, I'd probably still rather have Buried Ruin. But for for the benefit of our audience, that list was a smokestack list with Hangerback Walker that it did not have any of the other key cards we're mentioning. It wasn't an Ubistax list. It didn't have uh, Ensnaring Bridge. I think I would only lean toward this card if I was an Ensnaring Bridge slash Ubistax deck, the sort of deck that's already running some amount of Bazaar of Baghdad. (laughs) 
maybe and you don't have to be the full like four bizarre uba stacks deck either i'm thinking as you alluded to about the deck that lsv and efro played are playing no i'm sorry they that was in the last trimester of the vsl right where they had a an ensnaring bridge based strategy that had one or two bazaars in it just so they could filter their hand and get out from under their own bridge if they wanted to i'm sorry get under their own bridge if they wanted to i think decks like that could really get some value out of something like this yeah i I mean i think that makes this card especially hard to predict Mm -hmm. what where how much it will see play but i'm pretty convinced it's playable and i don't want to rule out any of those super fringe strategies because there are fringe strategies where where you kind of like deplete your hand Mm -hmm. um you know just just kind of shift the context to kind of put another consideration or perspective into the evaluation matrix if this card had been printed like in ice age i think it would be pretty darn good in old school formats (laughs) oh yeah or like you know, like, or uh, Fallen Empires, it would be insane. And it would be especially good in kind of like aggro decks or burn decks that just empty their hand quickly that don't run counter magic. Sure. Um, you know, the only thing that would hold this card up from being used, in my opinion, is you have, like, more land in hand than you can deploy. But that's really not an issue in modern vintage. Right. For whatever reason. Yeah. And it's, it, it might just be... Go ahead. Sorry. It's funny the way you say that, because when you said old school, I, I agree, but I immediately had a flash to Tempest Block, because this has this card fits with so many things we've mentioned in Tempest Block, but you look at your Ensnaring Bridge, which came out in Stronghold, but before that was Cursed Scroll. This card has a very Cursed yeah. Scroll kind of overlap, and then you put yeah. Mox Diamond into the mix. Exactly. This would have been very at home in Tempest Block. And oh, and that's, all kinds that's of, where Fool's Tome came from. And there are all kinds of cards that like where you can discard a card to get a kind of benefit, like Mox Diamond, or you know. And there are lots of cards that allow you to discard cards and vintage, like Dak. Yeah. So, um, you know, and in, in, think about like the original Rack Balance Dak. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, this card and Balance are good friends. Very good friends. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I yeah, and I mean, but so I, I think the the point I'm making there is that if we kind of shift lenses for a second i think it sort of shows that this card is pretty darn good in the abstract yeah. you know and and then toggling back to the vintage i think it helps us see if we have greater confidence in this card then maybe we might more actively be searching for viable applications you know i i don't we can't canvas the you know the the worlds of shared fate and cards like that right but we we do need to acknowledge that those exist you know like the whatever um but I don't. I can't think of any other decks right now that rely on Bend. Although there was that, there were some decks that got some value out of Hellbent, like with Infernal Tutor um, in Legacy. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, I just I think this is a solid consideration for Workshop, especially those that run Bizarre. Well, let's talk not about appearances, but about quantity. So, how many? Uh, if such a Workshop deck wanted to run this card, how many do you think it would run? Well, it doesn't have a lot of value in multiples because the only problem the workshop decks would have, assuming you don't have a bazaar, is that you have more lands in hand than you can play. Mm-hmm. So if you had two of these in play, you would probably use one to activate the other as opposed to using all your mana to activate both because you don't want to get stuck in a situation where you have two land play and then you can't activate. There are two lands in hand, and you, or a land in hand you've already made your land drop, right? Mm-hmm. Then you couldn't activate it, so that would be a problem. By the way, we should just mention for completeness sake that Steel Hellkite sometimes has an activation. More than- <laughs> That's <laughs> true. But not often. <laughs> it does like eating Trigon Predators and Mentors. Anyway, um, well, I, yeah, I agree I- with you about 
the quantity then and a, a cursory analysis of recent top eights that included buried ruin shows that it's almost exclusively a one of right and i think this land would be the same could you just run a check and see how many of those decks run expedition map because if you have expedition map then i think it's almost certainly a one of um index without expedition map it's probably probably still a one of but i i could see a case for maybe two well those expedition map if you're referring to the expedition map uh workshop decks the, yes. those were those were usually searching for a package of just <laughs> bazaar of baghdad maybe cavern of souls strip mine and Tolarian academy I think those decks were still primarily just prison-based workshop decks, not trying to assemble anything terribly special. Or they were an an aggro-like Memnite-type deck that was just trying to find one of its multiple academies, that is to say, one academy and three, two or three Gaia's Cradles. Yeah, that that strategy hasn't put up a top eight finish for. Remind me, remind me what those decks were using Expedition Map for then. Well, that's just it. Is they it was just a just a tutor for the one of type lands you would expect in workshops. Now get the Buried Ruin, Strip Mine, Tolarian Academy. That's really the big one. That 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 trifecta is the consistent appearance of tutorable lands basically in those workshop archetypes. They weren't running special lands really outside except for except for what you might call uh, dark depths thespian stage decks you know those those workshop depths decks which they've become a little more popular recently and a couple of them had their their genesis in early 2015 i think really those two poles you're either running shop depths or you're just using it as a value tutor in a standard workshop mana base fair enough yeah well so i think we're both Honing in the conclusion, this is a one of in workshop decks. Yeah. It is prime I mean, I feel comfortable saying that. I mean, I think it probably gets stronger in some ways with the workshop decks that just empty their hands quickly and then have excessive mana. Although there is a limit to how many times you're going to be able to activate this with ancient tombs and that kind of crap. Um, yeah, it's true. Yes, that's a good point. If you're, you might normally rely on your ancient tomb that you have in play to fuel this because you're reduces the yeah. reduces the permanence you need to tap to draw the card but that's not a sustainable approach the workshop decks basically since the inception of the archetype in the format have always been looking for additional ways to generate card advantage mm-hmm. not just disruption and i mean going back to like the original mud so the original stacks decks used a lot of the traditional draw sevens and things like meditate stuff like that mm-hmm. the old school mud decks used things like grafted skull cap i mean right. to me this is just better right yeah, I would say so. I mean, people use things like Staff of Nim draws a card, right? Yep. Yeah, I think this is just better. And I, I, as between Workshop Control decks and Workshop Aggro decks, the rationale for this seeming to be a better fit or more natural home in the aggro strategy is that they probably empty their hands more quickly. But that's probably also true of the Workshop Control decks in that they achieve control by achieving board dominance. So, and once they've done that, they just need to draw threats. Like in the VSL, the game where Efro was playing against David Ochoa, if one of his lands had been this, I think he would have been able to, close to being able to activate it to try and draw more severe effects. There was certainly one game where yeah. he was sandbagging a couple lands in hand because he wanted to present threat, he wanted to represent other threats in his hand, but he really didn't have anything. And and a land like this, he could have emptied his hand out and drawn probably one to three cards over the course of the late game. Yeah. The only time this is going to be a problem is if you are like holding cards like.
like Mindbreak Trap or Dismember, which those decks sometimes run. Right. Then you can't really reliably use this. But um, I think I think in the Bizarre decks, in the Crucible, I mean, it seems to me Crucible makes us better because of obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And Bizarres obviously make it better as well. So any deck with Crucible, Workshop, and Bizarre, this seems like a possible natural inclusion. Well, let's put our money where our mouth is. And and to aid in our estimation, I did a little bit of analysis on the presence of Buried Ruin, of buried ruin and of um, Expedition Map. And filtering out decks like Belcher, which obviously this has no place in, and looking just at either mud decks or some rogue builds that you would call shop depths or some other things, the it looks like in Q4 of 2015... There were approximately four workshop decks that would meet that description and two other rogue decks. So about five, five or six decks that look like natural homes for Seagate Wreckage, at least in the terms that we've laid out. To me, I think that says that there will likely be another maybe two to five appearances of Seagate Wreckage. What's your prediction? I'm going to shoot on the low end because I still think it competes with Buried Ruin. I think there are some people who might see the value but still opt for Buried Ruin over this because the uh, the marginal utility of this too many of these lands is too high. So I'm going to go with three. I think that's a very reasonable prediction. I value hard drawing very and I think this is in many ways a very natural fit in workshop decks. My single reservation is how reliably it can be activated. Sure. So that would be my number one concern. Workshop decks sometimes really don't like to use Ancient Tomb too many times. puts them in a difficult spot. So it pauses your point that you have to tap three other mana sources often in addition to this. Right. Um, but it could be that just car- this card is just insane. I mean, really good in workshop decks. I mean, you know, turn one threat, turn two threat, turn three threat or sphere, and then turn four, start activating this seems really good. Um, it probably wouldn't be right if I said three as well. Huh? <laughs> uh, there's not, there's no rules against it. <laughs> It's just we've avoided it. You know, we haven't been we haven't been playing up which of the two of us wins, so to speak, in our recent report cards, so I have no problem with it. I'll take I'll take the over. Four it is. <laughs> now at we like to point out in several of our recent set reviews that at this point we're just trying to predict people's behavior. I think our discussion has clearly laid out that we both believe this is vintage playable. It's just a matter of the right home and how many people adopt it in the next three months, so I think this card definitely has a home. Did you feel that way before before we started our set review? Or were you persuaded over the course of our discussion? I think that the analog to Buried Ruin is what did it for me. I, I had not I had not formulated in my opinion before you mentioned that, and we also laid out all the different effects and lands and activations and things. I think the Buried Ruin analog is very close for this, and I yeah, I just uh, I think I was persuaded thanks to that realization. How about you? Yeah, that it was a card that definitely stood out when I was reading the reading the um, spoiler. Yeah, and Baird Rune was the immediate analog that popped in my mind. We'll see how people adapt to this activation, though. Two C is no slouch, even in workshops. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to overwhelming denial. Two UU instant surge of UU. Overwhelming denial can't be countered by spells or abilities. Period. Counter target spell. So what we have here is a four mana counter spell that is very similar to last word, which is two UU. Last word can't be countered by spells or abilities. Counter target spell. 
So it's last word plus surge. Surge making it a really good iteration of the original counterspell. Now the mana cost is one that is clearly playable in Vintage, as we like to analyze. This is Jace's mana cost, Jace the Mind Sculptor, I should say. And it's one less than Tezzeret the Seeker. And it's one more blue than Tinker. It's it's right in the range of high-end blue playables. But the reason this card's on our list, of course, is because of the surge cost. So the mana cost goes with an asterisk. Now, the effect of counter-target spell, of course, heavily played in Vintage. The, the idea that it can't be countered by spells or abilities, how often is that a thing in Vintage? That's not nearly so common these days. Uncounterable things. I mean, we have things with uh, Split Second, right? Sudden Shock comes to mind. Sure, sure. Relatively common answer to creatures. Sulfur Elemental. Sulfur Elemental, which is less common, but a sideboard card against Mentor. What else am I forgetting? Uncounterable things in Vintage. Trickbind has seen play. Trickbind. Oh, Extirpate. That's another one. Probably a little more common than, possibly even more common than Sudden Shock over, over its history. So Split Second was was relatively popular in Vintage, still is. I think Croson Recl- not Croson Reclamation, uh, Croson Grip, excuse me, saw some play back in the day. Good answer to a Mind Slaver or things like that. But Uncounterability is, by and large, not a go-to ability in Vintage, partially because the, the way control is manifest in Vintage is via counter spells in strong part, but also via uh, mana denial in workshops and in other... Uh, aggro control strategies through wasteland so something being uncounterable is only relevant against certain subset of the format not always a guarantee that it's going to work (laughs) ancient uh sorry abrupt decay also just shot into my mind is probably the most played card that has uncounterable in its text box yeah that's that's a really good one um so we, yep. we have, we're forced to evaluate the Surge on this card in order to understand if it's even remotely playable. We talked about a Surge card already in Crush of Tentacles, but that one is a very different animal than this one. Crush is a sorcery. It's designed to control the board. It has upside on the Surge as opposed to just castability. <laughs> Whereas in the case of Overwhelming Denial, it if it's going to be played, it's going to be played for its Surge cost primarily. That's not to say that it's uncastable at four mana. People have cast Mindbreak Trap for its four mana plenty of times. I know I have. Right. But Mindbreak Trap is a far superior card with its alternate cost and abilities to this overwhelming denial. Yeah. And when we talked about Crush of Tentacles, we had the benefit of talking about all the sorcery speed surge enablers. It's fairly obvious that Mox and other zero casting cost artifacts, other mana producers, I should say, are good surge enablers when it's your turn. And cards like Gitaxi and Probe were obviously high on the list, as well as Gush. Most of those cards need not apply when you're talking about Overwhelming Denial. That is, unless you're casting it on your turn to protect one of your spells. But a lot of us would want to play a counterspell such as this on our opponent's turn. It's far more difficult to achieve Surge on your opponent's turn. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think you just hit on the fundamental problem. So if we could step back for a second, I think you, you began the analysis by examining where uncounterable spells see player, you know, to what extent in the format. But beyond cards that just have uncounterability or split second, there are a number of cards that are functionally uncounterable. Most of those are in with the storm mechanic. Mm. So, and if you look at the storm mechanic, the obvious card that comes to mind is Flusterstorm. Yeah. Which, you know, accepting another Flusterstorm or Mindbreak Trap under the right circumstances is functionally uncounterable. So I just wanted to point that out. 
Well, this card obviously competes very powerfully with Flusterstorm, I, and I didn't consider it for the reason you just mentioned, but that's just another way. And you're right. Uh, the, one of the reasons why Flusterstorm is so attractive is just because it it is functionally uncounterable in that most of the standard ways you would fight a counterspell, let's say Mana Drain, for example, are not effective against Flusterstorm. It's usually not reliable to respond with your own counterspell. So Force of Will, Mental Misstep, Pyroblast, most of those in most implementations won't help you stop a Flusterstorm, given the storm copies. But also, as compared to Overwhelming Denial, Flusterstorm's mana cost must be brought into the picture, because the reason it's played in Vintage is the one mana. And let's say for a moment that Overwhelming Denial's Surge ability was just always online you still would have uh, marginal utility and opportunity cost for including a regular old counterspell that wasn't Mana Drain in your deck to begin with. Now, Mana Drain has gone in fits and starts of playability, and it's it's pretty playable right now, although it's not. It's probably at a low point at the moment as it pertains to uh, Dark Petition Storm, but Mana Drain has enjoyed some some pretty healthy play lately in the last six months. This card, even for its surge cost, is arguably less powerful than Mana Drain. I think that most players would rather have the mana production ability of Mana Drain than the uncounterability of Overwhelming Denial. But it's not a given. There are still several situations where you'd, <laughs> you'd rather your Mana Drain did this, especially against the Storm decks. Against Workshop decks, of course, the mana production of Mana, dr- mana Drain is one of its primary reasons for play is to both counteract the threat and get extra mana over and above the spheres that are in play to deploy your answers or threats. This has not that benefit. This card is not nearly as good against workshops as it is against combo or other control decks. I I completely agree. I think the approach that you took of saying, what if the surge is always online and then evaluating it there is a very helpful one. Mm -hmm. It It allows us to set aside the conditionality and evaluate the card on its otherwise on its merit. So it's really hard to sometimes tease apart the elements of these cards. But I think you're right. I think most of the time you'd rather have a mana drain. There are times like where... Some decks don't need to generate the mana, like a landstill deck some of the time. Yeah. But but mana drain is just gonna be better against like workshop decks, you know, and so on and so forth. Um I I think that that really highlights the limitations of the card more than anything else. Because to your point, it's a counterspell, which means more often than not, you're going to probably be playing on your opponent's turn, and you're going to need to have surge. So how conditional is conditional here? <laughs> right? Right. Well, and the in my opinion, the matchup where this effect of uncounterability would be best is against other control decks. Other control decks that are likely to fight your counter spells. So they play a threat. Let's say it's a it's a haymaker like Tinker. They play their Tinker. You respond with mm, Mana Drain. And those decks, Grixis Control, for example, Mentor, Pyromancer, those are the decks that are likely to fight you over that. That's where you'd want this the most. Right. It's in those kind of situations yeah. where Mana Drain is still very good. <laughs> and where Flusterstorm shines. And, yes, and I was just going to say, and where other counter spells are a little more desirable. Because uncounterability is nice, but just having the the flexibility and the space to play multiple counter spells or to play Flusterstorm or Red Elemental Blast for one is its own kind of value. And paying two mana plus a surge for this is perhaps you're working a little too hard. If your surge card, for example, is another counter spell, well, then you're kind of undermining the value of this being uncounterable. If you're surging with a Pyroblast or surging with a Mental Misstep, yeah. and then this is your answer, your your second answer, 
well, how many answers do you need? <laughs> and in those yeah, kind I of think, scenarios, Flusterstorm is almost always going to be superior. Yeah, my very initial reaction in reading this card is, this is not better than Flusterstorm. And Flusterstorm's presence kind of invalidates the mechanic a bit. That even if you could use it, you have uncounterability built into Flusterstorm at half the mana cost. And it can also hit multiple spells at once. Yeah, which is another thing I didn't mention, but that's huge. There's some, some potentially inherent card advantage with Flusterstorm as well. Let's talk about let's talk about the scenario where this card is better. So, well, Flusterstorm can't hit creatures. There you go. It doesn't hit artifacts. Planeswalkers. So, yeah, but, but that's the thing is that uncounterability's value is an anticipated counterspell wars, which is where Flusterstorm is at maximal value. <laughs> that's a, that's a good point. But let's but still, let's manufacture a scenario. So, let's assume you have the best the best possible enabler. What's the best possible enabler for surge on your opponent's turn? Probably something that's free or costs zero mana. Yeah, like a like a brainstorm effect. Well, brainstorm's not even free though. Let's talk about yeah. gush. You, gush is not a card in at least in my gush book you play on your opponent's turn. <laughs> I know. Unless, unless you have an emergency gush. So uh, fair enough. Makes, so, so let's back off then to the brainstorm example. Brainstorm is probably the safest best answer, right? So <laughs> your opponent plays some haymaker. They play Jace the Mind Sculptor. And you brainstorm in response, and resolved or not, let's just ignore the fact that they may counter your brainstorm, then you've got Surge, so you play UU and you counter their Jace, uncounterably. How often does a scenario like that come up, such that you would want Overwhelming Denial in your deck over the myriad other counters in the in the format? We already have some decks that have issues with yeah. non-spell threats. Pyromancer, well, I, uh, Delver decks have, for example, had some periods of time where they had a hard time just countering a non-spell because they had only Force of Wills for it. And if it cost more than one, they had no other outs. Yeah. But um, but, the, but those kind of decks still existed for quite some time with that kind of limitation and never really sought to resolve it by adding a two-mana counter. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's hard to bake up a scenario where this is like really better than some alternative. I mean, the two mana, like, so one possibility is like your opponent, your opponent plays a, a a bomb like a Jace. You play Thirst in response, and then they play a counterspell, and you wanna you know play this to counter counter the Jace or whatever. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, Flusterstorm is gonna get you half of the way there. <laughs> and if they play an instant or a sorcery, it gets you all the way there. So yeah, I, I I think what you're pointing to is the, the the point that it's really difficult to get surge in in established vintage decks these days. I mean, yeah. it's easy to do it on your turn with Cataxian Probe and Gush and all that. Brains in Moxen, but brainstorms restricted. There aren't a lot of like good instants that are super efficient that you can play on your opponent's turn. In fact, I can't think of a single one that's heavily played. But let me. <laughs> well, there are several. I mean, you got your lightning bolts, you got your mystical super... tutor. Most of them are restricted, yeah. of course. I mean, any any blue yeah. deck worth its salt has probably two or three or four restricted instants: mystical vamp, brainstorm, ancestral. So, but it's not reliable. M- right. Much of our cantrips these days are sorcery speed with preordain and ponder. And Gitaxian yeah, Probe. There's Repeal. <laughs> yeah, Repeal's played occasionally. And so, and, and and most blue decks in Vintage have their own suite of counterspells, right? Their own suite of 7 to 
12 counter spells. So this card plays very nicely with Mental Misstep and Force of Will, of course. Right. So you've got a little bit of baked in on your opponent's turn surge in most baseline decks right now. If you were to take an average VSL Force of Will deck, my guess is there's 10 to 15 cards that will surge on your opponent's turn for reasonable value. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean, but the best case scenario is your opponent plays a spell and you misstep it. Then this thing is online. <laughs> yeah. That's the least amount of resources to get that this thing yeah. online. It's, but to, you know, so what you're saying is the ways that this card are ideal, the, those other cards are either already answers or it's a scenario that's so difficult to construct that it's not reliable, right? Yeah. So when you're talking about, let's say, turn one, they go Island, Mana Crypt, Tinker on turn one, right? Well, the surge cost of this isn't even online at two mana. Your Force of Will, your potentially Mind Break Trap if they played one more spell, your Fluster Storm, your Red Elemental Blast, all these other cards are online, assuming you've had a turn. This is not. So this is a turn three-ish, turn two and a half, three, counterspell on their turn after you've had to defend yourself with the normal means for a couple of turns, and then this comes online for their mid-game Haymaker, their mid-game Jace, their mid-game Show and Tell, their, you know, if it's workshops, you've you've weathered the storm, and then there's a mid-game Triskelion or something you get to get with this. <laughs> I, it's just, in almost every one of those scenarios, you'd rather have either a more efficient card or a more powerful one, like Mana Drain. And never mind the scenarios where you've got Blue Blue up on turn two, but nothing else but this in your hand and your opponent just casts their spell with impunity not that they know it's impunity but the point is is that this is not mana drain on on turn two when you're lacking all uh, another zero casting cost answer yeah i just don't see it i don't think and i think mind break trap is on the other end of the spectrum a very specialized counter that if people really want to be able to fight other control or combo decks that they're going to look to add more mind break traps than something like this to win fights can I put you down for zero? Yep. <laughs> Let's move on to Endbringer, which is 5C, Creature Eldrazi. Untap Endbringer during each other player's untap step. Tap Endbringer deals one damage to target creature or player. Colorless Tap. Target creature can't attack or block this turn. CC Tap. Draw a card. 5-5. Five, five. There were a, a few of the Eldrazi that I wanted to discuss, and mm-hmm. this was not. So I'll let you, I'll let you lead the way. Well, the, the request to talk about this came from Twitter. This thing is a Swiss Army knife at six mana. and let, <laughs> So let's just use our standard uh, metrics, right? So this mana cost of 5C is pretty clearly playable as compared to Trike, Worm Coil Engine, Steel, oh, steel oh. Hellkite. But we need to refer to our conversation earlier about the the structural mechanics of colorless mana and workshop decks so you can't just run this off of two workshops now i would say that as it pertains to two mana spells the spatial contortion warping whale kind of spectrum you have to be very careful about casting those I think you've got a little more flexibility once you get up to five and six mana. You're you're going to be hard-pressed to have a game with workshops where you have six mana and you can't produce a single colorless. But it's not out of the question, right? You could have Workshop, uh, Mox, uh, Emerald, and Tolarian Academy and looking at this card in your hand saying, oh, darn. So I would say there's still some areas where it's at risk, but six mana is probably the point where you can get pretty comfortable that you can cast this. Now, so that said... Uh, a six mana five five body is in line with what workshops play at the top of their curve, right? Triskelion, Forge Master, Worm Coil Engine, Karn, these kind of things. This is comparable. 
So I think we really have to just look at these abilities. It's funny that this thing is 5-5 five, five because it, the idea is that it can play defense. I can play offense, I mean, on your turn and then untap and use its special abilities and or play defense on their turn. So you've got dealing one damage. You've got a ping, a la Prodigal Sorcerer and Staff of Nin. You've got a colorless mana and a target creature can't attack or block this turn. So you've got some icy manipulator action which we're like dwarven warriors but... <laughs> well occasionally relevant like it's a five five so a lot of your workshop mirror opponents creatures you'd rather i mean this thing is holding them off anyway okay, okay. but a lodestone golem with attack with impunity into this thing and if you feel like being defensive you could tap a wasteland sure. and this to stop it from attacking it's at its best probably against blight steel colossus right or Gristlebrand, right? Against Oath. This is kind of a fun answer to your opponent's Gristlebrand, because they can draw a zillion cards, but can't swing in. Granted, those zillion cards are almost certainly going to include an answer to the situation, but be that as it may. And then the third ability, for CC, tap, draw a card. So here's your card advantage in workshops, um, in theory. But the colorless, colorless activation is no slouch. As we said, if casting this thing at six mana is a risk for a single colorless, then there's an even bigger risk that you're not going to have the two necessary to draw a card. But even if you don't, you still have room to get some value in the first two abilities. In a vacuum, this thing swings for five and then pings once more for six on your opponent's turn. So it's swinging about as hard as a worm coil engine would. All things being equal, worm coil obviously has other upsides. And it's also flexible in that it can play offense and defense. Uh, because, oh, never mind, you can't tap your opponent's creature. You can just force it well, to not attack. attack. You have to choose. Yeah, yeah. so it doesn't... Um, it does not play defense. Or it doesn't play offense in terms of removing your it's, opponent's creatures unless they yeah. have one toughness. But many creatures in the workshop matchup do have one toughness, at least in their baseline. So it's a possibility. I, I think that this creature doesn't do any one thing better than the examples we have already, right? Triskelion's better at pinging. Wormcoil's better at being large and, and having redundancy. Forge Master is better in terms of power. Well, Hellkite's better in terms of removal. But this is it, maximal flexibility, right? In my opinion, I think we have to evaluate this card as costing 8 mana, and that's the problem. Because workshops allow you to cast those every card you just mentioned there, basically minus 2, right? Because the workshop generates 3 mana at 1 land. Fair enough. So, you know, I think that's the problem, is both these abilities are kind of anemic. I mean, Prodigal Sorcerer is not a very strong ability. (laughs) No, but that's the low one on the totem pole, right? Sure. (laughs) That's the free one. That's the free one. That's the, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I think that even if the abilities were all fantastic, the casting cost is disqualifying. Yeah, you know, you make a fair point. Let's let's be doubly clear because this is not an artifact. This is a colorless card, so the Mishra's Workshop you have in play can't cast it. If you want to cast this, you need to tap Ancient Tomb, Factory Wasteland, Mox, Mox, right? Now, yep. that is not an unheard of thing, right? Workshops have well, drawn and played and won many a game without a workshop showing up. So, But still, that's yeah. maximal late game as compared to all the artifacts you listed. I mean, we have. I remember seeing in one of the bizarre mock suns we analyzed, one of the players had like Karn liberated in play off a of metal worker. I was just so going to say that. It is playable, but that card has the ability minus three exile target permanent, <laughs> which kicks the butt of the, the, you know, the pink here. Uh, so so, yeah, it has the plus four of exile a card in the player's hand. Um, and just for reference, Karn Liberated put up a top eight appearance twice in the whole of 2015. <laughs> so to call that a vintage playable card is a little bit of a technicality. <clears throat> 
but you're right this does compare it it's useful to compare i think to the seven mana colorless karn liberated because you start to get a feel for how difficult it would be to cast and you're right this card's abilities are a little bit down in terms of power as compared to that one planeswalker but still this card will finish a game faster than karn will doing six damage a turn five damage plus draw card it has some upside it might compare favorably in some people's eyes to staff of nin for example staff of nin which is there to draw a card and do the ping this can do one or the other of those but I think plenty of people would be happy to trade that one damage from Staff of Nin for five from this, right? Swing for five on your turn, I'll draw a card. Oh, oh, by the way, I'm holding off one of your attackers. Like, you can't hit me with your Mishra's Factory while this is there. You can't hit me with yeah. your Mentor. So, you know what? To be honest, I think, I think I actually understated the casting cost of this card. Staff of Nin costs a Workshop, an Ancient Tomb, and a Mox. Yeah. Or a Mox land. This card actually costs more than eight because in a Workshop deck, one of your most important sources of mana is Workshop. So you kind of just have to take that off the table entirely. So it actually costs like nine in a Workshop deck. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made a good comparison, an educational comparison as it pertains to actually right. casting this card with Karn because it could be that Metalworker is the card that makes this work. Yeah. Because it both facilitates the casting and then you just need to have one card in your hand for the Metalworker to allow this to draw a card. Metalworker decks tend to not to fully empty their hand. I mean, they can have a one big turn where you cast three or four things, granted. But it, it's very reasonable for a Metalworker deck to play the turn one Metalworker Empty their hand with this and three other things. Lot components, tangle wire, smokestack, other creatures, you know, the the standard fare. But then on their next turn, when this thing has lost summoning sickness, you can attack with your pseudo vigilance, yep. keep the one card in your hand, and you then you're online with activating its draw card ability. So it could be that Metalworker is the only real reasonable home for this kind of card. Yeah, you're, I think you're right. Now, Workshop players go, um, they, they span the gamut of people who like to play with Metalworker and people who don't, people who like to play with Black Lotus in their Workshop decks and people who don't. But the simple truth is that Metalworker is still quite popular. In Q4 of last year, Metalworker put up, looks like, eight top eights, according to TC decks. I mean, that's a respectable showing, and it's not the only possible implementation. In such a Metalworker deck, then, this is competing with all the things that I mentioned before. Triskelion, yeah, Karn, Karn yeah, your uh, Worm Coil Engine, Steel Hellkite, all those things. Well, I'm sure there's actually quite a few colorless cards that cost like probably six, seven, eight that I would play over this card that we just haven't even mentioned, in addition to Karn Liberated. Oh, yeah? I, I suspect there's at least a couple. Let's just, for the sake of thoroughness, let's talk about how these abilities are in various matchups across the format, right? So let's talk about against Storm, very popular in the VSL right now. I think that in terms of a 5-5 creature, the first ability to do an extra damage, that's just an extra power if you do it. Target creature can't attack or block, that, that need not apply. Draw a card, is draw a card better than... I think it's better than Worm. Karn. I think it's better than not Karn. I think Karn is better than this because of the mana denial. Yeah, yeah but all the Karns are better. Than <laughs> well, no, it's, Karn Liberated it's not. Are you kidding me? Karn Liberated exiles cards from, it's, from hand it's their, and permanent. It's their choice, though. They can choose the card in yeah, hand. Yeah, in the TPS deck, when it, when it's trying to build up the Hercules Recall, I can't wait to exile their basic land and play. Absolutely. Well, I'd rather have... Karn Liberated. Uh, Karn Liberated is it is a seven mana land destruction spell. I'll give you that. 
that does not excite me. <laughs> All right. Well, neither does this. This card is garbage in TPS match. Well, which ability it's, would you use it, against TPS? First of all, focus on the abilities. First, it's going to be turn one Metalworker, turn two Cassis, turn three Activate. You're dead. Well, you're just dead. Granted, so, this is not a lot component, right? This is so I'm right. talking about we're comparing against the creatures in the Metalworker deck. We're comparing against the Trike and the Worm I'm Coil. Okay, so don't compare it to Nullrod. <laughs> but, but you can't. But to compare the reason I say that it's probably in the TPS matchup compared to the card you just mentioned is because this card can only be used off Metalworker and therefore you have to play the Metalworker as opposed to like the other cards you mentioned you could play turn one Sphere and then you could play turn one Trike you can't do that with this Fair. That, that, that never ever happened no I, I gotcha and I agree so you have to have like Lotus Mana Crypt and Academy or something but can we agree <laughs> that the game where you play turn one Sphere and turn two Trike you're probably just losing against TPS I mean that Trike is a not lock component four turn clock that's it's not very good right I, I would take TPS in that in, in the abstract in that scenario every time not if the sphere was a trinosphere <laughs> fair enough okay what I'm saying though is matchup wise against TPS you're almost this exclusively is- looking to draw a card with this and if that's the case right if you've gotten if you've the game has matured to the point where you've landed a six mana fatty as between this and Triskelion's three damage and duplicants and worm coil engine isn't draw a card the superior additional ability on your four four five five six six creature isn't this better than worm coil against tps it's not better than sundering titan that's for sure. that's okay fair enough sundering titan has an immediate yeah. board impact i mean worm coil engine and trikes are kind of blanks they just they're just yeah. fat bodies okay and, and and i i mean that it's i'm not again, not trying to tell I, you this I, is what i still i still think that the other card i think trike and worm coral are better than this against tps because of the cat because of the mana cost okay well i mean that's that's kind of a given though right so we've graduated beyond discussing mana cost i'm talking about (laughs) abilities when they're in play I yeah. I grant that this thing is hard as heck to cast, harder than usual, harder than all those cards, right? And you're gonna lose yeah. a couple of games here and there because this is sitting in your hand and you've got workshop in play and your trike would already be in play. This I, thing is I grant you all of that. You can tap your two colorless sources to draw a card with it. Well but picture probably picture the VSL games. Too. Picture the VSL games that happened this week where where Efro had, you know, three spheres and null rod in play but couldn't finish the deal. Yeah, but you wouldn't have gotten this thing into play. So I mean, it's a pipe dream. It's, I mean, you're, uh, you, you keep saying I'm fighting the hypothetical, but the thing is, you have to put it in the context of how the game would unfold. Yeah. Trike doesn't just magically appear and play. It's you have to tap the workshops to get it there. Fair enough. And in this case, like you, you just can't get this thing into play. There's no reasonable way that this thing can get into play. Okay, so let's let's TPS stop like, talking about TPS. I'm sorry that I meant yeah. to it first. Let's talk about your choice of other matchup then. Oath. Oath. Okay. Target creature can't yeah. attack or block. So this is inferior. This is better than trike. I mean, yeah. assuming you're, the, the use case of using trike to remove your whole creature board, notwithstanding, right? That's just not a path to victory. Um, yeah. But once it's in play and your opponent has oath and they're oathing, this is actually superior to everything that isn't duplicant. It's actually yeah, superior would, to duplicant because well, duplicants one for one and they just oath up another gristle brand. Yes and no. I mean, sometimes if they're like the two gristle brand list and like one of the gristle brands in their hand or one of the gristle brands like at the bottom of the top, 
Yeah, so Duplicant I, has has some advantage uh, over this in certain scenarios. Yeah, yeah. But broad, um, but more, but I would say more often than not, if they oath up Gristlebrand and you duplicate it, they're just going to go oath, <laughs> and they're going to put a second Gristlebrand yeah. into play. Yeah, I think the key thing is that it's really nice that you can turn off the Gristlebrand from attacking, and then you can use it to attack through the Gristlebrand. So they can never gain life with Gristlebrand. Oh, that's true. Now, a single Endbringer really won't win that race, unfortunately, but it does buy you time. Well, why not? A single you on their turn, you you activate it so it can't. The Gristlebrand can attack on your turn. You untap it and and, and activate it so Gristlebrand can't block. Oh, attack with and swing with other creatures. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, I missed the other creatures being in play part. Yes, absolutely. Your Lodestone Golem, your Mistress Factory, whatever can get through with Inbringer yeah. doing attack they and block duty. Gain life. Yep. they can never gain life. They can only take loot, take damage. So. Yeah. So, um, but, I mean, the castability is still an issue, of course, but yeah. this does have an advantage over most of the other endgame fatties. Now, I would posit that Steel Hellkite is still probably a better card in that matchup because it, if it comes online fast enough, it can answer the oath itself. Sure. So there's that. Um, but there are a few scenarios where you'd want this over some of the existing end, endgame creatures. Let's talk about, uh, you know, Gush decks. Let's talk about Delver slash Mentor. Well, this is obviously much better against Delver than it is against Mentor sure. because this this can kill Delver before it flips and Pyromancer anytime. Yep. But so can Staff of Nim. I'd rather have Staff of Nim in that matchup. Well, fair enough. Except this does have a five-five body on the ground, so it's which can be stolen with the Dak Fade. <laughs> no, this is I... not an artifact. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's its advantage. Yeah, Staff of Nim can be stolen with the Dak Fade, but it'll kill the Dak on the way out. Yeah. This this um does not get Dak. But it's incredibly slow. Yeah, it is. And also, the end game fatties are at their best in the creature matchups. Duplicant is still pretty darn good against a mentor or a pyromancer. Trike, obviously. Um, worm coil engine, obviously. You want to get all the combat you can with a worm coil engine. So, but the immunity to deck might be understated, though. I mean, as it pertains to, you've played metalworker in the mid game. You've slowed your opponent a little bit, but they've got some creatures. Maybe they resolved the Pyromancer when you were resolving Metalworker, and you're fighting on the ground now. This Endbringer is far better than most non-Worm Coil answers. I guess a Trike has the upside of possibly removing their team, but then it's hard to win the game with a Trike, you know, that's down to a 1-1 or a 2-2. This Endbringer, though, gets to just plow into a token and then kill another one on their turn. It's removing two tokens a turn. Oh, I mean, it removes the Pyromancer first, and then it blows down the tokens two at a time. So it's faster at that. Wormcoil I would still prefer, but I think this has a place in that matchup in terms of things you'd want in play at the end game. And how about the mirror then? In my opinion, obviously, the castability is at its worst in the mirror. But if you're the metalworker list and you get one activation, then this thing is still pretty big. This card is also susceptible to Revoker, so there's that, in a way that Worm Coil and Duplicant are not. So you'd have to watch out for that. So there's lots of pitfalls for this in the mirror. Also, the fact that Lodestone Golem makes this harder to cast, <laughs> which is just wretched i mean this thing could cost upwards of 12 mana in a mirror match (laughs) so there's that this is it's hard to say i mean if you had one of these in your list if you're if you're starting from the premise that you have this in your list and you're a metalworker based workshop deck and you sit down for the mirror and you're sideboarding do you board this out 
I, I don't think you board it I out. I don't even want to think about that. I just I don't think this card is playable at all. So I, I my opinion. I go ahead. I I am surprised to hear you say that just because you used previously the example of Karn Liberated, which has put two top eights up. I mean, yeah, I think Karn Liberated is insane. It, I, I mean, I think that card is, is powerful, really, but it costs one less than really, this, or one really more than this. I mean, yeah, I think Karn is Karn again. Um, I think Karn is really insane when when in play, and I don't feel that that way about this card. So okay, fair enough. I just um, I just can't shake the notion that this card is so flexible that it does something reasonably good in nearly every matchup. It's not good against uh, Storm. I'll give you that. Most of your six drops aren't. You're going to be boarding them out in a lot of cases. But I, I guarantee you, I'm predicting zero of this in top eight. Oh, so interesting. I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing that I'll be right, but I'm predicting zero. <laughs> well, <clears throat> let me talk. Let me put my hat on in terms of predicting players' behavior. Uh, you know, uh, actual behavior. I think this card is playable. Let's just put it that way. I think it's playable. I think that Metalworker is a perfectly cromulent version of Workshops. There are there have been several, not a lot, but there have been several. You know, more than Karn's two in the last quarter. And I think this card is a case. You can make a case for that in, in that deck. I think it's a one of at most. I think it's maybe it's even in the sideboard. Maybe people might like it in against Delver and Pyromancer. Um, they might like it in favor, you know, more than a trike against Oath or some such. And I'm gonna go non-zero. I'm going with one. Okay. I won't be surprised if it's a zero, but I would be shocked if it's if it's non-zero. <laughs> All right, well we'll see. Just just so it's it's just on the metal worker point. Yeah, metal worker sometimes he plays in workshop deck, mm-hmm. and it does pretty insane things in the workshop mirror. And there are a lot of great cards you can accelerate off of metal worker. And every once in a while, people in Europe play with non-artifact cards that they'll cast off of metal worker. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen an American do that. So fair enough. <laughs> well, um, if this card had existed, I'm trying to ask myself. There were eight Metalworker top eights in Q4 of 2015. If this card had been legal, would one of those players have played this? No. <laughs> it seems unlikely. This card is garbage, Kevin. Ping is terrible. Even two damage every turn is terrible. And distributed across turns. It, it does everything wrong. I, I'd rather have Dark Deathrite Shaman than this card. I mean, honestly. <laughs> You started off the first thing you said of your analysis. This is a Swiss Army knife, mm-hmm. and that's the problem. It's the wrong tools. Deathrite Shaman does so much more at one mana, mm. <laughs> it, which is a Swiss Army knife. I mean, it exiles cards. It does damage. Yep. It generates mana. This thing, <laughs> I mean, this I, I'm, I'm very not impressed with this card. Well, I would point out that you and I both predicted basically no appearances of Deathrite Shaman, and then it proceeded yep, to. That's- not true. We, I predicted death. I predict go back. I predicted it would see play. Yeah. How many? I think I said four or five was my prediction. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's that's a, a high number. I mean, we might not get anything at four or five in this one. So <laughs> this set review. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to matter reshaper. 2C, Creature Eldrazi. When Matter Reshaper dies, reveal the top card of your library. You may put that card onto the battlefield if it's a permanent card with converted mana cost 3 or less. Otherwise, put that card into your hand. 3-2. I like this card. It's It straddles the line between engine and value. It is clearly possible to put together some kind of engine or combo that this card is the, a key part of, and you can put your whole deck into play or some such, but... I think my favorite comparison for this card is Porcelain Legionnaire. Mm. 
because we've talked about porcelain legionnaire as kind of the it's the the standard bearer for mediocre creatures seeing playing <laughs> advantage uh, because it's just kind of occasionally it's just the right thing and the right curve and the right matchup and i believe this card is obviously harder to cast so we're going to get that out of the way right away you can't play this with a workshop as you've said this is like a yeah. this is like a two and a half three mana spell in workshops that you have to honestly pay for as opposed to cheating out on the first turn but you can still play it with ancient tomb mox emerald so it's it could be a first turn card and three two bodies obviously very comparable to porcelain legionnaire but this whole business of it, it replaces itself almost as good as you possibly can when it dies yeah. it's very yeah. very efficient at replacing itself in terms of its value and modern workshop decks are at the low end modern workshop decks are about 85 percent uh three mana cost permanents or less you're very high odds to put a permanent into play from this in a current contemporary workshop deck yep um well unless you hit like a uh golem or something right right that's the that's the 15 percent golems and smokestacks and a, and a few other high-end creatures Right. Yeah, I mean, the card that goes into play here goes into your hand. So Right, and you, you're not punished if it's a golem. You just draw it, that's all. Yeah, I mean, one of the drawbacks, though, is that your opponent, you know, if it goes to your hand, your opponent knows what the card is, so they can play around it. Granted, granted. Um, I guess the fundamental question, then, is a three-casting cost, non-workshop playable card, putting aside the difficulty of getting the colorless mana, right. that has this effect, is that playable? Um, I feel like it's but, right on the edge. Yeah, three is kind of the limit in vintage. I mean, at three, you have Tinker, Yogwill. In in non-restricted land, you have things like Dak, Trigon, Predator, Monastery Mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all those cards generate a lot of card advantage, mm-hmm. more than this does. Now, there's th- those cards don't generate a lot of card advantage in terms of virtual card advantage, meaning your opponent can't play spells. But then there's also some permanent-based card advantage, like Hangerback, Walker, yeah. and Ravager. This yes. one, this one is a mixture between permanent-based and just straight up drawing a card. Uh, the the challenge I would say is you can't determine what the card will be within reason in in a modern workshop deck. There's no draw manipulation in these workshop decks to speak of. If you were playing Sensei's Divining Top, well, that'd be a different matter. But the the truth is is that you're going to have to do some calculus anytime you want to get value out of this it, as it pertains to is the top card of my deck better than this permanent in play. And well, there's a lot of variability in the function of workshop cards as it pertains to spheres, other creatures, lands. It's just there's a broad spectrum of things to try and predict that way. Well, you're speaking a lot in terms of workshops. Where do you think, what kind of scenario or context would this card have the most power, Evan, in your opinion? Uh, I would say two scenarios. One would be the workshop mirror where attrition is king. Castability of your spells plus attrition yeah. is huge. So this mixing it up in combat with your opponent's lodestone and replacing itself with just about anything. You know, the next yeah. card in your deck is going to be great. So you're buying some mana there. But also post sideboard against decks that are trying to just remove your threats. This is great against an ingot chewer, right? Your opponent's going to yeah. get maximally punished for trying to just chewer this away. Well, what I was trying to get at is, isn't the best case scenario for this card is that your top of your library is a three mana permanent? Because that way you've maximized your mana advantage. You've gotten three free mana out of it, or it's completely replaced itself. Yeah. And you've put a, a spell into play that hasn't uncounterably, right? So I would say in terms of pure value, that is correct. Yeah. But to my earlier point, the various workshop cards at, at two to three mana are very diverse. Uh, 
So yeah, like uh, null Tangle rod, wire. yeah, null rod might be way better than tangle wire, even though it's one fewer mana. So the short answer to your question, I think, is actually no. <laughs> I mean, in the abstract, yes, you want to hit a three mana, but there aren't that many three manas, right? You got your crucibles and your tangle wires, your metal workers, a couple of other things. There's lots of two mana things that you'll hit. You'll hit ravager every once in a while. Hitting hangerback walker is a bummer. Um, but yeah. sometimes the two mana thing is the thing you want. You're going to get a sphere off of this half the time. And a lot of the time you're going to get just a wasteland or you're going to get another land. That's another thing that's, I think, part of the value in the workshop matchup is if you and your opponent are on curve with various things post-sideboard that's heavily creature-oriented, you hit an Ancient Tomb off of this, you just got a time walk. You just got way ahead. How are you, how are you killing this thing, though? Well, like, how are you... you're doing it with combat or you're doing it with Ravager. Or Cabal Therapy or something like that. Yeah, Ravager. Yeah, I'm not thinking about this in a context of any deck that has colored mana, but yes. I mean, okay. yes, there is an application for this in non-workshop decks. Don't get me wrong. I just feel like the obvious starting place is that porcelain legionnaire slot. I think. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I guess. Number one, I feel like porcelain legionnaire. It can be see play because it can be played off a workshop. Sure. So it's like you know, and then number two, this. I mean, you know, like with the last Eldrazi, I think it actually costs more than three in a workshop deck because if your opening hand is like, let's just say, workshop wasteland mocks, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't play this. You know, yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I'm there with you. I, I don't want to mischaracterize this as a, a really great tempo play. It's not. This is, you got to consider this thing to be about four or five mana. And, yeah, I mean, and so, like, if your opponent's smart, they're just going to not let this thing die if they can avoid it, right? So you don't get the value out of it. Well, so it's. It's too hard. I mean, I think good it's luck. Too hard. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, there's Ravager, <laughs> but I think it's per- It's not easy to regulate this thing. No, I, I mean, good luck winning a game in the workshop mirror without attacking with a creature on the ground. Well, you can put, you can just put a wall in front of it. I mean, right? Like, no, the point is defense, right? Okay, so your point yeah. is your opponent could just decline to attack you. Yeah, isn't that excellent value so, <laughs> in a workshop well, here? Yeah, I mean, they could. I get. Let me be more specific. I think they can just attack you when its value is maximized. When the when the value of attacking is maximized and the damage that the value this thing will create is minimized. Yeah. So you know, well, granted, like, I, I will give your opponent precarious board state. Precarious board state. You're not going to attack into this, but it, once in control, then you can attack into this, and then whatever it does probably won't matter. Yeah, I would say but, that that's a tautology, though. I mean, when when you've nullified your opponent's cards, it's okay to to kill them. I mean, <laughs> on the other hand, though, I mean, there is a lot of value in a workshop mirror. Like, if you get this down early, and then like there's a ton of spheres put into play, you can get into play a permanent that you otherwise would not be able to cast. Yeah. So. And ca- like a, like and, a well, was always decay or something, what, or sort of fire. Yeah, and the the. The workshop mirrors tend not to have that scenario arise because of spheres, but because of wastelands. So I would slightly amend what you just said, but the the sentiment is the same that getting a permanent into play is great value. Yeah, and not skipping the stack. Technical question: How do they define dies? Well, go, like, goes to the graveyard from it, the battlefield. So if you w- goblin weld it out, yes. you get the ability. that seems productive. You'd have to turn this into an artifact before you welded it, though. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. <laughs> this is not an artifact. I keep yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is uh, you know, yep. the old. Uh, that Aaron Forsyth deck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, what's that? The, the Master mirror. Transmuter and the... Yeah. And the the um, liquid metal coating. And there's also Memnark. Yep, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this this slots right into that liquid metal coating metal worker de- or uh, welder deck with survival <laughs> of the fittest. There you, <laughs> you go. You can cut the synergy with a knife. Jeez. <laughs> 
So I do not believe that this card is destined for greatness in Vintage. I feel like it's a role player, kind of like Endbringer that we just had the discussion of. The If you compare it to Porcelain Legionnaire's finishes, though, again, in Q4 of last year, Porcelain Legionnaire put up one top eight. In the quarter before that, it was many more. And, you know, this late summer of 2015, there were, looks like a dozen almost, top eight finishes of Porcelain Legionnaires around the world. And, you know, the second place deck at the NYSE Open 2, I'm sorry, 3, was uh, Ben Marlowe Donet's, uh, you know, robots deck that had Porcelain Legionnaire in it. Now, granted, I, I don't mean to make the case that this is precisely the same. The mana costs, when you blur their eyes, they look very similar, but they're totally different, right? You can't play this matter reshaper off of a workshop on turn one. That is huge. This is more of a value mid-game, you know, turn two or three kind of play for workshops. And as such, it might not be good enough. But I do think once it's in play, the mana value that this thing provides is quite good compared to Porcelain Legionnaire. I don't know. I think it's close. I think it's close in a similar way to how I felt Unbringer was close. Well, I, I feel like such a skeptic tonight, but I, I don't think it's that close. <laughs> well, for the purposes of what I'm positing, I think the mana restrictions on this thing are very important. I I only think Endbringer would work in the context of Metalworker, for example. I don't think yeah. this Matter Reshaper is a Metalworker card. Porcelain right. Legionnaire and Metalworker do not overlap. I just think it's too difficult to cast. I mean, it's just too narrow. And, and like, the fact that Workshop can cast it just takes out. I think it actually makes it not playable in Workshop decks, really. <laughs> I, it, I I I mean there is value here, but it's it's so hard to regulate. Mm-hmm. You can't. You, I mean there's it's un it's unregulatable in really two senses. One, there's no reliable way to control when it dies, and two, there's no reliable way to, to determine or shape like what what is going to be put into play with it when it dies. Yeah. So you know I think it's when you the degree of uncertainty around both is just way too high to make this a reliable value. I mean yeah I I would rather play I think a bunch of other cards that are at or around this casting cost that yeah that you wouldn't play anyway. that's fair and i was thinking about the non-workshop matchups i said earlier that your opponent's gonna punish gonna get punished for ingot chewing this thing which is obviously incorrect Not, the, the yeah. way they'd get punished is with lightning bolt or abrupt decay uh, yeah but uh, yeah which they would do i mean you're just gonna block this thing with tokens or whatever yeah you know I, I still just, think you're you're i think i still think you're over emphasizing how your opponent can just ignore a 3-2 ground-based creature that doesn't actually work that way in Mentor and Pyromancer matchups. Yeah, let me explain what I mean. So, you know, let's say you're playing whatever with this card, and you play it on turn one or two, and I'm playing a Mentor or Delver deck. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into a situation where I'm going to let you attack me probably for a few turns until I establish complete control of the game. At that point, it doesn't matter what you get with it. Mm. Well, then, so I'm going to I'm going to suck up maybe even as many as like 12 damage from this thing, you know, like I could see that I would probably not let it go unimpeded that long. But yeah, that's what I would do. I would probably like throw a, a, a mentor token. I mean, probably a pyromancer token or something in front of it if I needed. But I wouldn't really you know, be that concerned about it. I was thinking the converse, where in that scenario, when you're attacking with it, yeah, your opponent can choose not to block. That's fairly obvious. Um, but 
as it pertains to your opponent having a pyromancer or a mentor and they're creating attackers against you, they yeah. can't control when you block with this thing. Sure, sure, but I, I can certainly control when I attack with tokens. And if I attack with a bunch of pyromancer tokens, you can't block multiple tokens at yeah, once. So that's true. So pyromancer might be a, just a bad matchup for this card. It, it Delver is going to fly over. Yeah. So. And if pyromancer is a bad matchup, meaning you can't get maximal value in combat, the only way you're going to get your opponent to block this thing is if you're overwhelming them which is not unheard of but they may simply be blocking other things and not this so they could conceivably go for a whole game without giving you any value out of it yeah i think you'd be much better off even in a workshop playing something like wingmare or one of those um three casting costs dahlia cards interesting well and this doesn't interact with ravager i keep i kept thinking that it does the whole artifact thing swings both ways yeah we both made the mistake of an artifact in different ways yeah so you really can't control when this thing dies yep all right so let's go with some zeros then although i would say that this is probably a good card in other formats (laughs) from a value standpoint next up is thought not seer for three c creature eldrazi when thought not seer enters the battlefield target opponent reveals his or her hand you choose a non-land card from it, exile that card. When Thought Not Seer leaves the battlefield, target opponent draws a card. 4-4. Four, four. Now this one was a request from Twitter, and this card I think is super powerful in formats where you can cast it. Yep. But I think it's I think it's the worst of all possible worlds as it pertains to the <laughs> last two creatures we just discussed. I mean this thing yeah. is this thing is disruptive, don't get me wrong. And it's the yep. kind of disruptive that a workshop deck would really like to have these days. Right. A surgical removal spell for their hand, right? Get get that ingot chew or that Hercules recall out of there. The mana cost here though is it's high. It's not as high as Endbringer. But I don't think you can justify putting this into a metalworker shell because of how low impact it is for the mana cost. Yeah, and when it leaves play, it has a devastating drawback. Yeah. It also sucks. I, I mean, I, I can understand the, the, the utility of this disruptive element is, is pretty clear. You're, you have to consider that you're not, um, it's not duress, it's Vendillion Click. It's yeah. Vendillion Click with a delay. So it's better than Vendillion Click, right? And Vendillion Click, well, or that per- well, Vendillion Click is played for its purpose in Vintage. Now you can't use this on yourself, so and it doesn't have flash. No, I know, but I'm not talking about the body. I'm talking about yeah, the ability. Just the yeah. ability. If you took Vendillion Click's ability and said, "Hey, you're not going to draw the replacement card for a couple of turns," that'd be a pretty big upgrade. But so now we're talking about does workshops yep. want Vendillion Click on a four-four body? And the short answer is yes. But I think that. The mana cost here, you, you'd have to, in, you pretty much have to invest in Metalworker to cast it. Then you're, so you're putting another delay, another gate on when you can get this thing into play. And I just think it's too late. Does Sin, has Sin Collector seen any play in Vintage of late? Because that's the, that to me is the comparable card. I mean, obviously comparable in the sense of that particular effect. Sin Collector's but, last top eight was in 2014. I mean, that that card yeah, left the. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think this card is interesting. I think we've nailed all the comp the comps here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the casting cost is a bit out of range. The body's nice. It doesn't have evasion though, like Click does. Click has flying, and that's another advantage of Click has. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't think this is something you're going to metalworker out. I mean, for for one thing, even if you have it in your hand, metalworker doesn't generate mana with the metalworker. Yeah. Play it. So you you have to be really selective about the cards that are non artifacts in the metalworker deck, and I don't think this one makes the cut. I'm going to go zero on this. Yeah. Ironically, I think that punch is not high enough to justify it as you put in a metalworker deck. I'd be more likely to put an endbringer in such a deck than one of these. But 
Let's move on. Sphinx of the final word. 5-U-U. Creature Sphinx. Sphinx of the final word can't be countered. Flying. Hexproof. Instant and sorcery spells you control can't be countered by spells or abilities. 5-5. Five, five. This card comes up or came up as an interesting oath target. Now, mm-hmm. it kind of bleeds into that realm of this is like a somewhat castable oath creature. It's an <laughs> oath creature that can be pitched to force. But the real question is, let's just skip ahead. Assume that you got this into play with an oath of druids. How good is it? What next? How does it compare to Gristlebrand or Tidespout Tyrant or whatever? Or Dragonlord Dramica. Yeah, yeah, or Dragonlord Dramica. <laughs> I, so... I don't want to jump the gun here, but Dragon you Lord have to Kelly. compare it. This is a Dragon Lord Kelly finisher. <laughs> yeah, you have to compare the stats to Dragon Lord Dramica. It costs one more, but the mana cost is all blue, so that's a close to a wash. Both of them cannot be countered, so if you're putting them onto the stack, <laughs> then they're both going to resolve. They both have flying. This one has hexproof, which means no swords to plowshares from your okay. opponent. No Jace the Mind Sculptor. Dragon Lord Dramica has lifelink, which is surprisingly useful in the contexts where you would play Dram- Dr- Especially uh, Dramica. Especially when you play Sylvan Library. Yep. Yes, that's a good example. And they both have some kind of protecting your spells aspect. This says instance and sorcery spells you cast can't be countered by spells or abilities. Just cannot. Dragon Lord Dramica says your opponent can't cast spells during your turn. The marginal utility of one of those abilities over the other is is pretty hard to evaluate, in my opinion. I mean, oh. Dramica's, Dramica was very functionally specific in Brian Kelly's oh. winning list because it protects the Salvagers combo. You're getting kind of far down the rabbit hole. Let me intervene here for a second. Let me say if, okay. So, so first of all, this this doesn't this protects itself a lot better than Dra- Dragon Lord Dramica. I faced Dragon Lord Dramica in a bunch of tournaments and on Magic Online or small events and including the the Power 9 Challenge. And I plow mm-hmm. that thing every time he comes into play. The, this Sphinx can't be plowed. Hexproof is huge. Um, I also think, you know, just being blue is better, of course. But I've also faced a situation where my opponent has three mana in play. They still been into the Lotus and they cast the Dragon Lord, where you couldn't cast the Sphinx. But it would mm-hmm. just be one more mana. So I, I, think, I think overall... I'm going to call Brian Kelly from now on Dragon Lord Kelly. Uh, <laughs> Dragon Lord Kelly, I think, would do really well with this card in his oath deck. I think it pitches to force. Um, it is just, it's playable, it's hard castable. And I think it actually allows you to combo out better in some ways and protect your spe- it protects all of your instants and sorceries right so you can pass the turn it might not help you combo out better but the dragon lord kelly oath doesn't actually do that except with salvagers right so you have to, right. you have to wait whereas i think just to get this straight i mean all of your instants and sorcery spells can't be countered so i feel like even if your things get targeted somehow they're you're going to be able to easily protect them and shield them with your own counter magic I think that in Brian's particular list, Dramica is still superior because because of the Salvagers combo. Because you have that, I'm going to end the game, and yeah. you can't say anything about it, literal anything about it. Well, but if you're talking, if you're predicting a longer game, even more than one or two turns, the Sphinx of the Final Words power is going to come into play. The fact that it can't be removed or plowed, right? Yes. So it's going to sit there, yeah. and it's going to provide incremental value in any of the counter yeah. interactions you I have. Mean, I would. I'm just let me be clear. When I'm playing a Mentor or a Delver deck, I'd be far more scared of the Sphinx than Dragon Lord Dramica. Far more because I can't, it can't be plowed. Like that to me is the is the key thing. It can't be jaced, you know. Well, um, that's true. But let me let me counteract that by saying <clears throat> it's easier to win 
through the Sphinx of the Final Word than it is Dragon Lord Dramica because of the lifelink and seven toughness. Your opponent with Dragon Lord Dramica yes. can race you. Yes and no. I mean, if on my turn, if I play, um, let's say I play Gush, and you have this guy in play, and you mm-hmm. go Pyroblast. I'm like, oh, crap, mm-hmm. I can't misstep that. You know, I mean, all your counterspells, all your removal just becomes, I, I don't think if you, I think we're trying to make too much of a one-to-one comparison between the two for good reason, but I think that when you include this, it's going to change the way your deck looks in different kinds of ways. Yeah, that's fair. So, so you might, you know, you're probably going to be running more bombs, maybe like some more like Yogwill and things like that, as opposed to Salvagers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe even like Flash of Insight to find to get the will um but but i hear you in terms of the hex the, the lifelink is great but i the hex proof I is, think, is, is just as good in some situations if not better well you you can't make a case that sphinx of the final word is better than dragon lord dramica with anything that's sorcery speed dramica is far better to protect your yogmoth's will than the sphinxes that's true that's true so you're talking about stuff on your opponent's turn yeah that's the i mean because with Dragon Lord Dramica out, everything you play on your turn is uncounterable. Well, <laughs> no, that's that's true, and it's also not in the sense that um, they both can't be countered from the stack. Um, but um, yeah, and the Dragon Lord Dramica really does shield a lot of the sort of mid rangey shenanigans that Brian Dragon Lord Kelly likes to do. <laughs> um, right, but it's making everything on your turn uncounterable. So that's why I say. You, in order to get value out of the Sphinx, you really have to expect to so, pass the turn and do stuff on your opponent's turn. So I guess the question... It's your instance. Yeah, I mean, and I guess from Brian Kelly's decks, they do pass the turn a lot. You know, like, sure. he does that. And and I think that um, you kind of would like to have that ability distributed a bit more. So I... I I can see having a preference for having all your instants and sorceries uncounterable on both turns as opposed mm-hmm. to your turn. Yeah, overall, I think this card compares very fair. Sure, th- look, there are ways that, that Dragon Lord Dramica is, is better, but this mm-hmm. discussion, I think, just shows they're fairly comparable, and therefore I think Sphinx of the last word is, or the final word is playable. It's playable. Yeah, I would agree with your conclusion. It is playable. I think also we're kind of glazing over the notion that brian's oath list was five colors <laughs> i mean gr- uh, granted your oath list is going to be green and it's going to be blue but there's no guarantee that it's white also for for dramica so a, a player who's trying to play bug oath and would prefer to be able to cast all their creatures even at the extremes might favor the sphinx over Dr- dramica one other thing that is an advantage for dramica is with Gristlebrand, the lifelink matters a lot more so that's that's in the other column but I think a redesigned oath list that's built on similar principles but different construction with, mm-hmm. with, that accentuates Sphinx's abilities is perfectly legitimate. Yeah, I agree. I do think it's playable. Is it playable in any other context? Probably not. Any deck that's interested in putting a creature of this magnitude on the stack is likely to choose either Dramica or for castability or Consecrated Sphinx. Yeah, what I was going to say is that the obvious other home is a, is a slow mono blue deck. But in that case, Consecrated Sphinx is probably has a slight edge. Yeah. But it could you could run both. I mean, a mono blue deck that runs like Ancient Tombs and things like that. You could imagine playing that card, I guess. Sphinx Tribal, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sphinx Tribal. <laughs> so, double uncounterability with Cavern of Souls. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's put our money where our, our mouth is. I mean... Dragonlord Dramica has made several top eight appearances in, in Q4. After Brian's winning performance at Champs, there were another, looks like, eight top eights for Dramica. And it's funny because it switched from being almost, yeah, to being from it being entirely Oath, which was also almost entirely Brian Kelly, 
after champs to being almost entirely mentor <laughs> because Brian pioneered putting a single Dramica into mentor decks and then off to the races. And then Rich Shea did similarly Kevin? later in November. Yeah, lost you for a second. Doesn't Brian, the other card I was thinking of that Brian sometimes plays is Dragon Lord Ojitai. Oh yeah, sure. That was the other one I meant. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I don't think that the Sphinx competes with Dragon Lord Ojitai very no. well. I think Ojitai gets the nod in those implementations. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm going to say non-zero, I'll say one. Okay. I'm going to go with zero. I don't I don't think this really gets the nod ultimately, but we'll see. It's close. Yeah, I, I like I feel like it has more scope of application than Dramica, just because it's it's not white and green in the casting cost. <laughs> right. Which puts it Fair in enough. either oath or like kind of a, a bant mentor deck. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're moving further up the ladder of Eldrazi mana costs to talk about Deceiver of Form for 6C, Creature Eldrazi. At the beginning of combat on your turn, reveal the top card of your library. If a creature card is revealed this way, you may have creatures you control other than Deceiver of Form become copies of that card until end of turn. You may put that card on the bottom of your library. 8-8. Steve, you wanted to talk about this one. Yeah, I think pretty, pretty it, interesting mechanic. Yeah, I I mean, so the the reason this card is interesting to me is because it's another way to cheat things into play. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's very conditional. So, <laughs> you know, the first condition is that you it has the card that you want to cheat has to be on top of your library. And so you'd have to have some specific kind of library manipulation like a Sylvan Tutor or, you know, I forget what this Sylvan Tutor analog is. Worldly Tutor. Worldly Tutor, yeah. Well, Sylvan yeah. Tutor is the portal one. The, the, the slower one, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah <laughs> slower in the sense of sorcery speed, yeah. <laughs> um, I would posit that the first condition is that you have to have gotten this seven mana Eldrazi into play. For sure, for sure. So to, to profit off that, you'd have to be running a really, really good card you could cheat into play with it. You know? So that's the well, thing. And I, I would... I would go even further than that. I would say you'd have to be running a card that whatever method you use to put this Eldrazi into play, it doesn't work on the card you really want. (laughs) See my point? Yes, I do. But there's also one other thing, and that Deceiver of Form doesn't become the creature. You have to have at least one other creature. And so what you really are talking about is something that you want to have more than one of in play, I would argue. Because if it were Gristlebrand, you would have just put it into play. If it were Emrakul, you would have just put it into play. Also, this doesn't play well with Legends. Because you, if you have Deceiver of Form and two, I don't know, Eldrazi Scions next to it, it putting making them both into Gristlebrand is bad news. You just lose one. Yeah. So you'd, you'd want it to be something that really benefited from having multiples in play. Yeah. Well, I've lost track of the... You make all good points. I've lost track of the, the sheer number of um, ways to cheat cards into play. No, I, I mean, there's obviously Oath, Tinker, and there's the, the ones that see play in Legacy, like Sneak Attack and Show and Tell and uh, nat, nat, Natural Select... Natural Order. Natural Order, right. And then there's a couple other weird ones, like the, I think there's a red five-mana one. This is just another one of those, although it's seven mana, but it has an 8-8 body. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't think this is playable, but I just wanted to note, yes, there's yet another way to cheat even more expensive cards into play. <laughs> That's right. If it ever came to pass that there was some need to cheat in multiple copies of something, this would be high on the list. All those other me- methods you just mentioned get you just one copy. I mean, within reason, Sneak Attack yeah. can put more than one in. But if you had a reason that you needed to get two or more copies of something cheaty into play, this could do it with a lot of help. <laughs> Let's move on to Reality Smasher. 4C, Creature Eldrazi, Trample and Haste. 
Whenever reality, reality Smasher becomes the target of a spell an opponent controls, counter that spell unless its controller discards a card. 5-5. Five, five. Yeah, this card strikes me as probably the best of the Eldrazi. Um, so one... Really? Yeah. First of all, first of all, the haste is non-trivial, as we know from the Slash Panther experience. <laughs> right. Back to our third podcast. Uh, <laughs> haste is very good in Vintage as it pertains to Planeswalkers. It's good against Jace and Tezzeret. Number two, uh, it's one more mana than Slash Panther, but it, with tra- it has Trample, which is really nice, um, so that it can get to things that would, like, a Planeswalker, even through blocking. Mm-hmm. And it has built-in protection, which is the most intriguing element of all, because, you know, a 5-5 five five is definitely worthy of trying to deal with. But Swords, yeah. It actually has the advantage that by not being an artifact, it's harder to remove. And then the cards that can remove it, they have to lose cards, you know, like just cost two cards to get rid of it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it just strikes me that this is one of the more intriguing of the Eldrazi. I think this is... It's straddling that line. It's on the it's on the high side of the line in terms of castability, where the only real way you're going to do this to get it on the stack is with Metalworker reliably. I mean, it's five mana that oh. you can't tap a workshop for. Yeah, I mean, the the competition, I wasn't even thinking about necessarily in a workshop deck per se, but you can imagine, like, let's say there's a, I don't know how many of these decks exist right now. Maybe there should be more. Monocolored Ancient Tomb decks in the format. Right. Restriction of Chalice of the Void, unfortunately, weakened that, that whole strategy. And maybe in the era, you know, maybe we would have seen more of those at some point, um, you know, like with the, the mono blue version or whatever. But the, it's hard, you know, it, to me, this could be something that exists in that world, that domain. The problem is I don't really know what it would be competing against because we don't really evaluate five casting cost creatures very often. And <laughs> <laughs> well, to your point, there there aren't very many of those ancient tomb decks that are not also workshop decks. The mono blue ones with Consecrated Sphinx and Trinket Mage, those were the ones that were most successful. Those were mostly uh, Blood Moon decks, you know, Blue Moon. Yeah. And they're not they're not that popular. They put up a couple of good performances right. late summer, but lately not much at all. Yeah, you know, I think the restriction of Chalice really hurt them. That's yeah, that was one of the fin- fundamental tenets of those decks is they were abusing the one mana uh, activation, not activation, the one mana configuration of Chalice to hurt all the other blue decks and be mostly immune to it themselves. And immune to misstep in the process, yep. Yes, yes, yes. So... As it pertains to the creature base in one of those decks, I have a hard time buying that you would play this over over like a tes- Tezzeret. Yeah, that's that's what I think. It's not a creature. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a win condition. So maybe outside of blue, you have a better case. Maybe there's a black or white ancient tomb deck. Black comes to mind just because of uh, Dark Depths, Vampire Hex Mage. I mean, maybe there's a heavily mono black or entirely mono black deck out there that wants a good beater black actually in mono black has yeah. some issues at around five mana it doesn't have great finishers yeah that are in the discard in black makes this heart makes this protection stronger so there's that's a good point if you're if you're setting up your game with thought season duress and then the liliana of the veil yeah and then you're finishing with one of these it's it's very reasonable that your opponent could find themselves in a scenario where they have just swords to plowshares in their hand and can't use it yeah and then you just using Liliana every turn to keep him off it. Yeah, that seems seems that's I mean that's a non-zero chance that something like that is viable. But 
those decks, decks like that, have so many cards that they're trying to play. Yeah. <laughs> those decks tend not to have high mana costs at all. Those decks tend to end at three mana. Fair enough. And a five mana finisher seems uh, just unnecessary, I guess is one way I'd put it. But given that we're talking about such a rogue strategy, it's hard to speak to necessity. Are you familiar with this particular kind of built-in protection ever seen being used elsewhere in Magic? I did some searches and I I didn't see it, but I didn't do a comprehensive search. I think this particular trigger with these conditions is unique. Counter it unless they discard a card. The whole counter unless you do something is the originally Nether Void, but it's almost <laughs> almost all the examples I can think of are just mana. Aren't they like you the know, Punisher the, mechanic variant on that too? Uh, that's true, mana or life, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of like the Frost Titan kind of cycle of cards. Then there's also yeah, Punishers are there, so if you target it, you lose life. Then there's there's um countered unless you pay mana in Legacy, which was uh, the blue blue one light legend. What was her name? Kira. Oh. Oh yeah, she she yeah. all your creatures that. There you go. Granted. Yeah. Um, but then there's also some triggers where if you play a spell, you discard like oppression. Uh, yeah, I think this is unique. I think this particular configuration is new. Pretty powerful. That's, I mean, one reason I wanted to talk about. It. It's a pretty neat ability. So, if, so for, to maximize this ability, you'd want to be playing a deck that would benefit from the attrition value, right? Definitely. Definitely. A deck that even if they did spend the two cards to remove this, you're punishing them in some other way. Yeah. And I think that Mono Black, Mono Black is a good example of that. Mono Blue is still probably top of the list, but that's just vintage for you. Mono Black Ancient Tomb. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> with Negator or something. <laughs> nice nice all right um yeah mono black we only pay three mana for our five fives <laughs> well i think at this point we're still both going with zero Definitely. though right yep this is not going to create that deck necessarily this next one is going to be hard and fun to evaluate storm chaser mage for blue red creature human wizard flying haste prowess one three this card is I, l- I like that this card exists it's way fun i don't think i mean so the mana cost is there is this mana cost ever actually been played that you can think of blue red i mean i, I could think of Razorfin hunter as a yeah. card but i don't know if i ever saw play and oh is you know the closest thing might be uh the is it guild mage remember when is it guild mage saw some yeah. play back when it was well, printed a couple well, years back well, dak faden has has blue and red and it's casting cost um, true so Something that's, yeah, that's the closest I think. Fire Ice is obviously a little bit different, but... <laughs> right. So I guess what we're saying is this mana cost might not exist specifically, right. but things hover around it such that it's certainly castable. And a two mana, one, three flying haste prowess, I mean, that's that's new <laughs> in the world, basically. This card is clearly competing with other creatures in gush aggro decks it's clearly competing with the young pyromancers and delvers and mentors of the world as a but not to replace any of them i don't think in in my opinion it's competing more with things that are seeing play rarely like swift spear or geez i don't know kiln fiend yeah. <laughs> we've talked about these vertical growth creatures so many times managing hydra all these yeah. things yeah yeah and we've talked about a couple of other prowess creatures none of which have really seen the light of day what's the white one that we predicted would see play and did the one that's an enchantment and then you activate it gets permanent tokens though myth realized yeah, yeah. i sometimes see that thing on magic online it's yeah annoying <laughs> So this this card, I feel like I said it was competing with like the likes of Delver and Pyromancer, but there's no way that it, re- it supplants those. No, 
No, Delver gets a lot of value out of being one. Granted, just one mana and and, and uh, just three power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think this is better than Aquarian Dryad, unfortunately. No, the thing is, this flying in haste, so you got some evasion, and it hits, it hits immediately, and it has prowess, so you could even pump it up the turn you play it. Yep. With Moxin and, and and probe and such and gush, but even if you did all that, if you played this thing on turn two and then played a Lotus and played a preordain and played a gush and played a probe it became five power right right and then is the that, next turn... is that even worth it no no it's not <laughs> i mean it's just not as good as waiting a turn for a mentor or just playing pyromancer and getting the permanent tokens out of the deal yeah. it really in fact i think this card just underscores how powerful the permanent is over the you know whether it's actually another creature or an, a plus one plus one counter count yeah for the temporary nature i mean kiln fiend just leaps this thing leaps and bounds because it gets plus three three yeah yeah so you just did that with Kilfin, you win the game. <laughs> you just described. <laughs> let, let me let me pose a question then in another way. Is there a scenario where you're playing against any deck in Vintage right now that you would prefer to have this in play? Over? Over anything. I mean, over Delver, over Pyromancer, over Mentor, over Quirion Dryad, over well, Matter Reshaper. <laughs> probably, like, I can imagine, like, what if there's, like, two Pyromancer standoffs? Mentor standoffs don't really happen because... Not not usually, no. Yeah, but Pyromancer standoffs do can happen um, because it doesn't take... Even a small imbalance with Mentor... With, uh, small imbalance with Mentor becomes a huge imbalance in magnitude. Right. Whereas, Landslide, usually. Yeah, whereas a small a small difference in Pyromancer means you can't attack. <laughs> <laughs> right, you get one damage in or something. Yeah, if you lose one... Yeah. <laughs> you sacrifice your team to yeah. deal one damage. <laughs> yeah, I see your point exactly. So... Then the question, of course, is, is this card worth playing to address that scenario? Almost certainly not. There are plenty of other cards that are far better at addressing that scenario and are more versatile cards. Yeah, this guy has three nice abilities, but none of them that are really that important. Yeah, I feel like we could talk until we're blue in the face about this, but we would just land on we're never going to put this in over anything we're currently playing. Yeah, <laughs> you, we could talk as, until our faces are blue and our ears are red. <laughs> we could talk until the cows come home about Storm Age. <laughs> But let's move on. Dimensional Infiltrator. One U creature Eldrazi. Devoid Flying Flash with the following ability. 1C colon. Target opponent exiles the top card of his or her library. If it's a land card, you may return Dimensional Infiltrator to its owner's hand. 2-1. So that's a that's a laundry list of abilities. Yeah, I mean a two mana two one is there are lots of those in Vintage C play, especially with Flash and Flying. Um, Snapcaster Mage doesn't have Flying, but has the other one. Flash. Yeah. Just to be clear, you can't pitch this to Force, right? It's devoid. Cannot. That's right. Yep. But this has a nice little ability where you can exile cards from the top of your opponent's library. At instant speed, even. Yeah, at instant speed. And you could do it multiple times a turn as long as you have a colorless, not generic mana, Mm -hmm. put into it. Um, And the exile is nice. And then if you can also, if it's a land card, return it to your hand so it has not only built-in evasion but a little bit of built-in conditional protection as well um, right so the thing that i'm wondering is um you know 
how valuable is exiling the top card of your opponent's library? I mean, mill, milling, millstone clearly doesn't have a lot of value in contemporary vintage because not only is it very difficult to deck your opponent, but it actually gives your opponent value, gives them cards to recur with Yogwill, delve spells, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. this exiles them directly. So I'm wondering, what is the value of just exiling the top card of your opponent's library? What do you think? I mean, you can take people off of a particular color of mana, some restricted cards, you know, so if you get this down on, like, let's say your opponent, you can probably go like landmarks go, right? And then your opponent's end step, you, you cast this, then you untap, you play a third land, you pass the turn back. You know, if you have a colorless mana source, you could presumably use it immediately. And then the next turn, you could use it two more times. What's the value of that? I think the value. Yeah, I think the value in the scenario you put it and across the board is far is very low. Yeah, it's true that vintage decks, especially blue decks, especially combo decks, combo and combo control decks, do have certain weaknesses to targeted exile. Dark petition storm has usually two win conditions: tendrils, yeah, and and maybe a, a empty empty the warrants. Uh, Tezzeret text obviously the one time vault maybe the one key tinker target doesn't doesn't totally neuter them but it makes it very difficult for them to win so certain decks do have weaknesses to those kind of things obviously the scenario you just mentioned and without any other serious combinatorial <laughs> effects a random card out of the remaining 50 some cards in your opponent's library has a very low likelihood of being one of those big hits yeah so over the course of a tournament and some random activations you get a couple of these each round you could go a whole event without hitting a single true game-breaking you know removal right then there are plenty of other situationally okay things to do if you if you happen to hit two of your opponent's sources of a color as you put it certain decks have very low counts of certain colors you could hit a couple of their sideboard cards post sideboard but that's luck of the draw type stuff so i don't think it's i mean you're you're totally correct that exiling is far better than milling and vintage far better for a number of reasons but the simple truth is is this is in terms of utility is pretty close to just milling them hoping you're hit something valuable yeah yeah i mean we don't i i haven't really seen a card that just exiled the top card of the opponent's library in a long time so i was wondering what the value is yeah. um it's probably just better to have like an extract <laughs> yeah, or extirpate yes i would agree okay yeah if you want to prey on those decks that have very low win condition counts yeah. extract or extirpates are well workshop decks are so uniform better. it really doesn't do anything the, the combo decks are where it has the highest value or the oath decks but your chances of hitting something are extremely low so even where the matchups where it's valuable the probabilities are low and you'd have to have a ton of activations to make it worthwhile so and unlike certain other things like surgical extraction slash extirpate it's very difficult to combo with this to set up the beneficial scenario okay it's very difficult to put cards on top of your opponent's library <laughs> yeah we don't we don't need to make the, Im- we don't need to make yeah, a prediction of this card i think we both predict zero the next card yeah. i i didn't want to discuss because of a prediction but i had one question for you about it so go ahead and introduce the card and i'll pose my question all right the re- steve's talking about hedron alignment for two u enchantment hex proof at the beginning of your upkeep, you may reveal your hand. If you do, you win the game if you own a card named Hedron Alignment in exile, in your hand, in your graveyard, and on the battlefield. It also has an activated ability of 1U Scry 1. So my question, so obviously you win the game if you can get this in exile, hand, battlefield, and graveyard. And it has right. Scry to help facilitate that. And it has Hexproof to build them to protect it. My question yep. for you is, which do you think of those as the hardest to do and which is the easiest? In Vintage. Yeah. 
In vintage, the easiest is either graveyard or hand, <laughs> um, depending on the mechanisms you use, right? You can tutor for this, so hand is easy that way. Graveyard is easy if you built like a bizarre deck or something. So it's one of those two, close tie, ties being broken by deck construction. The hardest one is in play in Vintage. It does have hexproof, but it doesn't. you still have to resolve it. Yeah, yeah the hard, getting it onto the stack as, well, it, as it pertains to workshops and combo, and then getting it to stay, or getting it to resolve as it pertains to control. That sounds reasonable, but I think it's surprising that you say that it's harder to ex- harder to get into play than exile. That reveals something about them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in easier. exile, you can achieve in a number of ways, right? Obviously, you can pitch it to force yeah. of will. You can also mill it and then exile it yourself with something like uh, fairy macabre, or I was going to say surgical extraction, but that yeah. would remove all of them. Easy to do, but stupid. Um, I actually think exile is harder to do than get into play. Interesting. Not by a long shot, right. mind you, but That's still. That's fascinating. I mean, it, it's true there's only one way to, only, you generally one way to get a card into play, although you can use some cheaty effects to get into play, like a show yeah. and tell. But, uh, <laughs> but you have more opportunities to get something into play by casting it than you do in the exile zone by exiling in general. So I'm surprised to hear you say that. I'm not shocked, but I, I think it's funny. <laughs> it's easier to exile something than to resolve it. <laughs> well, I mean, picture, all it takes is you to construct your deck such that it has force of will and misdirection in it, right? Yep. So if you open this in your opening hand and you look at your hand and you're like, yeah. I have no mana, but I have a force and a misdirection, I'm going to be able to exile this yeah. card. <laughs> well, well, yeah, you can exile with with Dig Through Time, Treasure Cruise, Force of Will, Misdirection. Yeah, yeah I mean, right. the way to build the deck to use this card is probably Dakfaden.deck and all the pitch counters. Sure. And then all you try and do is <laughs> just, like you said, get one in your hand, yeah. graveyard, and <laughs> so on. That's funny. Okay, <laughs> the next card is very exciting, so go ahead and describe what you Yeah, love love looking forward to talk about this one. This is Jory N, comma, Ruin Diver. One, you are legendary creature Merfolk Wizard. Whenever you cast your second spell each turn, draw a card. Two, three. Some Relic Hunters have given up exploring and gone to fight the Eldrazi. But I know our work is more important than ever. The secrets we uncover could lead to the world's salvation. Jory N here has a pretty high opinion of his or herself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Christ-like figure. Uh, uh-huh. So let's take the smallest elements and begin breaking it apart. First and foremost, it is three mana and a very playable mana cost, as we know from Dak Fade. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, it's a merfolk which, well, there's this whole deck that plays those cards. <laughs> Number three, it starts out with a 2-3 body, which is Trigon Predator's body. Um, number four, it's legendary, so you're not going to, fortunately, be able to run multiple at the same time and play. And number five, let's just focus in on this uh, ability. Whenever mm-hmm. you cast your second spell each turn, draw a card. Let's just start with that. So we spent Bef- a lot before of... Before you go further, Steve, I just want to toss out there. I did a quick search. Jory N is a female merfolk from Balaged on Zendikar. Good to know. I have no yeah. idea what Balaged is, but... <laughs> it's a place. <laughs> oh, I picked that, but is it a planet? <laughs> nation? Anyway. Uh, um, so we did spend a lot of time in... I forget which card it was now. The surge thing. I mean, it's basically got a little bit of a surge mechanic kind of built in. Yeah. So it's not hard at all, as we discussed, to get a second card on your turn. Mox, spell. Attacks and probe, spell. Right. Gush, preordain. Uh, whatever. Easy. 
And I th- or just Haymaker plus Force Backup. Yeah, Haymaker plus... Exactly. It kind of has like a Mystic Remora built in. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, the question is, how reliably can you use this ability on your opponent's turn? And I think we kind of answered that question, right? Your opponent, if they play a spell, you're in, you're in business, right? Right. If they play a spell. If they don't play a spell, there's... it's You could do it once, and then you're probably done. <laughs> right. right. But, but your opponent has to play spells, so... Right? <laughs> Within reason, yeah. So if your opponent doesn't play spells, you're in good shape because you don't need to draw cards because they're not doing anything. If they do play spells, you're going to be able to activate this very easily. Um, so it seems to me this card just a win-win. And I think it's very possible, if not probable, to set up a deck where as soon as you resolve this, you draw a card. Then every turn thereafter, you draw an additional card with it. How good is a card if you can do that? Turn three. Very good. Yeah, very good, right? <laughs> I mean, we're talking better than Jace quality. I, I want to throw a hypothetical out there just to illustrate uh, how the, the baseline utility, I think, for this. Imagine a Jeskai Mentor deck, just a, I don't know what build exactly, but a basic gush-based, preordained, you know, swords to plowshares, that kind of thing, and take out the Mentors and replace them with Jorian. So and I'm not advocating this as a way to play this card. I'm just talking about baseline measures. So you take the Mentors out of a Mentor deck and replace them with this. How reliably do you think you'd be drawing cards in that baseline existing deck? Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, I Like I said, I think you would probably be drawing cards, I'd say, at least four out of six turns. Now, are you talking about your turn and your opponent's? Yes. So, like, you know, from turn, like, 4A to 7B, I think yeah. you'd probably be drawing cards, an additional card with this card, four out of the six turns, at least. So you're thinking almost 100% of the time on your turn, and then one out of three of your opponent's turns. That's how I read that. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. I think that's a reasonable interpretation. And in that guise, if this card said you're going to draw four cards over the course of the next, basically, three turns... Yeah. That's a pretty powerful exchange rate. <laughs> this card's... But... Yeah. But l- let me throw one thing out there, though. Is it that much better... And I, I'm not predicting an answer here. Is it that much better than the modern iteration of the Ophidian effect, which I think the best example yes. right now is Jeshin Thief? Yes, it is much better. It's much better because, again, I, th- I think you're... Actually, in the example I was thinking of, I was thinking you're going to be able to activate this on two of your three turns and probably two of your opponent's turns. That's the four out of six. Because, first of all, um, this does not require an attack step. It happens regardless Mm. of anything else. Good point. Your opponent has to play spells. And as long as you can get, you know, as long as, if you get into even a minor counter war, where you play like Misstep and Pyroblast, you draw. So Uh um, it's got a little bit of the Remora feel like that. So um, I think I think um, I forgot what your question was at this point, but um, is it better than an Ophidian? Right, an Ophidian effect. I think it is because first of all, Ophidians only draw on your turn. Yep. Se- secondly, you often Ophidians often require you to attack. So this happens regardless of all those things. That's fair. My next question then is, is it better than the so, mentors that you, that it's competing yeah. at three mana well, with? Well, let me just elaborate on the attack piece. So if your opponent tries to remove this spell, <laughs> they play into it, right? Because you can battle, yeah. especially if they do it on their turn, they battle over it, and then you, you profit. So Granted. Um, sorry, where were you going next? Is this card better than the mentors that it's competing with at three mana? Well, let's let's. What if you put it in a pyromancer deck instead? Yeah. Then it's not competing. I, You're already in red. I think um, 
I mean, that's a reasonable question and a reasonable way to approach this. But I also feel like there's so much overlap between Mentor and Pyromancer right now that taking a Pyromancer deck and putting a three mana threat in it invariably pushes it toward a Mentor deck. But you already have the three mana. You have DAC. So I feel like I feel similarly about this. I mean, I'm not going to be in in a Mentor deck or a Pyromancer deck. You're not using this card on offense. (laughs) This card is just sit there and do what DAC does. So it competes more directly with DAC, I would say. Interesting. Okay. Well, certainly reasonable on the mana curve. The, the, the thing that can so in a gush deck, obviously the goal would be typically what happens with a gush deck is you go turn one land, turn two land, and then turn three you're going to gush and then reuse your one of your lands for the third mana. Mm-hmm. But with this card, that's not what you want to do. You want to play it for then gush next so you get the, the draw out of it. The right. problem is it's almost certainly going to trigger a fight. So you're not going to get to draw the card that turn. Unless the fight is like plow. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. In which case, you are going to get to you know, trigger it. Um, I think that so what you, I, was, I think that your four out of six estimate is, is, a, is a little overly optimistic just because... It's going to be, there's going to be plenty of scenarios where it's going to be hard to trigger this the turn you cast it. Yeah. And especially hard to trigger it on your opponent's turn right after you've cast well, it. Well, I, w- I was wanted to go to the next step, which was that I think this card really incentivizes you playing Cavern of Souls so that it is the first spell reliably you play. And then you can, the next spell immediately triggers it because you have priority and there's nothing your opponent can do to stop that. And if Cavern is the right way to play it, then the next question is, is this just better in a Merfolk deck? And how reliably can a Merfolk deck trigger it? And I don't have the answer to that question, but I suspect Merfolk deck can very easily cast two spells per turn on their turn. The question is how often can they play two spells on their turn on their opponent turn? I think Merfolk decks, because they are first and foremost Wasteland decks, would have a harder time they're, they're wasteland decks. They're not preordain or gush decks. I think they're going to have a much harder time maximizing this. Well, Merfolk decks frequently want their turn to go wasteland. You play another lord attack. That doesn't maximize Jorian. So Merfolk decks, but Merfolk decks can play two Merfolk per turn. Like so, sometimes, but not, that's not. not really they don't want to be doing that. You know, they want to be disrupting your their opponent. I see. I mean, it's. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm yeah. saying that the baseline their target is to wasteland. You play another Merfolk. That's go. Fair. This will be a very late game card for Merfolk, to put it another way. I see. Fair enough. Well, yeah, maybe maybe it goes into a cavern mentor deck then. It's clear that having Moxon will help you help you with this effect as well. So I think that um, I feel like the three mana aspect of this it puts some structural pressure on Pyromancer Delver decks. I feel like you want to add mana to your deck. Yeah. I feel like you want to add Moxon as you put it, but this. So this creature is better when you the, the earlier you play it, of course, but it's not synergistic with going turn two, second land, mox, cast, and then not getting a draw that turn and not getting a draw on your opponent's turn because you're tapped out. Yeah, that would not be... Granted, granted, you could have misstep plus force, so it's not out of the question. It's just unlikely. Right. It's not... Yeah, it's not impossible it's just not like but but now that i say that casting this on turn two and then starting to draw on turn three that's not inferior to just casting no. it on turn three and getting a first draw trigger no, that's so, not at all yeah it's not like you've wasted an opportunity and this just like mentor this card plays very well with sensei's divining top agreed it's insane with well, that i mean that's a reliable yeah. way to how good is Sensei's Divining Top when it's like one colorless draw card? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, jeez. 
I think there's a lot of play for this. Me too. I think that it's. It, I think it reaches a hybrid point between some traditional ultra low mana Delver decks and the higher mana Mentor decks. I think it gives straight blue red some space in between there that doesn't really have right now. Yep. But I can't shake the notion that you're just going to end up splashing another color anyway. Well, you may be right. In in there's a lot of synergy with Mentor with the Mox, and I could also see you wanting to with our surge discussion want to running like an, a, a repeal or something as well yeah. to try it. I could, yeah. It's interesting too. This card. When is this card at its absolute best? It's at its absolute best when the game is going longer yep. and continues to be interactive. Yep. Absolutely. So Mentor doesn't want to really play that game. Mentor is trying to be a... It's like, you know, it's the Tog deck of this era. It wants to end the game as soon as it gets Mentor into play. Not that it's so incapable of So what does? Delver and, and Pyromancer? Pyromancer? That's what I'm thinking. I think this leans toward the Delver side, whereby... You're not killing your opponent in one big hit. You're just building an, an overwhelming well, incremental advantage. Well, what I keep going back to, and I think it's probably, it was the first point, but I think it's also in many ways the most subtle, which is that it has the remora effect of, geez, your opponent really doesn't want to trigger this, but mm-hmm. if they don't do anything, they're screwed too. So, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like when you're facing a remora or a standstill, do you play something and, and make them draw cards, or do you just like try and wait it out? You can't right. really wait this thing out. 2-3 is not a great clock, but you have to believe that the deck that plays this is going to have additional threats. Exactly. And Delver and or Pyromancer. And drawing cards on their turn, likely yeah. two every turn. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely believe this is playable, and it even seems darn good. I think it's a deck construction challenge, but some people will be up to the challenge, and I won't be surprised if we see it in a spectrum of decks, right? Yeah. Because I think there are issues with adding too many three-mana threats to to the Delver decks, to the Mentor decks, to Grixis decks even. I think there's some issues with that, so you can't go crazy with these. Yeah, I think you're right that there are some tricks in terms of design here, but I don't think mm-hmm. it's any... In fact, I think it's probably more minimal than with almost any other card. So, I mean, Well, it slots in very well. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. It slots in very well. It's a natural curve point, and it doesn't take much to start triggering this. I think that I think it's um, just it's too easy to abuse to not see a lot of play. It's just too easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, you know what card's amazing with this? What? Snapcaster Mage. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It's a cool. That might be the best synergizer right there. No, seriously. How, how good is Snapcaster Mage when it also says draw a card? We should have we should have thought of Snapcaster Mage when we were talking about trying to think about surge ways to trigger surge on your opponent's turn. That's the best. Yeah, thing. <laughs> you're right. It doesn't make it doesn't make um the four mana counter spell. Yeah playable i don't think but it does help this card even more yeah so we kind of already built your pyromancer deck like four pyromancers like probably two deck two of this maybe i don't know how many decks but then you're going to have like two or three snapcaster mages at least yeah and the rest of the deck just builds itself seems like a great starting point yeah i agree and it's a merfolk wizard which means i mean have fun with cavern as nope. you said <clears throat> Is is wow. Snapcaster Major Wizard too? It's a human. Yes. Human wizard? Yes. Oh. Human wizard. Well, good night. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> right? So but the what you just listed, I'm not criticizing, but what you just listed didn't include Delver. Do you think oh, Yeah, I don't think you I, what, why mess with that? I mean you could You don't you don't think this is a Delver deck? I think it's a Pyromancer deck. I don't think it's a Delver deck. Okay. I'll buy it. It could be. I mean, I'm not saying it's not, but how in the world are we gonna evaluate how much of this is gonna see play? A lot. <laughs> 
I mean, we could go with starting with Young Pyromancer, right? In yeah. terms of how many appearances it has. That sounds reasonable. The short answer is tons. The <laughs> the trick is well, the trick is there's a spectrum of Pyromancer decks, right? There's from Delver to your your Gush Tendrils to to Pyromancer decks that have Mentor in them to Storm Combo. I mean, there's just there's a range. Well, we just need to start with a high number. I mean, we're in rarefied air up here. Uh, I mean, are we talking 10 to 20? Are we talking 20 to 30? Are we talking 30 to 40? You know, I think we can just, I think we're safe with the range. Sorry. Well, to put things in perspective, I don't have a specific number, but Pyromancer put between 30 and 40 top eights. Uh, in Q4. Yeah, that sounds about right. I I think this is probably going to be likely a 20 to 30 card then. Jeez, it could be that's a lot. It could be 10 to 20, but I would be shocked if it's less than five. And I don't know what the ceiling is for this. I think it has a pretty high ceiling. Um, it may also have a low floor though. Just so you know, Snapcaster is way higher than that. What is Snapcaster? I I can't tell, but just by eyeballing it, it's got to be 50 or 60. Yeah, I remember when we first did Snapcaster, and you said the number, and it was high, but I think it was like in the 30s. Yeah, it was 20 to 30, 25, 30, I think. Yeah, I think this card's kind of in that range. You think this is going to have as many appearances as Snapcaster did? Yeah, well, people are, aren't really immediate fast to adopt, but this this card is so obvious it's smacking you in the face. It, <laughs> it does kind of scream vintage, doesn't the, it? The drawback is being legendary. So Yeah. Oh, so in terms of quantity, you're, you're probably predicting between one and three, right? The sweet spot's probably two. Yeah, per deck. Yeah. Well, you have to remove this thing immediately. I mean, you can't let this thing sit, right? I mean, you just... Um, I, it, it, matchup dependent, of course. I mean, a workshop deck is going to try to just blow. This is not a great play in, against workshops, right? This is going to be the mission because what workshops do. But cards like Ancient Grudge and whatever are all immediately active against shops. Oh man, Ancient Grudge with this in play. That's <laughs> uh, so sick. <laughs> of course, it, I think it goes without saying. You'd still prefer to have Dak in play, but yeah. this is still a very reasonable threat. I, and it holds off things like small hangerbacks and, and revokers on the ground. Yeah, yeah. this is not going to be my favorite card against shops, but it's not bad. No, not by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, But it's really going to help you get... Oh, wow. It could really help you get over the top against Storm, too. Because it's not yeah. a turn one or two place. So you're going to have to weather <laughs> weather the Storm right. for the first two turns. But if you can get this online on turn two and a half to three and a half, then your top decks all become way better. Yeah, this card's insane. I, I'm, I feel, you know, I think like it's a safe estimate around like 14. I think it's more probable like 24 and probably 34 is, is you know, less likely. But this card's just too insane. All right, I I'm a little bit I, I'm I believe this is good. I just think that the numbers I'm hesitant to to put numbers up as high as you're saying. Okay. Uh, I I'm feeling more like I'm feeling more like the fifth the fifteen to twenty range for myself. Go for it. I'm gonna go fifteen. What do you think? I'm gonna say twenty two. Twenty two. I, I feel like that's pretty low. That's pretty conservative. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I think I, my hesitation stems from the fact that I think there's some pressure against Delver and Pyromancer decks in the metagame right now. Right. No, no doubt. But I think this is. A huge, I think that'll. I think this is a huge boost for them. So, so here's here's the thing, and I think here's the problem with what you just said. Do you remember what our prediction was for Gristlebrand? I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember no. I, I nailed it. It was like exactly what it was. It might have been like 12, might have been 19. 
Crystal Brand is only useful in one deck. Yeah. This has a much broader scope of application. This can be used mm. in Gush decks. This might be used in Merfolk decks. This might be used in like Grixis style decks. Who knows? True. I, I just True. think it could be used in you know anything. So this, so this could be a new Dark Confidant. Yeah. Of sorts. Yeah. I just think its its utility is so broad. Its scope of application is so broad that it can show up in too many decks. So. Mm. Interesting. So I, I think you've got to... If it was just evaluating in Mentor slash Delver slash Pyromancer, that'd be one yeah. thing, but you've got to figure this thing's going to show up elsewhere. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. I agree with that. All right. Well, this will be fun one to watch, and I look forward to testing it out myself. Let's move on to Mina and Den, comma, Wildborn. Two red-green. Legendary creature, elf ally. You may play an additional land on each of your turns. Red-green, comma, return a land you control to its owner's hand, colon. Target creature gains trample until end of turn. <laughs> four, four. So an exploration with legs. Four mana, four, four, and red and green. Why did you want to talk about this one? Well, um... There, these elf decks do occasionally appear in vintage, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if this was kind of a huge boost to that strategy. It has the ability where you can replay a land and then you can return a land, so you can get something like you know a um what you know what's the cradle chaos cradle right. to use it. Um, yeah, it just strikes me that that it might have some utility in that net archetype, which I know John Johnson played at one of the uh, big events last summer. I don't think it really necessarily puts it over the edge, but it is interesting that you can get some really powerful acceleration out of it. Well, it's true. In some local events in our area, in the Great Lakes, uh, Elves has put up a few top eights over the years. It's certainly a rogue strategy in Vintage, and as a one-of, this, I agree with you, this does have a little bit of synergy it could it could actually be that they're returning a land for trample is use both for both sides of the coin, but to return the land and to give the trample because I can see a couple scenarios where trample would be a difference maker. But I really just think that the rogueness and the the speculative nature of this as a one of in such a deck is probably going to keep the quantity down to a minimum. Yeah, I think you're right. I, you're right. But I just you know. Where elves appears, this is another consideration. We'll put it yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's true. I wouldn't be surprised to see this in an elf list in Legacy. Definitely, I'm not an elf combo player. I've I've tested the the mechanics of it in a few other formats in the past, but I haven't played it in Legacy ever. And it might be that this effect is just a little too cute for the value you get. So there's already the symbiote and the ranger that bounce the lands. So there's no need to invest in another creature in that archetype for the land bounce per se. But the replaying of the lands could have some additional incremental value. Because as you put it, getting a whole other cradle activation is pretty huge. Yeah, I thought it deserved at least a passing mention. Yeah. It's hard, All right. You know, outside of elf, elves, though, you know, um, I'll just mention one other thing. I think in in it is yet another way to play a bizarre, from, another bizarre in your hand with dredge, with dread return. Um, Interesting. Just mentioning that. Yeah, Sun Titan seems the more reliable and, approach. And you for have that. the unearth thing too. But yeah. I just mentioning. Okay. For completeness' sake. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny, I think we may have glossed over mentioning the utility of uh, reanimating certain of these Eldrazi when we talked about them. We always get so hung up on the casting costs, but it's funny, the the Deceiver of Form, for example, the one that copies 
the top creature of your deck. Yeah. That could be a pretty potent thing in Dredge in certain scenarios. Dredge does not want to set the top of its deck, so it's not predictive with yeah. current Dredge builds. And it has plenty of superfluous creatures. Yeah. But yes, as a decks go that do have creatures that could become copies, that could it, be one of them. It happens every turn, so... Yeah. Problem is is that uh, the modern Dredge decks are playing Colagon, and that is to provide haste and uh, big wins, and uh, that is a bummer to flip up with a Deceiver of Form. But uh, there's still plenty of other spicy things that could be done in Dredge. I don't think it'll happen again because it's not predictable. Right. Dredge likes to be predictable, but uh, yeah. That brings us to the final card of the set that we save for the end. That's right. And we've already talked about it indirectly in a number of contexts. The last card that we're going to review for Oath of the Gatewatch is Wastes. (laughs) (laughs) Wastes, the card that has possibly the least text of any magic card. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's not true. It's just the same as most of the basic lands. But... Uh, so we talked about the utility of lands that produce colorless mana. There are many, many, many of them out there. We talked about the marginal utility of putting them in your deck over others. And Steve, you concluded that in a workshop deck that did have a non-zero amount of colorless mana requirements, yeah. something like Spatial Contortion or Warping Whale, that because of the presence of Ghost Quarter, the popularity of Ghost Quarter, that a singleton wastes might be... Better than a basic island, yeah. Yeah, for the purposes of the mirror and a couple other matchups. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you are going to run... If you're not going to run those uh, you know, those those spells or anything that requires a colorless, there's no reason to use it at all. But if, right. if those are going to see any play, then there's a good chance that this one of these will be floating around. So I'm going to say one. I think I said non... Of course... I would have to have said non-zero on the, the two other cards in question, which I believe I did. <laughs> right. Well, I think that there's a lot um, there's a lot of conditions there, right? So I agree with any one or two parts of that conditional statement, meaning <laughs> these colorless spells are playable and Ghost Quarter is popular. I just have a feeling that it's just not going to manifest uh, in terms of anyone actually pulling the trigger and doing it. I think that... Uh, that basic land strategy in workshop sideboards is rare enough as it is. And then just too weak on its own. You may be right. Yeah. I I don't know. I'm going to go with zero, but we've elucidated the reasons. I won't be very surprised if, if one or more people do it. We'll see. That does it for our Oath of the Gatewatch review. But this episode's not over. Given that this is episode 50 and our first of the year 2016, we have to do our 2015 year in review and give out some moxies. Yay! those of you who may not have been listening to the show for a long time we like to review each year in vintage for the key milestones and give a couple of awards which we call the moxies for the best new card the best new set and the best storyline of the year in anticipation of that though we'd like to do a quick rundown about what the key milestones were for the prior year january was the release of fate reforged and the launch of the second season of the bsl mm-hmm and for a reminder, Fate Reforged featured highlights such as Monastery Mentor and Tassiger the Golden Fang. And our set review was number 41, episode 41, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Not much to speak of in February, but then in March we got Dragons of Tarkir, our episode 42. 
which featured Narset Transcendent and Rending Volley. <laughs> June was then the yeah yeah the the middle the early part of the year featured not much else, but then the summer was pretty exciting. In June, it was the NYSE Open three where Sullivan Brophy won with Dredge, and they announced a pretty big change of the Mulligan rule. That was a pretty amazing announcement, which we analyzed yeah. in our forty fourth episode. Lots of fun with that one. July had Magic Origins, which we reviewed in episode forty five which had some really big hitters in hindsight. Jace, Vrince, Prodigy, Dark Petition, and Hangerback Walker. No slouch there. Mm-hmm. August, of course, was Eternal Weekend. With Brian Kelly, Dragonlord Kelly, winning with Bomberman Oath, and a record attendance of almost 500 players, which we did a recap for episode 47. Next month in December was the Banned and Restricted September, List September, update. September. Thank you. Next month in September was the Banned and Restricted List update. Which, as we all know, was a big one. Dig Through Time Restricted, Chalice Restricted, Thirst Unrestricted, which we analyzed in our episode 49. That must have been with the Battle of Zendikar. Why would the Banner Restricted List announcement be in September if Battle of Zendikar was October? I think it's because (laughs) the reason for that is it was right at the the turn of the month and we recorded all of them at the same time and I split it up. That was a split episode. Got it. In October, we had our Battle for Zendikar set review, which was episode 48. And we, according to our report card, there was nothing that saw play from Battle of Zendikar. <laughs> Beginning of this episode, yeah. Also in October was the exter- the Eternal Extravaganza number three, which Matt Murray won with a mentor deck featuring four Jay's Friends prodigies. And in November we had the Commander 2015, which we didn't review because there were no playables. <laughs> and then there was the launch of the fourth season of the Vintage Super League, which brings us to the first Moxie category: Best New Card. Let's talk about some of the candidates first. So, Kevin. Yeah. Kevin I think the, the clear candidates are Monastery Mentor, Hangerback Walker, Dark Petition, Jace Ferns, Prodigy. Is there anything we should add to that list? Well, there there are some other notables. I mean, Tassiger was a big deal in terms of its impact on Bomberman, making that deck a lot a lot more potent, I think. And But I really do think that the four cards you first mentioned are the ones that had the biggest structural change. I mean... I don't want to. I don't want to poo-poo other cards, but uh, those four were just huge for the format this year. Yeah, I, I think we can we can quickly run down taking them one by one. I mean, Mentor obviously created what I would call a new deck, but it was a, a extension of the the Delver archetype. Really, um, it moved in some different directions and it had some different features, and I think it slides pretty far down the scale away from aggro control down to more combo control but that's personal preference right mentor has since then shown up in a lot of different archetypes a lot of different color combinations blue white just sky esper now more recently bant i mean it's really has taken all the other colors from blue white and and has also run the gamut from delver strategies to uh, storm strategies i mean it's really shown up in Almost everything you can put it in this year. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, I think I think Mentor has had a giant... I mean, I was all over it. I played it in the VSL. I played it in the NYSE to miserable results in, in both cases. <laughs> but the card is still insane. Yeah. Yeah. Next, Hangerback Walker 
what can we say about Hangerback Walker? It was formative in the fate of Vintage Champs this year. It was just, it reached its apex going into that event. It shook down the workshop archetype to its core. Yeah. And kind of, and it was kind of rebuilt from the ashes. <laughs> um, I mean, Hangerback Walker was huge. And at the same time, it managed to be a little bit of an enigma. A lot of people still don't really appreciate how important and impactful it is on the format on that archetype and, and on different builds of it. I mean, we we analyzed in great detail when we looked back on, on Eternal Weekend just the minutia of what Hangerback Walker did to workshops and all of its matchups. It was incredible. Dark Petition was one of the cards that I'm disappointed in my evaluation of. In testing it and playing it and experiencing it in retrospect, the card is just like Jace, far more powerful, little Jace, far more powerful than I anticipated. And and better than the cards that we compared it to, like Rim Tutor, um, because it's one mana less there's no life loss um it's just it's a really powerful card and it seems to be at its apex right now Mm -hmm. and little jace we discussed it extensively last episode so no need to to recap that but of all the cards i think little little jace is still on the rise in my opinion this is kind of i agree i think this is a tough race because dark i mean all these cards really shook up you know these archetypes i mean dark petition has revamped combo in in a sense mentor has changed the format Hangerback revamp shops. It's this is a tough one. I think I'm going to give my moxie to Mentor though. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Everything you just said, I feel like Mentor had the largest impact in terms of cross archetypes. Yeah. In terms of impacting the format over the course of right. the whole time it's been legal. Right. I mean, so, some of these other cards were a little slower to come out, like Dark Petition, Jace Friends Prodigy. Uh, some of them, I think, may diminish over time. I think Hangerback Walker might diminish as time goes on in favor of other things. But Mentor has just been a huge front of the pack impactful card all year long it's amazing it's true really true now the next category is the best new set there are only five candidates fate reforged dragons of tarkir magic origins battle for zendikar commander 2015 remember there was no other core set because we had magic origins instead um i think this is a much clearer case (laughs) yeah there's no denying mentor was the highlight of the year but magic origins had the rest of the best cards so (laughs) yeah it's it's actually incredible i think we might look back and view magic origins as a mirrodin level impact on the format onslaught level mirrodin level this is this is going to be one for the record books definitely it's amazing those bombs just keep getting better over time yeah so congratulations to magic origin that brings us to our last moxie what's the biggest storyline of the year i mean there's so many great stories we had the record attendance at eternal weekend we had you know the the brian kelly victory we had huge restrictions and unrestrictions this year we had um the new mulligan rules we got you know um some pretty amazing play in from the vsl there's just so much going on it's hard to decide but mm-hmm. do. so what do you see as the biggest story of the year the biggest thing of the year that we'll look back years from now and remember the most kevin well the it's a little bit subtle so bear with me. I feel like the biggest story of the year is actually the ban and restricted update in September. Yeah. But it's not just because it was a very huge ban and restricted update. It's not just because of that. 
it's because of the roots that it's had in the format. All, all three of the cards that were affected by this banner restricted update have some of them shorter periods of time. Of course, dig through time is only a year and a half old, but or two years old. But um, just the the significance and all the history and all the things that had to coincide to get to this point. When it comes to dig through time, right? When we were reviewing the cards, Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time, we pretty properly analyzed where they would land, what kind of decks would uh, maximize one over the other. But one of the things we could not shake out at the time was what's the fate of these cards because they were printed at the same time. And so it took so much longer for Dig Through Time to ascend. And in hindsight... I'm one of those people who believe that Dig Through Time is actually the more powerful card and <laughs> actually had a bigger impact on Vintage, even though Treasure Cruise was a bigger flash in the pan and, and got banned, or sorry, restricted first. So I think there's that narrative, but then there's that uh, in relief against the longer-term narratives of Chalice and Thirst and how Chalice has been around and was hugely impactful right out of the gate and has been the, the subject of so much debate and so much gnashing of teeth and people claiming this or the other thing is the, the thing that makes Workshop so dominant. And then you compare that to Thirst, which is this card like Gush that had its day and had its time in the limelight and then got restricted and kind of fell off the map. And then there was so much question about it when it came back. I mean, there's so much historical precedent and narrative going on with this banner restricted list update. It talks about so many historical ebbs and flows in the format from an archetype and an individual card standpoint. It, it was just, we've talked about the constituents of this update for years leading up to this point in so many different ways. I am not surprised with your storyline of the year, but I am disappointed that's the same one as mine. I, <laughs> I I was I had that that was going to be the answer to the question I posed. We actually didn't mention this in the recap, but in January they restricted treasure cruise and unrestricted gifts ungiven as well this past year. So there was you know, when you think about it and you really look at it, you might be surprised how little the vintage ban and restricted list changes over time. Mm-hmm. So I mean from two thousand and ten there was one there was two announcements unrestriction of gush and frantic search 2011 unrestricted factor fiction 2012 unrestriction of burning wish 2013 unrestricted of regrowth 2014 no changes so from 2010 through 2014 not one card not one was restricted in vintage in a five-year period basically from june of 2009 july of 2009 until january of 2015 four and a half year period nothing was restricted in vintage format where people probably think things are restricted left and right <laughs> so to have three cards restricted in 2015 is the most number of cards let me ask you kevin do you remember when the last time three cards were restricted in vintage was well, wasn't it the big restriction of Ponder and yeah, Flash? Yeah, 2008. 2000, 2008, you know, the last okay. time there were three cards restricted in Vintage in, in, in uh, one year was before that? Before that? Wasn't it the first one? No. Was it, it was, late 90s? It was um, not counting the Portal cards. It was the restriction of Burning Witch, Chrome Mox, and Lion's Eye Diamond. Oh, I forgot about that one. So yeah. it was 2000 and, and basically 2003, early 2004. Okay. So it's been years since we've had this many yeah. restrictions. And it's not just that they restricted three cards, but they also gave us back gifts and far more importantly, thirst. And I think your point about Chalice is actually probably the most important one. There has been an undercurrent concern about workshops in this format for some time. We've touched on for a long time. And there's kind of like this recurring dialogue about what something sh- whether something should be done and if so what. Ch- 
Chalice mm-hmm. of the Void was a card that got a lot of attention, as you said, when it was printed. And so its restriction kind of bubbled up, culminated, and it happened. And so mm-hmm. it's something I think we're going to live with for a long time. These, you know, Whether it's restricted or unrestricted someday or what, whatnot, the effects of the changes to the banned restricted list this year are going to flow for years to come. They're going to affect the, the warp and wolf of the, you know, the format for many years. Um, and uh, as, as big as the other stories are, as important as those are, I think that's the biggest story of the year. It's going to have the longest reach impact on the format, and it looks back the most, I think, yeah. in terms of the format's history. Yeah, It's not to say that we're not going to remember this year as a good one. I mean, the print, the Magic Origins is going to be, I think it's going to be lauded for many years to come as a great set for Vintage. I feel that Monastery Mentor is a staple for many years to come. And I also feel like this year's Vintage Champs was honorable mention for such a huge turnout and a, a fun event to analyze in terms of the metagame flow and then Brian Kelly's winning deck and just a number of things. Yeah. So was this was this was a pretty good year for Vintage, all things considered. Well, I think that leaves us with the closing question. So we'd like to know, what do you think is the biggest story of 2015 for Vintage? And with that, thank you for listening to episode 50 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We get to not game.